three cinephiles have come together to bring you strong opinions, controversial statements, epic battles, and plenty of fun. Introducing our host, the man who watches 52 movies a week, drinks 52 beers a movie, loves women but hates the woman, from the foreign land of Canada, our host, Mood 616. He is widely known as the man who talks too much. His worst enemies are Postmaster P and Pee Wee Herman. He said Hellraiser was overrated and Leprechaun Origins wouldn't suck. He's the full-blooded half-Mexican, JP. Finally, we have the man who doesn't talk enough. He is best friends with Sean S. Cunningham. His favorite horror movie is Gummo. He is your favorite Jew and mine, Jeremy. Together, they are known for extending a helping hand to Vampircons everywhere. They are the 22 shots of moods and horror. Yes, yes, y'all, it's going down right now. Episode 100 of the 22 shots, shots, shots of moods and horror podcast is coming at you live. I am your host, M-O-O-D to the Z, the bullshit artist, also known as Mr. Soup-Ass Moods. And of course, I've always got my tasty refried bean dish, my hetero life mate, the greasy half-breed burrito brain double shot J. Also known as JP, the argumentative asshole in the place to be. Yeah. What's going on, homie? Yo, we finally are here recording episode 100. I am so beyond stoked. It has been a long journey. A lot of ups. No downs, for the most part, except for the Night of the Demons episode. (laughs) But it's 100 episodes, dude. How crazy is this? This is a this is definitely one of those milestones where we're gonna look back at episode two hundred and be like, I can't believe that we actually spent two and a half months prepping for this one damn episode. This has been the biggest headache episode of all time. I'm not gonna lie. Absolutely. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I mean I mean, we couldn't have made this episode any more difficult on ourselves mm-hmm. because generally when people compile like a top hundred list of, you know, the best horror films of all time, they used one specific thing, and that is the quality of the films. And how much they liked it personally. Exactly. A personal list, you know, the quality of films, and you compile a list that, it's a lot easier to do it that way. Well, of course, here at the 22 Shots Productions, we seem to make everything a lot more complicated, and by what I mean by that is that this top 100 list that we are celebrating here on episode 100 has... A, I would say a unique criteria that we basically came up with. Yeah, and we thought we, this would be a little bit different to do instead of just doing, you know, the bonafide top 100 quality horror films of all time. Yeah. And, you so, know, speaking of that, uh, when we decided to do this, it wasn't a list of like, okay, Moods, what's your 100 favorite horror films? And JP, what's your 100 favorite horror films? And then we'll just mash them together. It wasn't. Uh, what are the best horror films? There's a lot of disclaimers we got to give out. This is a list that we looked at from a multitude of perspectives and tried to be as objective as possible when looking at it from a standpoint of horror culture. What is the 100 greatest horror films based on a list of criteria that we thought was fitting for the horror genre as a whole? And mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to, do you want to talk about what some, what are the criteria that we used? Okay, like I said before, you know, we came up with this specific criteria and we thought it would be fun to do. Uh, it's very, very hard, but, um, you know, instead of, like I said, you know, just picking the top bonafide hundred, you know, quality horror films, That's we decided list. to come up with this. 
And that's a totally different list. And we want to really kind of stress this throughout the show that this is not that list. This is yeah. a different. This is our criteria. It has about five or six kind of uh, points yeah, um, to the criteria. Yeah, when we're saying greatest, it means more than just good. Like, it doesn't just mean the quality of film. Because if that was the case, it would be number one is a 10 out of 10, number two is a 10 out of 10, until you run out of 10 out of 10s, and then it's 9.75s or whatever. You know, yep. But that's a completely different list. We tried to incorporate all facets of what makes a horror film great, whether it's the scares or whether it's, uh, you know, the, the actual film quality or whatever, the score, you know, and we tried to encompass all that. And we broke it down into five or six major criterias and then sub criterias within those criterias. But we're just going to give you the basic criteria that we used. Okay. Basically, the first thing we came up with is a film that can stand the test of time. And, you know, that means more than likely a lot of the films on this list are probably going to be generally older because they're films that have been ingrained into the genre and have been celebrated throughout a longer stretch of time. Yeah, it just right? makes and, sense. Test of time is important yeah. when you're talking about horror yeah. films. And that's why maybe this list is retro heavy because they do stand the test of time. You can't say for sure that a film is not going to be forgotten that was made today versus 1922. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. I mean, the best horror film in the world could have came out yesterday. It'd be pretty hard to put it on this list because it's not really going to fall into this bit of criteria. Again, we're going to stress this. Number two, it has to be really critically acclaimed and it had to have done well, say, at the box office and things like that. So and these it, are it doesn't yeah, elements. always yeah. have to, but that is yeah. a criteria that we looked at. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is something that, you know, if a film did gangbusters at the box office the greatest numbers of all time it's something we have to look at like okay that is something important in horror history in the horror genre exactly exactly um the third one influence now a film that's really heavily you know this is a great example of something that could be you know, not necessarily like a 10 out of 10 film, but it's one of those staple films that influenced the, like a whole entire subgenre of horror films or just, Directors you know, it, it sticks at or even, yeah. you know, the way that the industry ended up going. You know what I mean? It, it, it can mm-hmm. influence anything from a direct influence. Like I ripped this film off and made another film just like it. Or it could be something that changed the landscape or changed a decade or changed a mood in horror. So we mm-hmm. looked at that. And we yeah. pulled a lot from our episode 50, obviously, the 50 most influential horror films of all time, and, you know, considered a lot of those contenders as greatest horror films of all time as well because of how much influence. But we didn't it, focus specifically only on influence for this list. That was a no. different list. Exactly. Uh, number four here, uh, films that are kind of ingrained into pop culture and also have iconic status. So, I mean, there's many, many films that... You know, you look at a Nightmare on Elm Street or a Friday the Thirteenth, things like that. You know, are ingrained in pop culture. You know, and and I'm talking in like different things. I mean, they could have been parodied. You know, they've got toys, they've got you know just everything that goes along with being ingrained Video into games. pop culture. Video, Video games, games, you know, books, comics, um, TV shows, you know, references, things like that. Posters, Halloween costumes, things that are you know in everyday life, you know, in pop culture, and just have that status. You know, you think about one thing and you just know what it is right away, kind of thing, right? that really iconic status uh number five of course it does have to be a great film we're not going to leave off or we're not going to have films on here that you know that aren't really a great film but they seem to fit all the other uh portions of the criteria 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. the film has to be a great film, you know, yeah. and it can, you know, it, but, you know, of course, with that said, there is some X factors here. Also, um, some films could have been, you know, not really fulfilling other parts of the criteria. They could just be best of the genre. Uh, they could be like that staple horror film, you know, kind of like a landmark film or films that even change the game, change, you know, horror films from maybe that decade or it's kind of ingrained in that time yeah, period. Or too. something that is so. completely unique to that film. It's an X factor. It's something that you can't consider and base your complete criteria on because that film is the only one that did that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about great films, uh, there are tons of great films that didn't make this list because it didn't match enough of the criteria. And that's not saying that every single film on this list matches every single criteria point. One thing that a film does can be like a skyrocket to the moon factor uh, in terms of maybe it had that influence, that skyrocket influence, but it might just be a really good film and not an amazing film or, you know, it's, I look at it like a graph chart with an infinite roof and you know, if two of those yeah. bars go up extremely high and the other one's low, you still count that one because of how high those other two graphs went. Exactly. Like, I mean, there's there, you're def- we're definitely going to come across films in here that, you know, didn't even have per se, you know, big bo- or theatrical releases and stuff. So therefore their box office status is is void. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I mean, there's things like that. And then there's films that just have so much influence in the game, you know, and maybe they're like an eight and a half out of ten or stuff. You you generally wouldn't put them on the best films of all time list, but it belongs in here because it may be ingrained in pop culture. It may be, have heavy uh, influence, stands the test of time. It, it fits a multiple amplitude of the criteria. And that's what we really, really want to stress here. And something so. else that we really want to stress is that this list was hard and there are many films that I wanted on here that did not end up on here. There are many films that Uh, moods wanted on here that did not end up on here. There are many films that we wanted not on here. Each of us for whatever reason that did end up on here. And it's because this list is at the end of the day, even though it's what we say is the greatest, it is what we say is the greatest. Your Mm -hmm. list will be different. Nobody will have this same list. Nobody. And this is our list based on what we think. And what we think, we think pretty highly and strongly, but that does not mean that it is the end-all, be-all. To us, it is. But to you, it might not be. So we know we're going to get some criticism. We know you guys are going to love it, most of you guys. But we know we're going to get some flack for some of the choices that we made. But we stand by them. We feel them. There's a few things that maybe I wish we would have had more time for. Maybe we wish we could have sculpted out the list more. But at the the end of the day, we could have worked 10 years on this list and still had issues with it. Because it is a near impossible task to get perfect. I think what it really comes down to here, we started with, what, 300-plus films yeah. or something like that? Some some ridiculous amount of films. And through a process of elimination, we have a top 100 here. And when we're talking this, man, we went through every single film multiple, multiple times. We, we cross-referenced the film with the criteria. Things had to go at times. Things stayed on the list, and we argued. We fought, and, um, you know, this is what we came up with. It, it's really probably one of the hardest definitely the hardest list i've ever been involved with making um with the sheer factor of leaving out your biased uh ideas and you know flavors and stuff like that it's really hard to get away from that sometimes because you know with this top 100 list i mean it was tough too because there's a couple films that jp hadn't seen on this list and there's a couple films even on this list i'm not really the biggest fan of but they fit the criteria so this so all these kind of x factors and these factors made this list 
very, very difficult, but honestly fun because we not only we not only discussed hundreds and hundreds of films and their place in horror history and where they should actually be, you know, placed in a list. Um, I learned things by doing research, writing out bulletin points. Um, spent like four hours last night, you know, doing this type of stuff. Um, learned lots of really cool things. And uh, this is what I like about this. It's a very interesting thing to, to, to discuss and kind of break down. And I hope you guys enjoy this because we put a lot of effort into this. And uh, just understand the criteria. Again, stand the test of time. Critical, box office, influence, pop culture, icon status. It has to be a great film and there is X factors in there. You know, without further ado, man, we know this is going to be a marathon episode. So we probably need to get right into this list. I would assume, JP, right? We got to do this? Absolutely. Hey, guys, this is Alex... Dan and Jamie from the Skeleton Crew, we all just want to say happy 100 shows, man. Great accomplishment. Really happy for you guys, and uh, it's been a wild ride, really, for 22 shots. I really think you guys should have said you were ending it at 100, and then 120, and then 150, but you know what? Everybody does their own thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, congratulations, guys. 100 is a nice round number. Yeah, man. Congratulations, guys. (laughs) I enjoyed you guys' show so much that JP himself, I asked him to be on the Married with Children podcast because I knew that we had to work with this guy. He was a great addition when we reviewed the movie 31 on the Skeleton Crew. So that, again, was great. So um, thanks for being a longtime listener of ours, and uh, we're one of yours, and we're really happy for you. And Here's 200 more, man. Yeah, definitely, guys. You guys rock. Keep doing what you're doing uh, over here at the Skeleton Crew. We love you guys. So rock on. Here's to 100 more, motherfuckers. Uh, this is this is awkward. So we have to send a recording about like how many shows they did. Who cares? Does anybody even listen to these guys? What show is this again? I don't even know. 22 shots of vodka. I don't even know. Something stupid. It's not about shots. I don't know. I guess that's pretty cool. It's about drinking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I don't know. Yeah, we, we got to send this fucking thing in. So, uh. The hundred shows. Yeah, because that's never been done before. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. All right. Yeah, this is going to suck, but let's just get it over with real quick. Um, all right. I'm going to hit record here and. No, Dan, that's send! We're going to start here with, of course, number 100 and work our way down to the number one spot. Let's do this. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I have always, 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 never said it, but I've never liked that sample. You know what, JP? You could go suck a Mexican bag of burrito dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, you fucking stupid ass Mexican. Always fucking have to hate my shit. Always, 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 always has to hate my shit. Even on this triumphant day of episode 100, you always just have to break the Jews' balls. Number 100, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from the year 2003. Absolutely. Now the sample went good with this, didn't it? it yeah. Did. See what we did there? Good timing. Good timing. <laughs> planning. I-, I take full responsibility like everything that happens on the show. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. So number 100, Text Chainsaw Massacre 2003. So what do you fellas think about having this one at the top of the list and starting us off? It- it's a film that definitely I fought for being on the list because I think that it's very important for me personally, but also in what we saw 
for the next coming years. It was one of the first successful remakes in the modern time. It it created a entire wave that is just now receding today. Um, with I think one remakes. of the biggest points. I think one of the biggest points for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003 that people seem to tend to forget, which is becoming very, very prevalent now, is, you know, this one kind of kicked off the whole Blumhouse. And, I mean, they're really kind of the front runners and, you know, more mainstream horror and stuff like that today. So this is uh, what uh, kind of uh, kicked their ass. That would be Platinum Dunes. The Platinum <laughs> Platinum Dunes. Michael <laughs> Bay, you fucking dumbass. Whatever. <laughs> the <laughs> different. Whatever, off great. F- fucking Michael yeah. Bay, come on. But, yeah, this film to me is, I think when you I look think. at remakes, it is a film that does a, does a remake well because it kind of took, like, the core elements, like the family stuff, and kind of just did its own thing with it. And I say this as an argument all the time. I think this film should be talked about as a classic at this point because the characters in it fit directly in with the families of past Chainsaw films. You got mm-hmm. Arlie Army as Officer Hoyt, Sheriff Hoyt, who is just outstanding and he would fit right along with the cook and Chop Top and the Hitchhiker and all the other crazy Chainsaw people. Uh, I love it. it. It made a lot of money off of... Yeah, you got to think about that. Like, 2003 is like a time where at least mainstream horror wasn't very doing that hot. Uh, I think the the post-Scream era has died down a little bit. And I mean, the movie went on to make $108 million on a $10 million budget. So, I th- I, you know, the audience, the audiences at least flocked out to see it. And I, I fucking loved it when I first saw it. I thought it was great. Yeah, this is one of those films that I always found quite intriguing because it not only kind of rejuvenated like you know the modern uh successful mainstream film and stuff but it, it was a remake that did it and I, w- I always found that to be very kind of intriguing in itself so i mean i think that's pretty important but then again with that said i think there's a lot of pros and cons and people argue this points to the death uh with this film yeah, some it, people say it's too sleek uh i i love it i love it i love the look of the yeah. film yeah I mean, for the you know the the anti the anti remake people and stuff, they kind of credit this film to being the downfall, um, you know, or, or you know the catalyst for just remake after remake after remake. I mean, a lot of people associate the two thousands with the remake era, right? And this is kind of that film that you know is definitely the catalyst for it, kind of thing. So, I mean, there's been arguments here and there. I mean, I mean, at least it was a good one. At least yeah. it was a good film. So, I mean, you say what you will about the film, it definitely has its place. Um, and Jessica Biel's ass is amazing. Jeffrey Jessica Biel's ass is amazing, but yeah, it's heavily in- influential. You know, it's like we can take this old film, we can do a remake properly. Uh, you know, I mean, every remake that came after this definitely was not a full like, success. You've <laughs> done one, we all yeah. know that, but yeah. you know, I mean, this was it was a Kickstarter. It was definitely a jumpstart. It was you know, put the defibrillator on there and fucking kind of kicked the game Everybody back. Everybody wanted them. Rejoiced that. it. Everybody, yeah, exactly. mainstream cinema wanted remakes after this film. Yeah, you pretty much wouldn't have seen all the remakes that we got, like them or not. You know, with Prom Night and the fall, all these classic films that were being remade, and it's because of this. I mean, Lisi Studios were trying and stuff, so you know, it 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 put some flavor, it put some kickstart back into the game. So number ninety nine. Now this is one of the films that uh, I have to say, man, I was I was kicking pulling teeth on this one and stuff i i wasn't sure if this should actually belong being so new coming back to you know the whole test of time type thing uh in the criteria because this one is definitely the newest film on the list and it's from 2014 and it's it follows 
you know, the thing with this, like the thing with this film is JP went to bat for this movie. I, I agree that it's good and it's probably should be, you know, it's those three movies of the last like five years that everybody talks about. It follows the Bob Duke and now probably get out is going to be this year's film that most people talk. Well, maybe not get out, but I think raw is going to be actually this year's movie that a lot of people talk about, but I think it's in those three films that find mainstream success from absolutely nothing. And I think that kind of adds a little bit to it. I don't think the film made as much as many people think it did, but I still think that it went from nothing to in an explosion of mainstream success pretty much kind of overnight. So Yeah, it got a yeah. lot of very good critical reviews from like very respectable outlets. And it was a film that just you know, was picked up by a major studio and put in a semi wide release. It didn't make a ton of money, but it it reminded the industry that, hey, horror films actually do sell. And I think that my personal feelings is that it follows sort of kicked off what we're seeing now. We're seeing so many more horror films in the theater right now, you know, and good ones too, you know, good ones that, that people are, you know, taking time within studios or, or, you know, Jordan Peele and get out. Like, I I think that that is partially responsible from it follows. And we have to see this thing play out, but that's my prediction right now that, that we're going to see another huge horror boom and I think when people look back, where did this start? I think they will look at It Follows. And so this is a futuristic test of time type thing. And I'm also one of the people that have really looked into this film's deeper meanings. And I think that this film is going to be dissected years from now for mm. all of these amazing meanings. Um, like, you know, coming of age and, and transitioning from uh, child and adult dealing with adult problems after you have sex. It's like an instant switch and they focus on that in the film, not to mention all the STD and, and, you know, types of commentary like that and, and marriage. And, and there's so much in this film that people don't even realize. Number 98, the mist 2007. Oh man, this is a movie JP wanted hard, 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 hard. This was a tough sell on me and uh, Jeremy, man. I think we, I think we said many, many times to kick it off the list, but, uh, but JP, I had some points. I had some points. Yeah, I, I mean, the most notable point of all is that it has, in my opinion, the greatest ending in horror history, um, which is saying a lot. But I've never had an ending shake me to the core as much as this film did. And everybody who's seen this film knows about the ending. I mean, how Stephen King didn't even write the ending, and he was amazed at it, right? Like, he was amazed that, wow, they changed my work and made it so much yeah. better. He literally said that too. He's yeah. like, "Wow, that ending is so much better than the ending I had." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that I mean, that does say a lot about the adaptation, right? So yeah, th- this is a film that is a little bit newer. So I think with time, it's going to receive even more praise. Uh, I think that it has a lot of of great commentary in it. Um, there is the the religious the religious extremist angle uh, versus the people that you you know think are saying i mean it's been done before but it's done really well in this film as well you know and i think if this film had been released in its original black and white form i think even it would have got more critical praise and love uh which oh, it I, did already i agree yeah, it did get a lot of critical praise actually number 97 we have tenembrae from the year 1982 dario argento's amazing giallo 
Let's mm-hmm. hand it over to Moods for the floor since he is the Italian stallion master. <laughs> uh, Dario Argento's Tenenbrae. Um, I think he's claimed, or he said this many times, that it's uh, it's his, well, his favorite film. Uh, it's debatable if it's his best film. I, I, don't, I personally don't think it's his best film, but um, that, you know, I mean, just coming from Argento saying it's his best film is good enough anyways. Uh, but the interesting thing about uh, Tenenbrae is that it was kind of made after the Giallo phenomenon was pretty much done. And I think that's what separates this film is that, you know, the genre was said to be pretty much over and done with. And he comes out with this film, and it's not only, like, his favorite film, but it is literally one of the better Giallos ever made. And uh, it sticks out, man. It's got an amazing soundtrack. It's got really stylish kills. It's very typical Argento, but it sticks out because, you know, like I said, it was thought to be kind of a lost uh, subgenre. And Tenebrae comes out, and it does what it needed to do. It's an amazing film. Yeah, it's not my favorite Argento, but I agree. It's, it's pretty fucking great. In at number 96 is the second Stephen King adaptation here. And coming in from 1990 is Misery. Now, this is one of those films that I, again, I think I think we were, I was on the fence about and then to, until we pretty much talked about this one. And yeah. um, Misery kind of sticks out for a couple different reasons. You know, um, JP is the one that brought up this point. You know, Kathy Bates' performance in this film is, is literally amazing. one of the best female performances of all time. It's not, only, it's not only a great film, but she has not only one of the best female performances of all time, she actually won an Academy Award for this. And that's like unheard of for horror films for a leading actress to win uh, an award. That's just crazy. Especially crazy. an Academy Award. <laughs> an, an Academy Award for a female lead in a horror film. Insane. You know, it really, really sticks out. Uh, it's a fantastic um, adaptation. Um, it's not as violent as the book, you know, per se. Like a lot of these adaptations, they're not true, true to the book. But, but I think even has, though it's not as violent as the book, it has probably one of the most look away parts in fucking a long time. At least when I was watching it, it's that one scene everybody knows that it's, it's just a hobbling scene. Yeah, it's fucking brutal. Yeah, was, which, was that in the book? I don't even think that was in the book, was it? I think it is. It's been so long. The one thing I remember from the book that wasn't in the film is that she cuts off his thumb and uses it as a birthday candle. That's pretty vicious. And she, she tortures him a lot more. I think that that stuff, though, shouldn't have been in the movie because then it becomes almost comical. And there's nothing (laughs) comical about this movie. And I'll tell you right now, right? 1990, when we say Kathy Bates' performance is one of the greatest of all time, name another woman that got that kind of role. Like, there have been positive characters like Ripley from Alien and stuff that is considered an amazing performance. Davis. But yeah, so mm-hmm. you know, when you're Whatever talking about Jane, yeah. this type of character that she's playing, that's what amplifies her performance as it because it is crazy. And you know, Kathy Bates, um it's just one of those things, man, where I think a lot of people forgot that she's been here for years with this shit. You know, misery is the shit because of her performance in it. And sometimes people James sleep on misery. What's that? James Cann's good too. Yeah, yeah James Cann's really good, good in the film. Yeah, James and he, t- and he totally gets overshadowed. Ah, he gets overshadowed I already big time. The name. Ding! One point for me. Yeah, so he, uh, he gets overshadowed in this film big time by Kathy Bates, but 
you know, that's why she won an award. It's an amazing performance, so. Episode 100 is officially sponsored by ViaVision Home Entertainment, an awesome company based out of Australia where you can get tons of horror DVDs and Blu-rays, most of which are region-free. Welgo USA, who released the awesome Phantasm box set. Artsploitation Films, which specializes in art house-type movies. And Horror Pack, a monthly subscription service that delivers horror DVDs and Blu-rays directly to your door. It is a fantastic service that is great for new collectors, and it is a fun experience. You guys ever remember opening up packs of cards as a kid? That is what Horror Pack is like. You get a box, you don't know what is in the box, it is Christmas when you open the box, and anybody who is interested in Horror Pack, please check the link in the description below, where you can find a link that will give you $3 off your first Horror Pack box, and if you do not feel like clicking the link in the description below, you can always type it out old school, triple www.horrorpack.com slash go slash 22 shots and not only did Horror Pack sponsor this episode of 22 Shots of Lifting Horror which is episode 100 but they are actually a sponsor moving forward so that link for that code is good for the foreseeable future and finally they are actually giving away a box for episode 100 so anybody who has left iTunes reviews for episode 100 will receive a contest entry and those of you who are wondering when this contest will happen well it will be posted for a short amount of time in between episode 100 and episode 101 so be on the lookout for an episode that is just contest results and then send us your addresses immediately so we can send these prizes out so thank you guys thank you to the sponsors again by vision home entertainment art exploitation films welco usa and horror pack number 95 the strangers 2008 now this was a film that jeremy pushed for a lot and i wasn't so sure on it first uh after listening to horror corridor mr watson talk about it uh, i kind of rethought my evaluation of it and jeremy you tell us why it's on the list now i was let's see 2008 15 when i saw this movie in the theaters and it scared the living crap out of me and i still think it's probably one of the scariest movies i've ever seen and i think it was important and should be on this list because it really brought the home invasion subgenre back into the mainstream spotlight i think up until this time we really weren't seeing that many home invasion films uh especially in the mainstream spotlight and even after this we didn't really see that many but we started to see some and i think even on the indie route we started to see a shitload of home invasion films uh you know two years later from 2010 to 2015 you know across the board across the sea we saw just a boatload of home invasion films and I think all of them have to thank strangers for making them important again because I think the film is just amazing. And people are still talking about a sequel today and the fucking movie came out 10 years ago, almost 10 mm-hmm. years ago, and people are still following the hype that they're going to make a sequel with this film. And I think it's just the the buzz that the movie had when it initially got released that it has that aurora around it that people want to see a sequel. It's the same thing with Jeepers Creepers. You know, it's a movie and a franchise that people have followed uh, for multiple years hoping for a sequel. So we'll see what happens. I heard that it's going to shoot this summer. We'll see. But I just love the movie, and I think it's one of the scariest mainstream movies ever made. And 
I, I just love the movie. Yeah, and something that's, you know, influential from The Strangers is the masks. Um, yeah. I, I think there's multiple films that took that style and that look. And let's face it, I mean, Perch, we've seen masks forever. We've seen masks forever since, you know, just forever. Literally since, like, horror films, you know, became a thing. Uh, and But the, the, like, look and the tone of the mask, the, the style in which they're filmed, uh, films like... The Purge and You're Next, um, they they I think they pull heavy influence from from those type of masks. Yeah, I think I think this is a perfect example of of one of the films in the in the uh, that fits in the criteria. It's like, um, I mean, a lot of people would consider maybe this is actually one of you know the best horror films of all time. But it's one of those staple films. You know, it's uh, it's the catalyst for jump starting, kind of the you know bringing back that. Uh, Home Invasion and stuff. Yeah, Home Invasion and, is very popular right now still. Like, yeah. And I can't and I remember think that, in the 90s or the mm, early 2000s there being a ton of them, honestly. No, it's. I think it's when this film came out and I think people started to realize like how good it was and it could probably work. You know, it, it influenced tons and tons of films right after. I mean, let's face it, man. There was like hundreds, it seems like hundreds of Home Invasion films and uh, films that came out after The Strangers. And I would probably put the direct influence to the strangers and it's not a bloody or gory film whatsoever i think it's the way the suspense and you low body count uses a lot of silence and steady cam just looking out into the darkness for a long while without cutting or anything like that any camera movement very fucking it's creepy creepy movie lingering shots just linger to the point of creepiness very suspenseful and i i still i think the ending to the film is awesome yeah, and right, I think yeah. that's one thing that really helped this film is that they didn't, in my opinion, they didn't sell the film out. They they kept along with, I think, what the initial idea was and was to do what they did. And I don't want to give it away, but um, that's one thing that helps the film for me a lot is the fact that it does have a really good ending. Because let's face it, man, a lot of these home invasion films, they tend to end the way you're kind of assuming they're going to be. Yeah. No. This one set the bar. This is one of those staple films um, you know, kind of re-jump that, uh, that subgenre. So number 94, the year 1992, one of the few nineties horror films that we have on the list. It is Candyman, starring the legendary Tony Todd is probably the greatest nineties character of all time. Yeah. What do you think about Candyman fellas? Candyman is one that I was pushing for, uh, hard it it was almost to a point where it didn't even make the list and i was just i just was so bummed because Candyman to me yeah this one was yeah it was a tough one has this really grown one. as one of my favorite horror films and i do admit that it's not when you're talking about like 10 out of 10s and 9 out of 10s i don't think it quite reaches that point in terms of quality because of a few minor problems in the film but it is a staple of the 90s and you know, it it launched Tony Todd into a horror icon, and I don't know about you, but how many horror icons can you name that are black? There's there's not a ton of them that get the praise that Tony Todd does. Um, yeah, no. Of course, you have some. There are some out there, right? Um, Dawn of the Dead. Ken Forey. <laughs> there's not. Yeah, you're right. There is not definitely. There is definitely not a lot of uh, black iconic horror villains out there and that's one of the reasons why Candyman really sticks out but what it did though it ingrained itself into pop culture quite quite drastically i mean this yeah. film's parodied you know it's just it it's it one of those just got parody what like eight years ago on south park with fucking biggie smalls it's yeah. like 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing, you know, so many years after its release, it's still, it's still has that lingering effect and it's being parodied and stuff and it sticks out for a lot of different reasons you know it's highly critically acclaimed too i mean it was shot in, in chicago um of Cabrini course with green. uh green green which is no longer there yeah it's no gone. longer there anymore. um you know roger ebert actually gave it three out of four stars which is quite interesting too because we all know the history with roger ebert in horror films generally does not do favorable reviews you know and that's that's kind of a an interesting thing too um, but everything about this film, it's a great film. You know, awesome score, cinematography. Poetic. Cool story. Very, very poetic. It's an interesting story by Clive Barker. I, I love the whole mythology behind the film and stuff. It has a lot of things going for it. and um, But I think the one thing that does plague this film is the ending. We've, we discussed this before. I think the ending is it, – it's not really the strongest in the world. But mm-hmm. it has so many great qualities to this film and and that's why it's on this list because it fits in the criteria so well kid i mean i i'm a lot older than you guys i remember when this film first came out in 92 i mean just even trying it out saying Candyman five times <laughs> in the mirror you know like we all did it you know it's it's one of those things and that's why it's there it's ingrained in pop culture it has kids wondering if you say Candyman five times is he gonna appear you know kind of thing i mean there's not a lot of films that leave that that resonate with people like that candy man's definitely one of them Candyman, in at number 93 is from the year 2000 and it is one of moons favorites movies yes american psycho yeah man i i absolutely love american psycho so much i definitely have to admit i am guilty of not reading the source material on this i still have never read the book and i've heard from many many people that the source material is a lot different. The adaptation is quite different, um, but we're not, you know, this isn't on the list because of the source material. The film itself, um, the reason for American Psycho being on this list simply is because it's one of those staple films um, that gets taught in schools. I mean, when I was in school, in film school, we actually discussed and dissected this film to death. There's so many layers and elements to this film that you can discuss on so many different levels. And it's kind of one of those open for interpretation type films too. Um, it's very ambiguous at times. I mean, is it reality? Is it not and stuff? So it has all these kind of, um, it just has so much going for it. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, I think it's very memorable for that. You know, it has a lot of classic lines in it, has a lot of classic scenes. Um, I mean, just, it's just one of those films. I mean, it's ingrained in pop culture. It's been parodied to death. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. You guys, what do you guys have thoughts on it? I like the movie. I like the movie a lot. Um, I don't think I love it as much as you do, but I respect what it did at the time. Christian Bale's performance is one of the best of the first five years of the twenty first century. I think it's he's so good in that fucking movie. And I think if they had somebody else playing the main character in that film, I don't think it would have been as successful. But I I really think he carries that movie from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I'm glad he's that you brought insane. up. Insane. I'm glad you brought up Christian Bale because, I th- in my opinion, I think it's one of his greatest roles. Th- this movie has so much replay value, and I think that's another big reason for me being on the list. It has so much replay value because you can every scene you can just dissect it to death. It has so many memorable lines. It has this very ambiguous uh, kind of 
setting to it too like the time period you almost you you can figure out the time period by the popular music that's played in i love the way this film was shot you know it doesn't tell you exactly that it was set in 1987 you have to figure it out by the music and stuff oh you check out this brand new song and you kind of cross-reference it with the music and stuff like that and i love this about this film there's just so much elements and so many layers it's awesome American Psycho. I just have absolutely no idea how someone like JP could not care for this film as much. But then again, it's probably a little bit too intelligent for you know the burrito brain. Um, I don't know, man. I just I had one of the funnest times in. Well, we discussed tons and tons of films in in film class, but American Psycho was always my favorite conversation because not only did everyone like seen the film multiple times, it was just a fun conversation because it's so ambiguous. You know, it's like, okay, what is this, this, and that? It's Cool film to talk uh-huh. about, man. Really, really fun yeah, film. Yeah. So number ninety-two, we have Black Sunday from nineteen sixty. Mario Bava. Hmm. Yes, classic this Mario is the Bava. One Boots fucking went to battle for. Well, so we're compli- compiling this list, and I looked over at the homies here, and I said, "We are missing a Mario Bava film." I'm like, "This is just crazy," because he's literally the Italian maestro. He's the guy that you know created the Giallo film. Uh, oddly enough, you know, Black Sunday is not a giallo, but it is one of those um, quintessential witch films. I think that it's just it's an essential Italian and Mario Bava film. It's it's yeah. beloved all over the world. I think it's one of the most beautiful films ever shot. It's got great storytelling in it. Uh, it's like that, again, quintessential gothic horror film, too. It's just it's got all those elements. It's just it's purely amazing. Um, great acting in it, too. I, I just everything about this one influenced so many people after i mean this film's been referenced to death in films and stuff it's been you know uh, people have ripped off imagery from the films and stuff like that uh it's just highly influential but you know just like mario bob in general i mean you can pretty much talk about mario bob's films in general being influential i mean it comes to bay of blood influencing um you know friday the 13th and so and so on man it's just ridiculous so I mean, I wasn't the biggest fan of the movie. If you listen to our review when we watched when we reviewed it on, was it the first year of yeah, Italian yeah, month? Yeah, episode but, but, yeah. I mean, but I mean, this yeah. is this helps prove that you're retarded. I know, but we already know I'm retarded. But <laughs> this is like the like this is like such a uh, uh, film school analysis type of movie, and I don't really care for it that much. I'm not saying it's a bad fucking movie. I just think it's which fucking is kind boring. Of ironic a little bit, which is kind of ironic. Because I just think it's spent boring. Four years in school, I don't know how it's boring, man. There's so much amazing atmosphere and and uh, cinematography in this film alone, just to keep you occupied, you know, in between the story elements and stuff. It's like, it's just so it's that shit trippy. bored me to death. Not bored me to I, death, but look, it, I, it was pretty. Fucking I wanted to stay positive on this, so I, I will refrain from from saying anything about it. But Blood and Black Lace was was my film out of those three yeah well no i I think this film is just it's so fuck you jp being positive (laughs) holding back fuck you man holding back (laughs) i don't want to say anything because i want to be positive i don't want to be you guys are fucked you guys are fucked (laughs) you fucking mr dickwad anyway 91 we have psycho 2 from the year 1983 yeah psycho 2 man Psycho 2 mm. is clearly one of the best sequels of all time. I It blows my mind when people like Roger Ebert shit on this film because it is a perfect follow-up in terms of what Psycho was. 
1960. You have to think about it's like fucking 23 years later and it freaking just comes out of nowhere. Oh, we're going to make a psycho sequel. And I think most people were thinking, oh, this is going to be a giant turd nugget. Yeah, nobody can touch Hitchcock. 22 years. And and the coolest thing about this Uh, film is. Excuse me, it says 1983, so that would be 23 years. (laughs) Whatever. Oh, yeah, 1960 Psycho. Yeah, you're right. 23 years. But it's cool because they said it in real time, too. I love that. I love that whole idea. And this is exactly how you do a proper sequel. You know, the continuity. It proves that you can do a sequel no matter how much time has passed. As long as you have a good story. Yeah. That is how you do a sequel. That's why it's there. Number 90. Coming straight from 2008. We have the original. Let the right one in. Yes, let the right one in. Um, my Ooh. personal, I love this movie, and mm-hmm. I think that it's probably my second favorite horror film in that entire decade of yeah. the 2000s. Wow. wow. Yeah, I mean, th- this one's very interesting because um, of its uh, mainstream status in America. As we know, oh, this, yeah. is a for- this is a foreign film, and we know the consensus is with foreign films generally don't get that much mainstream attention. And this one not only did it just... I mean, it was a great film, but it, it was like crazy, crazy successful in the mainstream, which is awesome. And, and I of think, course, it, go ahead. Yeah. Please. And of course, it spawned an American remake, too, because of that success, which, you know, again, did really well for itself, too. So and I think I always talk about this movie is that it was right in the period of time where Twilight Buzz was on a rise. And we, all we were seeing was a bunch of shitty, teeny bopping vampire movies coming out all the time. Vampires were fucking everywhere. And I figured that most people were sick of seeing vampires like that. And then this film came out and totally made a dark and uh, disturbing vampire movie. And people were attracted to that, I think, because they were sick of seeing Robert Patterson be a pretty vampire. I, I love I the movie. Twilight I films are the direct influence for this. Yeah. I, I bet you even the filmmakers over there are like, oh, fuck, these Twilight films are being showcased. Because, you know, they're worldwide phenomenons and shit. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this teeny bopper bullshit. And I think it was a direct influence on creating a darker and, you know, using in different mythology and creating like a darker tone vampire film, you know, instead of this teeny bop bullshit. And this is what we got. Yeah. Let the right one in is just one of those movies where it blends the romance aspect, which is not often done in horror films. And it does it at an adolescent level, which is even more never done in horror films. Yeah. And on top of that, vampires have literally been around since like the dawn of horror films mm-hmm. the dawn of horror films and mm-hmm. to see the lore and the mythology that had grown over that period of time and to see this film take classic lore and kind of reveal things about it in it in its own way and shit that made sense i was just like wow this is awesome and i think that i think that it's a very underrated film not not as many people have seen it as they should have this movie and pants labyrinth i think those are like the two they were right around each other fuck you you. labyrinth labyrinth Uh oh here we go again with jeremy's pronunciation yeah well we already know that i already fucking pronounced james (laughs) can's name wrong and i just did it again but (laughs) i think think it's uh i think it's pretty it came out at the same time and i think they both had pretty critical success for being foreign movies so Mm-hmm. That's just my insight on let the right one in. I I like the movie a lot. Number eighty nine, hot topic, Halloween, two thousand seven. You know what? 
like 93% of the listeners just turn it off. I hey. think it's more like 50% because this it's film Hall of Famer, is split man. down the middle. It is you know, one it, of the most polarizing films ever. Yeah, man. I, I mean, this is one of the biggest reasons why this film is on here. This might even be the most talked about and critis- criticized and reviewed films of all time. Yeah. No film has this much divide also, which is interesting and adds to the element and the polarization of this film. Because I've never heard – like honestly, every single time you bring up Rob Zombie in general, there's always a huge argument. But if you bring up the Halloween remake, it hits a sore spot with all the Halloween fanboys and people and stuff. And and it just divides crowds instantly. You could be standing next to your best friend and next minute you're facing off. You know, it's one of those films. And – you know, it's ingrained itself in pop culture big, big time. I mean, it's that, you know, that big, big remake. Was it a big flop? Was it good? You know, um, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. I've never seen a film that's been talked about as much as this one. I mean, Halloween, I think alone, I love this movie. I, I love that they lift the curtain and and let us peek under the mask, if you will, on Michael mm-hmm. Myers and see his child life. And to me, uh, it's always the question of nature versus nurture and yep. nature is halloween 1978 and mm-hmm. nurture is halloween 2007 and it's two visions of what can create an evil person and i love that and this and the i love both visions but i liked seeing the nurture version much like you know just for something different and it made mm-hmm. sense it all made sense it's like okay yeah that makes sense and we cannot deny in real life that there are types of people that are just born shitty people and people that are made shitty people yeah so i thought it completely made sense i i we've talked about this film so much but uh Mm -hmm. shout out to mr watson for pointing out the nature versus nurture thing as well it's it's just it's just rob zombies mise en scene too there's film school reference it's just his everything it just has had rob zombie style and i think that's what makes rob zombie one of the greatest directors of this generation is because he has a style and I feel like so many filmmakers today don't have that style have a style have a style but you know the minute you turn on any single one of Rob Zombie's films you know you're going to be watching a Rob Zombie film because it just has that look and I feel like it carries over to this movie so well especially in the beginning where we're in the house with Michael and his stepfather it's kind of crazy it's just fucking awesome it's kind yeah. of crazy that the Weinstein's let Rob Zombie do this to a Halloween film, like just yeah. dirty it down, right? Like it's like Halloween is classic, and it's like it's considered you know um, elegant, you know, with with the way that it's done. No blood, no gore, no, you know what I mean? And and Rob Zombie, maybe they is, saw something like we do, you yeah. know, maybe they saw something in the in the realistic backstory, you know, maybe bringing that new flavor to it and stuff, and you know, and I. I've never really been able to fully understand the argument of, you know, why people hate this film solely because of the backstory and stuff. They're like, well, you know, the original one doesn't have the backstory. We don't know much about Michael Myers, and that's what makes it scary. But Rob Zombie was going for a different thing. He was trying to actually tell a story here, you know, and that's what separates it. And I think that's maybe what they saw in it, too. And they let him go for it, you know. Yeah. Um, I've heard people, you know, criticize, you know, his writing, you know, the the dialogue itself is just so white trash and, and, and things like that. But, but every movie and like that is, is, and it is, is like but because that, people don't. like that exist, too. And that's but what that's I connected thing. with that, it. That, that's that's exactly what separates this film, because it is very 
it's very realistic. There's wow. literally people that talk like that, and that's how they act and stuff. And you just kind of brought that element to it. And I don't know. Some people have a problem with it, you know, because it's uneducated and things like that. But uh, it's realistic, and that's the point of the backstory. It's realistic for that style, right? That exactly. It's realistic for that section of the world that a lot of people in their white picket fence houses don't get to see. But people who've peeked mm. into the underworld of of the you know trailer parks and 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 the low income housing units and and things like that they've seen this and that's why i think they connect with that film a little bit and and see yeah. like see that that style I, exists as well both styles I just couldn't exist never, i could never understand why people are like oh you know these people are just so poor white trash and blah 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 and i'm like well you know if you were kind of a kind of a head case you know as a child and stuff and you have a stripper mom and you have a stepdad that you know drinks and beats her and shit and he's just a shitty person in general I mean, this is this is exactly the picture that you're going to see. You know, if you were to walk into that situation, this is exactly what you're going to see. And I, that's what I love about it. I can't believe people criticize like, no, that you know, that can't be the way it is and stuff. I'm like, look at the situation. Look what's given here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, how, how could this not be like that? People, that's the way they are. <laughs> you know, it's like, but I mean, you know, I mean, I understand people's point of view coming, you know, the backstory and things like that. But for me, I think it's... Uh, I think it's essential. I think it's essential from separating itself from the original film. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is the meaning of a real remake because he brought something else to it. You know, it's not like, you know, the 98 psycho or shot for shot. Those type of remakes shouldn't be made because they're pointless. This one had a point. He was trying to tell a story and that's what separates it. Next up, we have number 88. Yet again, another Italian stallion. I don't know why I keep getting these fucking Italian stallions. City of the Living Dead from the year 1980. Yes, Lucio Fulci gore classic. City of the Living Dead, man. It's um it's definitely it's one of the most popular uh Italian gore films. Um my you know, personal it's, it's... favorite Fulci film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really famous for being, like, a lot of films that were put on the Video Nasties list. Um, you know, but it's Lucio Fulci. It's Lucio Fulci. It's very influential, however you look at it. So many filmmakers from Italy, from America, from around the world credit, you know, City Living Dead and Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy as straight influence for their type of gory, supernatural, zombie-type films and things like that. Um, you know, it's a direct influence on so many filmmakers. I mean... It's been cited in millions of films. I mean, there's been so many films just directly shouted out, you know, to City Living Dead and stuff. And um, yeah, it's just it's a very influential film. And that's really what it's here for. It's got great effects. It's awesome. The score is amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I the thing about these type of films, I don't know what their numbers were for box office and stuff. Like anybody have any number? I don't think there is actually any true numbers for these. So we don't know. But all I do know is that it stands the test of time. It's still awesome to watch. I watch it like all I actually watched this film again just a little bit ago and still it's just amazing. The gore effects to the some of the sickest shit ever when she's puking up her stomach. <laughs> yeah, stands and, the test of time. It's it's amazing. Did cover it on episode ninety four if you want to hear a full review on that. Alrighty. Moving along into number eighty seven uh with a Canadian classic from David Cronenberg from nineteen eighty three, Videodrome. I wanted this shit off. Yeah. I mean this is but this is more this is very, very typical Cronenberg. I mean Cronenberg is, you have to admit, one of the most unique and one of the most unique directors of all time. All his films were super original. 
Nobody mm-hmm. did films like but this. But why would you have this one on there over Scanners? Because this is better than Scanners. I mean, Scanners I is, understand again, that, but don't you think Scanners fits more of the criteria than Videodrome? No. Mm-hmm. Not really. Not really. I mean, I think Videodrome was ahead of its time in a lot of different elements. Storytelling, um... Dude, especially the, man, it, it's so it's it's just so relevant today. We're just you know? having a conversation, JP. Don't get your panties in a bunch. I mean, it's, it's, Scanners is a different type of film. I think this one still it stands the test of time because you know it's still relevant with you know with the obsession and technology and and uh, the way it perceives like social media. And so it just it ingrains itself into today's world also. And this mm-hmm. is 1983. We're talking about that is a great example of a film that's fitting the criteria right there. It's very influential. I mean, like a lot of David Cronenberg films. I mean, his films are still being remade and, oh, Jesus, man, you know, yeah, way ahead of its time. Videodrome is like the film that is ahead of its time. If you watch it now, you're like, wow, this is all playing out right now. Like, or this is a metaphor for being one with technology in a way. And mm-hmm. it was done in 83. And it was and it was talking about things that are like okay that's kind of like the internet that didn't exist back then you know what I mean so it's like it's really one of those films where you're kind of impressed and if you haven't watched it multiple times maybe you should and you'll kind of get a little bit more out of it uh, because it's Cronenberg and and it's weird Cronenberg yeah it's it's that, definitely not it's a one time watch dead zone yeah. okay yeah <laughs> this is this is a little more crazy um, but mm-hmm. I think it's completely unique it's it's one of the coolest horror films ever made just concept wise right number 86 from dust till dawn 1996 tarantino rodriguez mashup widely considered to be one of the best films horror films from the 90s uh it's a very unique film because let's face it man it's uh it's a blend of genres it's a it's an action crime film for the first half of the film and it turns strictly into a uh, vampire film that you never uh, some, see that coming. Like if you nah. went into this film blind, <laughs> no. you would be, which I did when I seen it, um, and I was I didn't like it until the vampires showed up. But I was also like five. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's just it's just one of those cool, unique stories. You know, it's like it's like these Gecko Brothers who, by the way, have amazing dialogue. Amazing oh, dialogue. Yeah. Well, it's Quentin Tarantino, man. Tarantino's dialogue is amazing, which is crazy. Yeah, because that never happens, really. Well, besides Nightmare Five, <laughs> which could have happened. Could you imagine the dialogue in that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. you know, it went on. You know, two sequels, a TV show adaptation that's still going, I believe. You know, this is also the film from Dust Till Dawn, man, that really set like George Clooney into like stratosphere in the in the film. Mm-hmm in the film realm. Cause he was like, you know, he was strictly a TV star at the time, right? He was on ER and shit like that. He was before that was Roseanne and shit, but this was the film that really fucking bounced him into a different stratosphere. But, uh, who would have thought it would be this one? Yeah. We'll go figure, man. It's fucking weird. movie. It's great. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Number 85, already on 85 fellas. We have probably one of the most talked about horror films in today's, world and you'll understand in a second we yeah. have it from the year 1990 yes Jake it, loves I this mean, movie. And, and if you're counting this is the third stephen king adaptation yeah, already on this list 15 yeah 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 it is a film that i would have liked to see much lower on the list because uh how 
I just think that this film is so ingrained in pop culture and Pennywise as a character and a, 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 he's the scariest clown ever. And what are clowns known for being scary? Like everybody mm-hmm. has that fear of clowns. It is the classic. Why are they smiling? Like it's fake. Like there's something underneath. Like that's creepy. Like nobody should smile all the time. And you know, it's just ingrained in, in society as being a terrifying thing. And nobody, nobody has done it better than Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. That is something that will that still will go down as just terrifying for children, terrifying for anybody who saw it at a young age, terrifying for adults. I, I literally have heard people like flip out, like, uh-uh, I ain't watching that movie. You know, like, <laughs> like I remember... There's no fucking remember, TV movie. Yeah, like, <laughs> like they, they knew not to watch that movie. Like, they... They saw the cover and just was like, "Uh, uh-uh, we ain't renting that." You know, as a kid, oh, yeah, I kind of that. cover too. You know, yeah, and it's one of it's a hugely successful TV miniseries. Uh, it's one of Stephen King's most successful books, adapted really well. Uh, it's it's a movie that you know is perfect in its its time frame you know when it was i think it's a i think it's adapted okay i mean the book is definitely a lot more darker and violent i mean you got to remember this was made for tv so they didn't uh, incorporate all the visuals that you that you got in the book but that book was also a thousand pages and this is exactly but i mean this was also a four-hour movie too three Mm-hmm. Or three hours, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's it's long enough, but it's uh, not no, long it, it, to cover a thousand pages for sure. Yeah, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think what you know why this film is on the list for myself is because of Pennywise, and it's uh, mm-hmm. ingrained into pop culture. I mean, shit, dude. I mean, you see Pennywise everywhere. It's been parodied. I mean, this film's been parodied to death. Didn't they do it on The Simpsons? I don't know. Maybe they did. I don't know. I can't remember. But uh, if we were yeah, doing man, a hundred serious clown. films of all time. This would be low on the list. Uh Yeah. It's definitely one of the best clown films, you know, of all time, for sure. Oh, yeah. It definitely stands up there. There's no even debate on that. I I, I have to admit, though, I was fighting for this one not to be on the list. Remember? Because I kept saying, how the fuck does it fit on here? I'm like, Pennywise is the answer. It fits, yeah. Pennywise is the answer. Coming in at number 84, we are going straight across uh, i don't even want to say the direction straight from new zealand's dead alive from 1992 peter jackson's classic classic gore fest um you know this is jackson on the map man it really did man i mean this is the bad bad taste was this film that he did a few years before and stuff is super independent um if you know anything about New, new zealand filmmaking uh, and their government and stuff. Like, they have a really weird system over there. The government would fund these films, and they would only make so many. That's why there was not really a lot of films that came out of New Zealand for years and years. A lot of countries Peter... were like that. Yeah, yeah it's it's not seemed, to mention, Jackson... it just wasn't like that viable to make a movie. Like, the, it's, yeah, yeah. it's just, you know, didn't have the, the equipment and cast and, you know, just the means to make a movie. Mm-hmm. And it just blows my mind, though, because I've heard you know stories where you know the government and stuff they'll they'll give the nod to these films. Okay, we'll we'll allow we'll give you the funds to make this film. And I'm just wondering who gave the go ahead <laughs> after reading this script and going, "Wow, that third act is probably not going to be as gory as it reads." <laughs> you know, like, I think it's this... probably more gorier than what it reads. You know, I know, man. It's you probably just funny... turned it up to eleven in Spinal Tap terms. You know? Totally, this movie is an eleven. Like it's, when it's he a... fucking pulls out that. 
11. Mower, it's, it's an 11 and shit just hits the fan. <laughs> I was talking about that with my buddy the other day. I'm like, man, it must have been like hundreds of gallons of blood. This is ridiculous. But has yeah. the most but, gaggable yeah. scene in film history, yeah. in my opinion. It really, it really does. I don't even want to talk about it. It's disgusting. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why it's here, man. It's very influential, man. It's known as the goriest film of all time. I mean, the goriest you film got, of all you time. You gotta give it love I mean, for that. So many filmmakers cite this film. They cite the hell out of this film. And it's like Peter Jackson's dead alive. You know, I mean, I've, I've heard of filmmakers trying to outdo that scene, you know, directly. <laughs> you I'm kicking ass for the Lord. It's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I mean, it's so fun. It is, man. It, it's like a, it's a staple. It's probably one of the most known films out of New Zealand and stuff. And yeah, not my Peter Jackson. It's too it, bad it that Peter Jackson, Peter, just... it, you know, come on, Peter Jackson, man. He went on to do big things, <laughs> big things. Yeah, man. I know he went on to do the frighteners. So, yeah. <laughs> things, man. but, uh, yeah, man, dead alive. You can't, you can't deny it's, uh, it's place on the list, man. Which it, Eagle was big iconic. and he would come back and do a fucking other horror movie. Yeah. It's yeah, iconic. It stands the test of time too. I mean, even so, man, there's something about, new new zealand filmmaking where they have this type of comedy in their films you know what i'm talking about it's like all the films have the same feel to them it's like this really kind of strange and you could say people were emulating peter jackson doing that you could like you definitely could i mean when like i I said that while talking about housebound from a couple years ago i mean the comedy in that film it feels like you're watching a peter jackson film there's probably not one new zealand filmmaker who doesn't know peter jackson's work oh of course i mean he's pretty much probably god over there i mean especially now of his status too right yeah. but i mean you, you watching like um what was the film that came out last year uh what we do in the shadows yeah i mean <laughs> it's like the comedy is like straight it just has that new zealand flavor it's awesome it's just derived straight from peter jackson man it's totally awesome what's up 22 shots crew this is horophilia jason and I'm here to give you my congrats on reaching 100 friggin' episodes. Congrats to Moods, JP, Derek, and I can't forget the Jew Meister himself, Jeremy. Hell, I even I think uh, any guest host you've had or anyone who had any part to do with the podcast. Congratulations on on hitting 100 episodes. Now the uh, Horophilia Network has been around uh, for years now. And we've had probably over 50, a little bit more than 50 uh, podcasts on the network at uh, differing times. And only a handful of them have ever made it to the century mark. I can still remember the moment when uh, I was absolutely delighted when JP first told me they were going all in and joining the network. Uh, you know, he put faith in me and the network itself. You know, they were, of course, highly successful on their own. And all they've done since then is just share the loved and they help the other podcasts in the network get exposed to new listeners. And of course they shot right up to the top of the charts. Now even though I don't personally agree with all your ratings on films, you know, I do align myself more with JP it seems like. Uh, but all of your enthusiasm and the love for the genre, uh, easily shines through in what you do. Now of course we're celebrating hitting 100 individual episodes. But, you know, it's way more than that. It's countless hours of prep work, editing, literally months or probably years of your lives <laughs> you've dedicated to a hobby that doesn't make any money. Uh, but, you know, there is a lot of perks in podcasts, and you do build friendships. You have a fantastic group of listeners, awesome website, a great YouTube presence, and, of course, a very active, awesome Facebook group. 
Uh, you are a standard that other podcasts should look up to. That was all I got, Mac. So once again, congratulations, guys, and here's hoping you reach another 100. Number 83, The Lost Boys, 1987. Yeah, what can you be said about The Lost Boys? Three little words, man. Cry little sister. Yeah, <laughs> Move Cry on. little sister is definitely a huge point on The Lost Boys, you know. It's yep. it's a it's a song that you hear sampled all the time. People have like remade it and covered it. Uh, it's it's in rap songs, like multiple rap. I've heard multiple rap songs in my lifetime that sample <laughs> "Cry Little Sister," like five. Mm-hmm. You can't deny the Lost Boys as like a pop culture. It's like elevated to iconic status. This is probably one of the most popular and known vampire films out there. Yeah. Um. I mean, you can't deny this, man. I feel like everybody's seen it. Like, even non-horror fans, like, know The Lost Boys. Yeah, this is a great influence on the modern vampire film, too. Almost to the point where it, uh, it influenced, I would say, maybe Twilight bullshit and stuff. <laughs> I mean, people... I think, it, people... I think, like, the pretty vampire, it kind of carried that. Well, well people reference cool this to film... be a vampire, right? Near like, dark, Before I think it was always, like, cool. a painful thing where it's, like, depression yeah, yeah. and, like, th- this life sucks, but... I would totally join David's gang. Like, I'd be like, hell yeah, I want to be a vampire. Party but it's, all night. They're, they're kind of like this underground cool gang, you know? When did Near Dark come out? Same year, 87. Same year. Yeah. Man, that's crazy to think about. They're so similar, but they have such similar things going on. And Near Dark, besides the horror fans, gets shat on, but this one gets a lot of praise. It's an interesting thing to think about. You know, I mean, it's a lot of people cite this film as the direct influence on, you know, the the Twilight films and stuff. Like, yeah, this yeah. is the original pretty vampires and, you know, fuck the Lost Boys. I hear a lot of hate for this film these days. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's really crazy to me, but you can't deny its uh, influence is influence on, you know, today's vampire films. I mean, come on. This is everybody wants to make that next really cool vampire film. I mean, I guess Twilight's cool to some people. If you're 13 and a little girl. <laughs> well, Twilight does have a lot of shankle ankles, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. I've never seen any of the films. Me neither. But... I'm just guessing. <laughs> but yes, The Lost Boys, man. Classic everything, man. Classic everything. It's got classic characters, classic soundtrack. It's got a great look to it. It's just an all-around great film. It's shot well. 82. We're moving to some Frenchies. And you know me. I love my Frenchies. We have, in my opinion, the best French extreme film and that is inside from the year 2007. So this is a film that we argued about which French extreme films were we going to have on this list. And should we include any more French extreme films and where should they be located and this and that and that. I don't and think that. that was much of an argument, to be honest. Come on. Yeah, but I think a lot of them deserve to be on a list. But it was hard because you can't have all of them. And I don't think they all deserve to be on the list. But mm-hmm. I think out of all the conversations that we had when we were making the list, this one was one of the more in-depth and argumental between us three trying to decide which one of these should we have on the list. And I'm not saying that it's the only one on the list, but I'm saying where we should place them in order. And as I just said, this is my favorite French extreme movie, and you guys have different opinions but it still made it onto the list, and I think it deserves to be on the list for many reasons. Number one, of course, it's a fucking amazing movie. And two, of course, it's part of the Fab Five French extreme films that came out from 
the year 2003 until 2008, 9-ish. And, you know... It blew the it, fuck up in America. It yeah, blew up. And I, think, and I think it helped, uh, especially uh, Switchblade Romance, which is high tension. I just did the hipster term. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, you fucking hypocrite, man. <laughs> uh, it really brought torture porn into the mainstream in america with films that we'll talk about in a little bit but inside it's just an amazing fucking movie it's an amazing home invasion film it has the best effects in my opinion out of all five of the french extreme films and i think it's just the most enjoyable to watch i'd be curious to hear your guys opinions on this film as well i definitely hear a ton about inside and that was one of my arguments on why i thought that it deserve to be on the list is back in 2007 2008 you know when it came out on that dimension extreme line i remember the internet going crazy like people who made youtube videos were all talking about it uh it was a film that you know for some reason in my head i thought got pulled from walmart shelves i cannot find any information to back that argument so i don't know if it's actually true but uh in my head I remembered hearing that somewhere. That really it, blows my mind that that would actually be sold in a Walmart. I mean, just given the cover too. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty gory and stuff, so yeah. Yeah, which it was sold in Walmarts. I do remember It's crazy. That. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a film that I think a lot of people praise and love. A lot of people do cite it as their favorite of the uh, Fab Five. And it really did help uh, shed light on foreign film. You know, like in the indie circuit too and like in mainstream too, it was just – it was an all-around – Heavy hitter. Coming in at number 81 from 2002. this is going to be a good one. We have 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later is a huge film in the post-9-11 era. It really is. Oh, big time. The social commentary is super heavy, of course, with the military and stuff. Yeah, now it's a little more obvious. Like, now it's a little more... Like, you look at it and it's like, it it may not hold as much weight because we've seen it so many times after. But at the time, (laughs) at the time that this was released, I think a lot of people were kind of looking around like, what are we doing? You know, Mm -hmm. and I I feel like this film, um, if you watched it back in 2002, like I did, or 2003, uh, it it just definitely hit hard. It's Mm -hmm. depressing. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because it's Danny Boyle and it's like, he's not even fucking American, but he makes this doesn't even take place in America, but he makes this... No, it's in the UK, yeah. Yeah, he makes this movie that has commentary about a whole nother fucking country, but I, I I really enjoy this movie. I think it's one of my favorite horror films from the first half decade of the 2000s. I mean, there's not that many, but it's definitely in my top three probably favorite horror films of that time period, and I, I just like it because it's something different once again, and it's actually a really well-made at the same time gritty type of a horror film kind of found footage ish uh camera angles and stuff going on with it but you know it, it's a good movie i like it a lot it's sequel is good too but it's just one of those staple films man you know mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a little bit of a landmark film this one came out at a time period where horror was not really overly the greatest it was starting to get a little bit better mm-hmm. and this film comes out and it was just heavy heavy influential on so many films to follow after i mean this is a direct influence 
yeah. Dawn of the Dead. A lot of films take look at the success of this film and look at and looked how great the idea was, rolled with it, and you know, yeah, for dude, years Dawn and of years the Dead come, is like so similar. <laughs> it is very insane. very similar, exactly. Because I mean, the, that's probably where they got these really fucking, mm-hmm. you know, running zombies and shit we, like we that. We haven't seen them before this. We haven't seen this rage induced. Uh, we've seen rage viruses before, but not like yeah. this. This was different. Yeah. These fast cuts and this this like uh, primal animalistic uh look to the to the zombies and and the infected it was just something different that we saw mocked and mimicked over and over again after the release of this film heavy influence on the infection zombie subgenre heavy heavy influence number 80 the phantom <laughs> carriage from the year 1921 I know a lot of people haven't seen this one, but this is, it's one of those just classic, classic silent films that Jeremy actually introduced us to. Yes. My favorite, Um, favorite film ever, man. And then upon doing a lot of research on this film, it turns out that this one is insanely influential to a lot of really huge directors out there. And it's probably one of those films that was just so hard to see that you were a fan of film, like directors, like you might have the people that grew up as film fans might have saw it somehow, you know, and and that influenced them, but it's something that the general public didn't know about. It's now catching on, which is crazy I think, <laughs> to think that it's criterion, man. It's almost 100 years old. You know, and the crazy thing about this film is when you watch it, it it falls into the the cat or the so the criteria modern. of standing the test of time. This is so way ahead of it. It, it's so ahead of its time. Yeah. This film is so ahead of its time, and it, you can see the heavy influence it had on so many filmmakers after. I mean, like I said, Bergman and, of course, uh, um, Kubrick. Kubrick, too, Kubrick. in The Shining. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a, a scene, scene lifted from this film in The Shining. Literally lifted. And we, and we all know, like, The Shining is considered one of the best horror films of all time. Classic scenes. And the scene alone is super classic. Lifted right from this film. So there's so much heavy influence there. But the thing that really blows my mind is the storytelling in this film and the way it's done. And, For and the effects too. Jesus the effects Christ. used yeah, the in effects this film. Are great. Yeah. The effects are just Juxtap- mind blowing for the time. Yeah. Juxtaposition is freaking amazing. It looks yeah. like one of those films that was made in modern time and was like, we're going to make the, we're going to make a silent film in modern day and we're going to make it look all <laughs> old and stuff. Like yeah. when I, when I seen it for the first time, I was just like the number one thing I came away saying was, was like this is not a good silent film this is not a good 1920s film this is a good film 100 yeah. it stands the test of time today it's yep. still good and people can watch it today if you can watch a silent film you can watch it today and be like damn that's a good story that's a good film and it that's has one horror. of the meanest characters fucking ever ever like he's so the main character which is played by victor strohstrom who's the director which is kind of funny but uh he's just a mean son of a bitch and for 1921 it's just insane because he does some pretty nasty things to people and i think that's the one thing that i get from this movie is (laughs) is, is his character because he's just a bitch the definition Mm -hmm. of a bitch i love this movie you know i would probably say this is probably the highest on the list with like pretty much the highest rating I mean, we, me and you, Jeremy, have a tens, and uh, JP, would you rate this film nine and a half? Nine point five. So, I mean, this is almost a perfect thirty to sit at number eighty. Yeah, it's a 10 so, for me, for sure. Yeah. People are probably asking themselves why this one is so high on the list. Criteria. And then there might be other people that are asking why it's on the list at all because nobody really knows it. You know. That's and, why it's so high on the list is because it hasn't been seen by a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's precisely why, and that's referring back to the criteria. 
this is a great example. <laughs> if we were just picking greatest films of all time, this might be very, very low on the list. Number 79. And before I do that, I just want to say <laughs> we have Paranormal Activity from the year 2007. Drop the gloves, boys. Let's do this. <laughs> Well, like I, said, like I said off the top of the show, I said there was a couple films in here I don't really care for. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen. I this don't film care for pretty, this movie, but you have to think pretty, about pretty much as it came it. out. But that's the thing, man. You know, putting all biases aside, um, Paranormal Activity is just—it's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. It really is, man. This, this movie had what eleven thousand dollar budget. It grossed one hundred ninety-four million. Jumpstarted Blumhouse. This one just has so much impact on the horror genre in general, mainstream. Um, it's just etched in pop culture. It's, it's this it's generation's been, it's parodied to death. It's one of the most popular films, regardless of you like it or not. It's there. It has all the elements. It fits the criteria 100%. Um, and it's, an, it's a perfect example of a film that's loved by lots of people and hated by others, just like Halloween Remake. It's very, very in that same kind of category. Um, you know, I think G- uh, JP once said, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's this generation's Blair Witch. I said that. Oh, say you. Okay. It's good. It, it, that, that's a good, um, that's a good point. And I it it has that, that same so. kind of marketing and promotion that Blair Witch had back in 99. Yeah, that it, it just very similar, very similar. And you yeah. wouldn't expect that somebody would be able to take that model, kind of spin it a little bit and do it again, because that model we thought was a one time thing. You can't do that model again, but and only but eight years some, later too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they had some very creative marketing for this film. I remember yeah. it hit pirate sites well before it was released wide, and I remember the buzz from the pirate sites. I remember being at a party and drinking beer, and this girl was like, "Oh, you like horror films? Have you seen Paranormal Activity?" And I was like, "I you think, I, think I heard of that." And they were like. <laughs> She was just tripping, you know, she's kind of tipsy and stuff, and she's just, like, tripping, like, Dwar, tell him, tell him how scary it was, tell him how freaked out I was, and I was just like, what the hell is this movie, you know? And 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 there was a lot of people in the mainstream, you know, the, the, the regular population, the not-horror population, that were genuinely terrified by this movie. And I think that that alone makes it eligible for this list. I find it scary. I like the movie. I think that people were just so resistant of this style of film at the time. Found footage was very hated back then. It's grown to be accepted and loved because of the found footage films that came after that were very successful and good movies. But this is really the one that kicked that off. I know Blair, people credit Blair Witch. It's not Blair Witch. It Blair Witch just shown that it was possible to do something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Again, you know, Campbell Holocaust obviously beforehand, but... Uh, Paranormal Activity hit a grand slam with this thing, this found footage concept, and everybody was like, oh, this is cheap. You can make a movie for $11,000 and have it gross $194 million? Well, I think the key there, man, is is definitely the marketing yeah. explanation for this film. It had a great uh, marketing um, idea, and they sent it, it showed, man. They different to each theater trying to get extra people to go see it multiple times to see I what still the think that's one of the was. that's one of the greatest things I've ever heard that's yeah. like absolutely truly amazing because and it was smart too because they didn't want to just have the one and then people talk about it and stuff so you know you send it out to different mall yeah, you didn't when, know what you're when, 
Well, it, it's brilliant. Well, whenever you're talking to somebody and you talk to them about the movie and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, what happened? And you're like, that's not what I seen. And they're like, no, no, yeah, I seen the she slit her throat. And I was like, I was like, what the hell? I was like, that, yeah, yeah. I was like, what's going on here? And then you find out there's other endings and you're like, holy crap, I need to see this again. I need to see that that version. That version sound cooler. You know, that that's a great that, there was so much stuff with this film that that a lot of people are just starting to appreciate now. I noticed it while it was happening. And I actually do think it's a good movie. And I think that you guys will too upon rewatch. I, you know, the funny thing is, man, I was a fan, like, I've always liked found footage films and stuff, and I was a fan of it, and Paranormal came out. I, I just, I think it's the thing the that hype. bugged me. It's the hype, man. It wasn't so much, well, I'm, when the film first came out, I mean, obviously I knew and I'd heard yeah. lots of people talk about it. There was a little bit of hype, oh, not a little bit, there was a lot of hype between uh, Paranormal Especially activity. Especially by the time you got in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was 2016 by then. Yeah, I, I just saw it actually six months ago. Okay. I just got here. <laughs> and uh, But um, I don't know, man. Like I said, it wasn't the found footage aspect of it. I think I was a little bit I, – I could have been persuaded by the hype machine a little bit when I watched it. But there was a lot – I think there was the abundance of jump scares and shit. I know it sounds cheap to say that, but it was bugging – there were certain things that were bugging me while I was watching There's the not film. Not a lot at all. And I, but I can't remember. It's been so long. Like I've seen this film pretty much when it came right, out. So yeah. it's been pretty much ten years. So my mind's a little bit foggy. I don't even but think there is any coming in at number seventy-eight from two thousand and seven. Trick or treat? Yes. Why is it on the list? It's a modern classic. It really is. Simply, simply, man. I mean, for years and years and years. What were the go-to Halloween films that you would watch? Halloween, Night of the Demons, Night of the Demons. Um, I I mean, no, people would always watch. Yeah, like those type of films. All of a sudden, this little indie film, this little low-budget film, Trick or Treat, comes out and just changed the game and the way people perceived Halloween films. It was like it became that go-to film, Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the unique storytelling in this film. Uh, the mash it's not your typical anthology you know it's a, it's a mashup of stories and it's told from different perspectives and time periods and stuff and i think that's what separates this one it's done almost perfect and plus it created another horror icon in sam yeah and um, had and sam he- gotten more sequels he'd be right up there with everybody else and we still see him today up there we've with said that Jason many many times Freddy and, and stuff like yep. that but but he really didn't get the 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 franchise treatment that he deserved now no. trick or treat has went on i'm so happy that this happened but the amount of horror fans that back this film and mm-hmm. are, accepted it along with halloween as the staple halloween film to watch during halloween on halloween during october yep. it, it's incredible and there's so many horror fans that cite this one like yeah i watched this one now this one is the one I watch. I've watched Halloween my whole life, but this is the one I watch now, including myself. And it's yep. it's because it captures that feel better than any other film. And Halloween captures that feel too. And Halloween sequels capture that feel. But Trick or Treat has like took Halloween, bottled it, and gave it to us. And yep. it's like wow. That's what I, I mean. I'm not. I'm not saying that you know Carpenter's Halloween doesn't have the replay value. Of course it does. It's an amazing film every time I watch it. But this one has so much replay value for me because of the construction of the film. 
the way the story is told and the way it unfolds and stuff. I love that because for somebody like me that, you know, probably drinks too much and kills way too many brain cells, I tend to forget things from time to time. Um, but when I watch it, like I always seem to notice new things and stuff. And I love that about the film. It's this replay value. It's just in an all time high. And let's face it, man, in the 2000s, since the new millennium have started, how many horror icons have been created? Two? Yeah. You know, I mean, Sam is one of one. one, Sam might be one of two. Sam and Jigsaw. Exactly. And that's that's my point. And that's why another reason why this film sticks out. He did it with one film. Ingrained in pop culture. It's ingrained in pop culture. I mean, Funkos, man. I mean, they're making toys of Sam. Right there, it's in the same league as, well, not in the same league, but it's in the same status realm as, you know, Friday the 13th and stuff. It has this character, this recognizable character that we want to love and we want to relate to as horror fans. That's Mm -hmm. Sam. Number 77, Martyrs 2008. I think this is the best French extreme film. Mm -hmm. The reason why it's a little bit higher than inside. I I personally believe it is the best. (laughs) You fucked it up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh martyrs yeah I, I love this movie uh if God damn it. if you ever heard <laughs> our review of it on uh disturbing cinema episode one like we tackle this film completely there's so much value to this movie there's so Might much even inside be- of it the best review we've ever done this one was one of the great it's because we could focus on the review the whole show and we really broke this one down i think it's truly a masterpiece yeah it's not because of that cocksucker kyle anyway (laughs) no i i truly think this one is an absolute modern day masterpiece it's not it's not i'm talking masterpiece this film just hits you on so many different levels it starts out as one thing and it ends at another it's got so much subtext to it and just Oh, just even ambiguity. That actually does make sense, though, if you really break it down. But mm-hmm. it's um, I mean, this one even spawned an American remake. You know, it, that's how good and popular this film was, like most of the Fab Five films, really. I mean, I think inside getting remake. Too, yeah. That's that's right. Martyrs actually just beat it to the punch. But but this one solely because it's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, it's definitely more subtexty out of all. The Fab Five, I agree in the sense that it should be higher than Inside just because of the different different traits of the criteria that we have laid out. And Lower. it's it's an amazing film. It's an amazing movie. <laughs> you just did it too. Um, you know, as oh, hardcore as this you. film, and <laughs> you know, an asshole douchebag. As 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 you know, as hardcore as this film is perceived by fans and stuff, I think that fuck you, ulti- <laughs> Ultimately, ultimately, it has a fuckload of replay value. I've watched this film lots of times, and like, there's something so polarizing about this film. It sucks you in, and you just—it's so incredible. Number seventy-six from the year nineteen eighty-one. We have the Beyond. <laughs> Ah, yes, The Beyond, another Lucio Fulci gore classic, and my favorite Lucio Fulci film. Yeah, man, The Beyond, it's, again, it's just like City of the Living Dead, Gates of Hell, however you want to say it. Um, It's just got a really unique blend of storytelling. Gore effects are absolutely outstanding in this film. Um, And personally, I think it's, the reason why this film sticks out so much is its atmospheric ability to just drive it's like a major driving force in this film and it has one of the most amazing endings of all time i think the ending to me is just like it's on a different level i think it's just it's something that sticks out and you always hear fans and people talk about the end of the beyond it's so damn cool um it's very very critically acclaimed i I don't really hear a lot of people say i don't really care for the beyond man you know it's not that but you know it's um 
it's here. It's it's in its place because it is one of the most popular Italian horror films uh, of all time. Very, very influential. Again, like all of Fulci's films, really. I mean, he's such an influential director because he wasn't afraid to, you know, break the bar and, uh, and and do what he really wanted to. That's what I love about these films. You know, it's like Fulci did what the hell he wanted to do. He made the goriest shit ever. And it was, it was just awesome. It really you know, with an, that nightmare logic. Yeah, I love the oh. cinematography in this movie. Yeah. Really great. And, it's you know, amazing. everything, man. The amazing cinematography to the awesome driving force soundtrack. The soundtrack, the music is so beautiful, too, when you listen to it. It's like one of those soundtracks you can pop in and just listen to. It's just so it's that, awesome. It's just that shot of the main character and the dog sitting on the fucking highway. It's so... Yep. so legendary and so yep. that's the one shot that's etched into my mind whenever i think about that film it's all this all the cinematography is epic in that movie in 75 moods from 1981 we have the howling yeah yeah jeremy this this is definitely one of the films that uh he has a hard time <laughs> with in yeah. general he just has a hard time with yeah yeah it's my personal favorite werewolf film. It's not the reason why it's on the list. I think it is definitely one of the front runners as being one of the best werewolf films of all time. I, I agree. It did, it did spawn an entire franchise, an eight <laughs> film franchise, which I might add is quite possibly the worst horror franchise of all time. No, yep. wait till the witchcraft show. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, that's pretty much the only series I've never seen, but let, let's face it. We reviewed the entire Halloween franchise. It's Episode horrible. 72 episode 72 but the howling it sticks out for a lot of reasons man it's um widely considered to be one of the best werewolf films it has a great transformation scene it's always up against american werewolf in london for the greatest thing american always seems to win that battle and stuff but personally i think the howling is a better film um and uh it's just it's got an iconic value to it you know the brand of the film it's the howling it's got it had great poster art and stuff it's just it's it's one of those films that everyone just knows it's ingrained in in even in pop culture for sure i mean the howling is not one of those indie unknown obscure type films it's everyone knows about this film i just think it's in my mind i I don't like it as much as everybody else i think i'm just biased in that sense but i do see why it's on the list and it's definitely the one film where you say werewolf from 1980s and people talk about it it's one of it's one of the best werewolf films of all time. Number seventy four, Reanimator, nineteen eighty five. I think people kind of overlook Reanimator as for what it is. You know, Reanimator was one of those films for better or for worse. You know, as much as people want to either like or hate or whatever with the horror comedies, but Reanimator was one of those films in nineteen eighty five. Was one of those three or four films from that year that kind of helped bring this into like pop culture and you know into the more Kind of cre- not really create the horror comedy, but it helped popularize it and stuff. Reanimator is in- totally ingrained in pop culture, big time. I mean, this film's been referenced a million, million times. It's a great ap- adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, it's fucking awesome. It's an iconic film. It has one of the most iconic characters. Um, I mean, it, it's got one of the most iconic scenes, too, with the head. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, man. I mean, this thing has been talked about forever. It's highly... It's a highly critically acclaimed film from horror fans in general. I'm not sh- so sure how it did, like, you know, commercially wise, but uh, I mean, among us, it's it's an essential film. It's a Charlie Band movie, isn't it? It is. It's a, yeah, it's a Empire. production. Charlie Band, good old friend Charlie Band. Haven't said that in a while. <laughs> yeah, I really don't have too much to say on Reanimator. I mean, it's good. Adam West. It's not Adam West. That's his name, right? 
What's the main character's name? Hubert West. Almost fucking close. This not Batman. Anyway, yeah, he's a fucking. <laughs> what did you call him at first? Adam West. Adam Batman. West. Batman. <laughs> man. Fucking Batman. <laughs> fucking Batman. Yeah, dude. I mean, personally, I think this is. I've always said this before too. I think that Jeffrey Combs' performance in this film is one of the best. I mean, from the '80s alone. His performance is awesome as Herbert West. It's so mesmerizing, man. He's just so fucking good in this role. And it's what sticks out. It really does. Hello, everyone. This is Jerry from Kill the Cast and also from Married with Children podcast, where I actually work with JP. Um, I just wanted to say congratulations on 100 episodes. That is a lot. That is honestly way too much. Y'all need to chill out. I'm so glad it's taking y'all like six months to get a new episode out but i quickly just wanted to say um one of my favorite episodes from y'all was when y'all covered the hatchet trilogy not only did y'all have like great opinions obviously because you do a podcast and that's what makes you good but you hit us with some facts and stories from like the commentary tracks from searching the internet from all this stuff to be able to bring not only your brand of humor um in your opinion, but to give us background information like that, that is what separates y'all from tons of other podcasts because you can so successfully blend those three things. So shot moods, keep on going. I can't wait to see what you do for episode 200. And, um, I am really looking forward to this episode 100 and I'm looking forward to the future of 22 Shots of Moods and Horror. And hopefully soon I won't actually have to take a shot to get in the mood to listen to your horror. Getting into some a film that blew my mo fucking mind when I saw this shit back in 2005. And it's Eli Ross Hostel from the year 2005, like I just said. Number 73. I, like I just said, this movie blew my 12-year-old mind when I fucking saw this shit. Yes, me and my grandma got in the mofo car, and I sat and I watched this shit when I was 12 years old. And that movie, I still even think today, has the most nudity, the most titties I've ever seen in a mainstream film in any genre. And, of course, it brought torture porn into the mainstream. When people say torture porn... This is the one movie that people instantly think about. You know, Saw, it, it is. I think that's where the term actually derives from. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think people were using film. the term torture porn before Hostel. Yeah. Even though there was, there was, you know, there had been films like this before, obviously. Yeah. But this is the one that, you know, definitely put it on the mainstream and coined the term torture porn. <laughs> which yeah. and that's, I'll, I'll admit I'm not a fan of. I, I yeah, can't stand yeah. the term torture porn. But, but you have it, to, it did, it you did have what to, it did. But you have to think about the influence on that term that term was fucking everywhere back in like 2005 six seven whatever five years fucking torture porn talk especially critics fucking critics torture porn this torture porn that you know so you had to have it on the list you know mainly based off that yeah hostile when it came out it was it was definitely hated upon by mainstream outlets like people were sickened by the fact that Outrage. this is what americans Outrage. are watching this is this yep. is this is you know what represents people's thoughts and and they were sickened by it. they were completely uncomfortable 
with mm-hmm. the fact that people were enjoying movies like this <laughs> at a mainstream sort of way. Yeah. You know, it grossed $81 million on a $4.6 million budget. And, you know, to see a film that was this hardcore be that successful, people couldn't handle it. And they did whatever they could to, you know, bash it and, you know, bring it down and it almost insult you if you were a fan of it. Yeah. Uh, and and that that extends to horror fans as well. I mentioned this before, but during that 2005 to 2007 era, people were very very angry at at horror films. Like horror fans were rebelling. They were mm-hmm. wanting the the not realistic violence, the the more slasher era where it's like fun and campy. And when they see this hardcore, uh, realistic torture type violence, they were just very angry and resi- resistant to it. Uh, the now aftermath it's become of nine eleven. Yes, yes, absolutely. absolutely. And and the but, hatred for Bush, I think too, mm-hmm. man. I think there was just a lot of angry people and you know everything to do politics and stuff. And this is how, in my opinion, they took out aggressions making films like this. I do think no, it's but- quite. In- I do think it's quite interesting that a lot of people were judging Americans on, holy fuck, man, they're watching this torture porn shit and stuff like that. I mean, you got to remember, this film was uh, was kind of derived from the myth the myth of this actually happening in Eastern Europe at the time, or not at the time, but before. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. this was based off of real stories and stuff like that. This was not an American idea. This comes from Eastern Europe, and people are shitting on Americans and North Americans for watching this garbage. It's like, this shit was well, happening wait. in your fucking backyard. But if I think this film came out in 2017 in the mainstream, it would cause the same stir that it did back in 2006. I really, really do think that we have not seen a hardcore movie like that. The Devil's Rejects, okay, fine. But we have not seen a hardcore film like this since hostel came out i cannot think of one mainstream film that was in the mainstream yeah in the mainstream that pushed the boundaries like this film did and i still think even if today this movie came out it would still get shit yeah i i really really do think it would and and it really made eli roth like a superstar this is what he's known for and 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 if you look at this film and what came afterwards hostel 2 right you know until recent memory but eli roth was up there talked about in the same line as tarantino and stuff at, at a certain point which is just crazy to think but it, it, it launched eli roth for some reason into superstar and people know his name even even people in the industry know who eli roth only oh, just shot the death wish remake here in chicago a few months ago it's shot yeah it's shot it's mm-hmm. done you know it was shot here for like a few months but it has this like insane car scene that took like a week and a half to shoot but yeah it's done him and bruce willis (laughs) so it should be interesting but yeah eli roth definitely an interesting dude hostile it's a it's a legendary film especially modern it's a it's a it's an important movie and i'm happy and and it is good we didn't even mention that like hostile is a great movie important film it is an important film, and I agree with that. I mean, like it or not, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that don't like Hostel for various reasons. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't like Hostel because it was mainstream. I think if Hostel was more of an underground indie film, I think it would have a lot more of probably a better rapport within the community. So I find that it's one of those films that's divided like a like a Rob Zombie film sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I personally, I think it's I think it's an, an essential uh, part of, you know, especially the 2000s 
Oh yeah. Uh, or, you know, it, it's, it's essential and it's, you know, it's, it's a really, and it's a good film. It's definitely yep. a good film. So coming in at 72. Oh, what a perfect film for you moods. 1985. We were just there with fright nights. Yes. Yeah. Now I think JP fought tooth and nail to have this one off the list. Um, I mean, really fright night to me again is, you know, going back to the whole, um, horror comedy thing and kind of, breaking that out of the woodworks this was another film that helped bring that subgenre out in the 80s and stuff i mean right up to 1985 i mean let's face it there was a lot of ser- like more serious right? a lot of slasher films that's pretty much what it was and stuff uh the horror genre needed a change they kind of went to you know leading towards a little bit of comedy and stuff reanimator fright night and this is one that came out of that period very, very popular film. I don't know if it was overly critically acclaimed by actual critics at the time, but it's, you know, within the fan base, super cl- critically acclaimed. I think this is one of the more popular vampire films of, you know, the last 30, 40 years. I mean, the vampire genre has been stale from here and there and stuff, but, uh, you know, this one definitely has iconic status. I mean, they just did a fantastic documentary. <laughs> I thought um, you were so- going to say a fantastic remake. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, no you're so cool, Brewster. I mean, this documentary just came out. You're so cool, Brewster, on the Friday. It's it's really really f- informative and fantastic and stuff. But it's an iconic film. I mean, and one thing that re- is cool about this film, it has like iconic poster. I don't care what anyone says, man. That shit is amazing. I love that stuff. It sold the film so well. I mean, that's what why a lot of people watch the film. I've talked to that. I'm I've also talked to people why that's the reason why they didn't watch the film too dave z um but uh yeah fright night is a movie that i I didn't fight for it to be off the list so much as just ranking wise where it where it ended up i understand that it that it is kind of iconic i did i i guess i personally just didn't ever see the level of fandom that the film has but what mm-hmm. kind of changed my mind was when Moods did bring up the the documentary because I do think that any horror film that has a feature length documentary, you know, created about it is is pretty relevant. Number seventy one, Pet Cemetery, nineteen eighty nine. Ooh, a movie that JP spread his Mexican butthole for just like a lot of other films. And if you are keeping count, this is what the fourth Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> I, I'm glad you are keeping count because I am not. But I think so. Again, with a film that has a documentary uh, that's being released or actually has been released now, which I've seen, it's a good documentary uh, called Unearthed and Untold the Path to Pet Cemetery or something along those lines. I did fight for this film to be on the list because to me, this is a film that I consider the film that scared me the most at a certain point. I don't find it the scariest film. But it gave me, it's Mm -hmm. like one of the only films that I ever had a nightmare about. And it's because of the Zelda scene. Uh, It's a scene that comes completely out of nowhere. It doesn't have any specific reason for being in the film in terms of narrative points. Like it's, it's a flashback. It, It doesn't really need to be, it doesn't have much to offer for the film other than just being scary as hell. Uh, It was a, a technique using a male to play a female that I think is really effective and other filmmakers like Adam Green have consciously made the decision to do that as well in order to get that similar effect. Uh, it is parodied by shows like South Park, which you you guys heard us mention that on the show. So it is in pop culture. Uh, dead is better. Very iconic line. Sometimes that is better. 
very quotable film. <clears throat> and in my opinion, it has the most heartbreaking <clears throat> moment in any horror film other than The Mist. Uh, and it is it is a key moment in this film, and I, it just is earth-shattering. And that's the word that I always describe when, when I say, put yourself in that position uh, of um, the Creed family. And, man, it's just, it's just brutal. And it's just a great concept. It teaches you about life and death and loss and not being able to deal with loss. There's so much, you know, under symbolism and, and undertones in this film that, that speak to us as humans. I, I love Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. I mean, as humans, we we never want to accept death, right? Especially when it happens to a loved one and even worse, a child, Yeah. right? And I mean, if you were ever to lose someone like that in your life, you know, your your child or something like that, what would your initial reaction be if you could possibly do it? Yeah. Would be would to bring be them one? back. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like a natural reaction. And I think that, you know, you bring up a really good point. It's got me thinking and <clears throat> changed my mind on it. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Nice, nice. Yeah. Let's move on to number seventeen. Ooh, this should be fun. Another film from the year two thousand and five, and it is Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects. Ooh, boy. I think JP. What do you think about? I think it's the. I think it's the best sequel of all time, and I Mm. also think that it solidified Rob Zombie as a filmmaker and developed his style tremendously from what we've seen in house of a thousand corpses, which I know Jeremy is a huge fan of and he said, calls it a masterpiece, but this is the masterpiece. This is the film that proved to everybody that Rob Zombie has chops and even critically, it seemed to be praised a little bit. Why Um, can they both be masterpieces? Well, they can both be masterpieces, but they're both not masterpieces. <laughs> but you just said this one was a masterpiece. Yes, one of them is a masterpiece. Both can be masterpieces, but one now, is not. Now, oh, come on, Jeremy. You now know this is gonna, on. This House. is going to get cut to shit. I know it's, but I just want to say, if you take away the ending from House of a Thousand, would they both be masterpieces? No. Mm, I don't. I think you're wrong. <laughs> uh, Devil's Rejects is a dramatic film. It it makes you understand and connect with the bad guys among the level of the great films that have done that, uh, mm-hmm. which is hard. You know, Norman Bates is one that I I think of right away. Uh, the Firefly Clan in the first film, there's nothing likable about him. Nothing, and in the second film you look at it and you're like, how am I liking this dynamic with this family? You mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And it has such hardcore, brutal moments for a mainstream oh, yeah. film. It's, like, you know, up there with Hostel, you yeah. know, you mentioned it. it. It has these moments. They're just like, I cannot believe I'm seeing this in the, in the theater. And when I, when it came out, it was like the first like dose of hardcoreness that I ever seen. And mm-hmm. it has, tons of qualities it is a beautifully shot film from the very opening with the freeze frames when they're running through the thing uh the music the characters these characters are fully fleshed out when they were just scratched upon in the original film house of a thousand corpses uh they're fully fleshed out to more than just killers now they are people and it's it's a film that should get massive amounts of love i agree but 
it's interesting to now that you were talking about it, and I'm thinking about House of a Thousand in this movie. They're two totally different looking totally movies. Different. House of a Thousand is a very stylized, neon, bright, beautiful looking movie. That movie is really a beautiful looking movie. And this movie is a very light, sunwise light, very light dirty gritty it's also because it's it's also because of the location though too Mm. i mean he was he was stylizing a house differently because it was more set in one spot in one setting the one thing that i love about this movie is the ending and i've talked about before on the facebook page when i made that post talking about favorite endings this movie made Freebird for me more than Freebird made Freebird because whenever i think of Freebird now i just think about the ending of this movie and it just makes you feel for these horrible, horrible, horrible people. But it makes you feel for them in a way that I think is just uh, – it's such it's an amazing – It's crazy that that is a sad ending. ending, right? Yeah. It's Yeah, because these are characters that we should not that. be liking. And yeah, we should not be liking these characters. All. You want to yeah. smack yourself. You're like, what the hell is wrong with you, dude? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. It's crazy. I, I Devil's Rejects is – this was my favorite film of that era. The 2000 to 2010, I mentioned earlier that some something was my second favorite film. This is the favorite of mine. One thing I love about this film, though, and it, it does make complete sense that Rob Zombie would incorporate such an amazing soundtrack being a musician himself. But the uses of music in this film and the cues in this, it, it's like second to none. Yeah. He picked an amazing soundtrack and like, you know, everything has a purpose to it, you know, and it, it fits so well. It is one of the greatest sequels. Of yeah. all time. Yeah, yeah. Rob Zombie, man. He's the shit. Exactly. He's the shit. Coming in at number 69. A porcupine. From the year of my birth, 1980, we have <laughs> The Changeling. Now, yes. Moods, this is, this is another one of your movies that you were really hype about on the list. <laughs> yeah, man. The Changeling is, well, to me, I mean, it has a a little bit of a different uh, <laughs> meaning to, you know, it does because it's no, no, like, I'm thinking what my next one's going to be. It's another a, it's, fucking Italian movie. <laughs> it's a Canadian classic. And, you know, this yeah. is one of those uh, kind of modern. Um, it's a modern ghost tale, essentially what it is. And it's just one of the best. It's one of the best. This movie has been cited and used as a pure reference for so many films after it, even though it came out in 1980. So many people have taken this idea and tried to do what they did. This this movie was done legitimately scary. You know, it's awesome. Um, plus, you know, I mean, Canadian cinema and stuff, this shit won a lot of awards and stuff. And it's just it's just ingrained in, in film history as one of the best ghostlies, you know, especially in the modern times. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, man. Ghost films over time are completely hit and miss. There's lots of bad ones. There's lots of good ones, but there's, there's not a whole lot of great ones. Mm-hmm. And the changeling is definitely a great ghost film. I don't care what anyone says. And that's why it has a place on here. I think it's, it's truly a frightening film. Number 68 day of the dead. 1985. Yeah. What's going on? My name's Edgar. I'm from Los Angeles going on moves jp and here's my pick for the greatest horror movie of all time in my humble opinion i picked george a romero's day of the dead listen guys this is in my opinion not only is it george romero's best of his original zombie trilogy 
but it's his best movie, period. And it is the greatest horror movie on top of all, all of that. I love everything about this fucking movie. Everything from the story, the dialogue, the acting, the, you know, the, the score, everything. I can't, I can't even nitpick one thing that I don't like about this fucking movie. I saw, I had the pleasure of seeing it back in the day, back in, what was it, 1985? In theaters? Dude, I have literally seen this movie, I, I would say close to 3,000 times. Anyways, Guys, if you if you if, if you rate this movie at least an eight and or a nine, I would suggest you go out and buy the book, The Making of George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. You learn so much about this movie, dude. It's really good. Anyways, there it is, guys. And as always, ooh, Mr. Romero making his first appearance. Day of the Dead is <laughs> yeah. it's my favorite I, zombie film or second favorite. You know, it goes back and forth with the Turn of the Living Dead. Um, I personally just love the social commentary in there. This is this is another one that we mentioned in 2003, 2002, excuse me, that 28 Days Later uh, hammered in that military versus human type thing, but it was done mm-hmm. way back in 1985 yeah. uh, with day of the dead in terms of zombie films and it has some of the most iconic characters and zombies in zombie film history uh, mm-hmm. i love bob and that's another thing on paper if you explain this to me and oh like the zombies are going to use guns and they're going to learn they're going to be smart and they're going to be like learning things i would have been like that sounds terrible but george <laughs> romero did it did it did it <laughs> did it so fine tooth like perfectly you know just just combed it out perfect to where it was so subtle and it made sense to the story on why mm. this is <clears throat> happening and mm-hmm. you know the reasons it, i i just think that this film is crafted so brilliantly uh by george the setting claustrophobic as all hell uh this is one of those films that i think m- might not have the influence it might not have the uh, other, you know, box office and, and things like that, but it is just so good. It's a ten out of ten to me. I've given it a ten out of ten. Yeah, man. It, you know, it's another uh, George Romero masterpiece where you know he doesn't have to focus on the outside world and you know the, the typical zombie films where they focus on you know fighting the zombies and things like that you know the social commentary in here is that they're simply trying to change the world you know they're trying to make things better by you know bub With is two the, different uh, is, ideas on how to do it that's the thing and bub is a test test subject and things like that and that that's an amazing approach to a film because it allows you to explore so many different type of characters in this you have the doctor you have bub you have you know, Rhodes and you got Steel and you got all these type of clashing characters, you know, half these people that don't really give a flying fuck what they're doing. They're just worried about their personal sur- survival and gain. And you have these people that legitimately want to, you know, kind of focus on hey, if we can make these zombies smart, uh, we might be able to survive this and things. And that that contrast is so fucking beautiful. It's filled with subtext and uh uh, it's just it's an iconic film it, the characters are so amazing man yeah. Joe Plano as Rhodes is probably the biggest dick character ever yeah, yeah. you cannot 
he's just after watching this film, he's etched in your mind. It's and, the biggest and, dick and that's ever. What's so Amazing. interesting about Rhodes is that there are many people that look at him and don't think he's that much of a dick, but actually agree with everything that he's saying. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so there is it, that it, it, level there. There's... It, it depends on what side of the spectrum you're on. Are you with him that they don't really give a fuck? Because, I mean, definitely there's going to be a lot of people that are going to side with him and say, you know, this is kind of a lost cause. We're spending all this time and energy on trying to train these zombies to be a little more human-like. Or should we just say fuck that and be like him and, you know, let's just – it's all survival. Stop wasting your time with this bullshit. I mean, there's obviously people that are going to be on opposite set, uh, you know, ends of the spectrum. But where do you fall in? You know, that's what makes this film interesting. I can see it from both vantage points. You know, it does make sense. You know, in the long run, if you're not a patient person trying to train zombies and change things like that, it's, it might be a little bit too much or you just grab a gun and fucking fight for survival. The contrast nobody, is beautiful. Nobody does commentary like Romero. And I no. still think that that if there's one filmmaker that you think about who does commentary better than anybody it's Romero, and I think it's just because of these three movies. Three movies cemented him as one of the best commentary director ever, and this is crazy to think that it, all it took was three films, but when I think about filmmaker, horror filmmakers that make a straight and clear jab at society, it's Romero. In different crazy. decades. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. to think about that, but it's true. Yeah, that, That's the beauty of this original trilogy, the the dead trilogy is that the three films do come in three different decades 60s 70s and 80s so you get this different perspective of those eras and it just it works so beautifully it's why it's like the perfect trilogy it's the best trilogy out out there yet again another motherfucking italian stallion this time from the year 1975 and it's argento's deep red yeah not my favorite giallo from argento but definitely my second favorite I personally think this is Argento's best film. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people throw out the arguments, Suspiria, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I personally think that Deep Red is just, it's one of the all-time best giallos. Yeah. Um, it's its probably one of the most popular ones, too. But its it's really just a work of art. The storytelling in this film... The amazing kills, just the ability to do what he does within these these mysteries is just phenomenal. It's got great mm-hmm. characters, uh, great soundtrack. I mean, <laughs> everything comes together in this one. The Goblin soundtrack is just second to none, but yep. it's more about the ability to tell the story the way he does. He keeps the mystery so hidden in this one. It's just like, it's so mm-hmm. cool how he incorporates I think he incorporates the the, the characters and it's just the, it's so beautiful, man. I think we, the way that the reveal is done is really really smart. If you watch it a second time and you know what's going on, it's really really clear cut what is going on. If you pay attention to it, if you know what's really going on, that's what I love about this movie. That I think I think it's it, easier said than done though because when mm-hmm. you watch these type of films, like when I watch Giallo's and I've seen a shitload of them, I've seen Giallo's where I'm like I've called shit right from the start. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's really really obvious. But when I watched Deep, when I you know when I first seen Deep Red, I was like, fuck, I I'm not sure where this is gonna go, kind of thing. And that's the sign of a really good Giallo if it has you questioning things and but stuff. But if you go back and you watch with the reveal and you watch mm-hmm. back when the reveal happened, it actually happened. Like you could actually see it. In the yeah, film. yeah, I, I, I get what cool. you're saying. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's, for sure. I like Bird with the Crystal Plumage the best. I'm probably the only one who's going to say that. But Bird is my favorite Argento Giallo film. But Deep Red is definitely my second favorite. I think they're 
go hand in hand theme wise both of mm. these movies but um it's no doubt that this is the best soundtrack goblin mm-hmm. soundtrack of any of argento's films and it's definitely the most stylized and behind suspiria uh giallo wise it's just that scene oh, beginning so many murder, great shots in this it's film. just amazing yeah. it's probably one of my favorite shots in argento film next to the bird with the crystal plumage uh you see him shot, but no, nobody does kills like Argento. Yeah, like he, yeah. He, 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 some people. I've heard even people say that he overstylizes the kills. I'm like, that's just that's bullshit, man. I mean, it's just it's his style. It's his very unique style, and it sticks out so well. Um, Deep Red is, in my opinion, it's pretty much perfect. It's such an it's such an amazing film. It's one of the more popular Italian films out there, and uh, critically acclaimed. I mean, really, if you're a fan of Italian cinema or cinema in general, you probably should like this film. You don't hear a lot of bad reviews on this one. It's why it's it's why it's here. Coming in at number sixty six from the glorious year of nineteen eighty one, my favorite year in horror, my bloody Valentine. Yes. Wow. I think I just got like two Canadian classics in a row, didn't I? I did. The Changeling and my bloody Valentine. My opinion: this is one of the best standalone slashers of all time, only to be behind Maniac. Um. Yeah, man, it, it's iconic. It's a very, very iconic film. It's a holiday slasher film, and probably one of the better ones, in my opinion, too. Uh, this one's actually known for a very, very odd thing. Um, back in the day, Canada used to grant um, basically you well, you could almost you could write off your film as a tax well, write off. <laughs> well, did you have to like phone into the film office and be like, "I want to write this off, please"? Yeah, you had to call them, motherfucker. No, 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 you had to phone them. You had to phone them, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, you got a hundred percent tax write off at this time. Yeah. Since yeah. then, it and you know before then it wasn't a hundred percent, and then since then it's not a hundred percent either. It's actually way way lower. But I don't even. Think, time, I, I think you can only write off certain things, like certain things. But um, I think this is one of the films that uh, that kind of brought that to a halt <laughs> because my bloody Valentine was just plagued with so many problems and stuff like. You know, if they're going to write this film off and, you know, it wasn't going to get the release. It was it was basically it wasn't going to make its money back, essentially what happened with this film. But My Bloody Valentine was plagued with uh, with um, rating problems and stuff. They had to recut this film like a million times. It, it originally got released heavily cut and things like that. So uh, which is all shitty. But uh, um, My Bloody Valentine, man, one of the most iconic killers and Harry Warden. Love that shit, man. So awesome. Um but I think it's mostly known as being a standalone slasher. And let's face it, man, a lot of the more popular slashers from this era spawn sequels and if not franchises. So this is what this one really sticks out, in my opinion. Yeah, so. and I would argue that Mood said that it was one of the best standalone slasher films of all time. It's just downright one of the best yeah. slasher films of all time. Forget about standalone. It, yep. it goes up, and we've seen this in our polls in the group page, it goes up against any slasher and does good good numbers uh it's you know it's a film that obviously spawned a sequel or not a sequel a remake um mm-hmm. so it does have that but yeah it's, it's yeah. a great slasher yeah standalone means there's not another sequel <laughs> just letting you yeah. know i just like to throw standalone in there because <laughs> a lot of the more popular slasher films from that era like i said have sequels or spawn franchises right so standalone just sounds kind of a little bit more unique a little bit, but my buddy Valentine classic kills. It's an all around great film. I think it's very influential um, in the slasher genre in, in general. I mean, it's definitely one of the best films from that era in general, not just slasher films, but horror films too. I'm it's awesome. Belongs on the list. 
Number 65, Friday the 13th, Part 2, 1981. Friday the 13th, Part 2 is one of those Friday the 13th films, obviously. But one of the arguments that I make with Part 2 specifically is that had Part 2 been a standalone film and there was never a franchise, I still think Part 2 would go down as one of the best slashers of all time. If it was just never Part 1, never 4, 5, 6, 3, whatever, you know, Jason in this film is a cool killer by himself. You know, that killer is cool. And, you know, but that it did happen, and it did give us the introduction to Jason as the slasher killer guy. And that's iconic enough to be on the list. But it is a well-made slasher that's actually one of the more scary slashers. If you watch it without the context of knowing what came later in the Friday the 13th series. Like, when I was a kid, this one scared me the most. Uh, especially the final scene with uh, the, the Jason, you know, coming through the glass without the sack on his head. Um, it's It got some really creepy moments, like when he's laying in that bed with the pitchfork. Like, what? <laughs> it's weird, you know? I always have a hard time with this one. I know you fought tooth, tooth and nail for this film. Because um, when I think of Friday the 13th and, like, its iconic status and stuff, I think of more or less Friday 3 in terms of the Jason character as we know him today with the hockey mask. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, this one, I, I guess it has this time. It definitely stands the test of time though. It, you, when you watch his film, it's still, it's, it's actually really good. <laughs> well, it should be. It's number 65 on the list, right? <laughs> it, it's arguably the, the best of the Friday the 13th. I like another one a little bit more, but in terms of like, it's not ridiculous. There's not, yeah jason undying monster at this point you know like he's very humanized in this film and i think that's what makes it scary he's just a mongoloid moving on to number 64 yet another sequel and this time around is also from the year 1981 and it is a film titled halloween 2 halloween 2 so my main thing that i get from halloween 2 is the fact that it is a literal direct sequel from the first film. We rarely see movies that take place literally the moment after the first film takes ending. I can't well, think of something. another one before this that did that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's factual that it's the first, but I can't think of another one. Yeah, I can't either. I mean, we our last show, we we reviewed three films that did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hatchet. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know like, if there was another one before this. Yeah, it's just a it's a great sequel all around. I think it carries on a lot from the first film. I mean, you got David Carvey fucking playing a cop. It's like, what more do you want? <laughs> yeah, fucking Dana Carvey. But, yeah, I, I, go ahead, Moods. I think this one just it completely is. It's on here because it's one of the best sequels of all time. It, it, it's in my in my opinion, it's a perfect sequel to an amazing film. In Halloween, it has um, such a good opening, you know. Yeah, I've been trick or treated to death, and he's like, "You don't know what death is," and it's like, <laughs> and then the music cuts, and it's just yeah. like, man, it's so good. And then yeah. you know the ending's good as well. The hospital setting, uh, there's there's a lot of great things about this being a slasher. Mm-hmm. Oh, big time, big time! I still think it has one of the most comical moments ever in it when, when dude yeah. gets hit by the ambulance, and it has yep. one of the most unnoticeable, like frightening moments with the razor blade kid in the yeah. hospital. That's such yeah, a that's weird true. scene that's just in, inserted there. Yeah, 
No, I, th- I think it's it's here because it's you know it's a perfect it's a perfect sequel. Thinking about that, that ambulance scene. <laughs> oh, dude, it's like one of the funniest things ever. <laughs> All right, so coming in at number sixty three from nineteen sixty five, Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Yeah, man, this movie right here, I fought to get on the list because it's simply just an amazing film. It's mm-hmm. really that damn good that it really deserves a place on here. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know if it's ever been official, you know, with Polanski's apartment trilogy. Have you guys ever heard this before? I know, with, like Carnage. Yeah, it's like Carpenter's uh, Doomsday trilogy. Or, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of just something that has been labeled over the years. And I think that, you know, this trilogy, if you were to, you know, make it actually a trilogy, Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, and of course, The Tenant, that is one amazing trilogy of films right there. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the one that kind of kicked off that type of thing. It's, um, it's a very, oh, this film right here has been cited. It's so influential. In oh, today's yeah. Years. It's been just done to death, man. I mean, uh, one of my favorite films, one of my favorite modern films, which I've given a perfect score to, which is May. Uh, Lucky McKee cites this film right here as his direct source material for doing May, you know, with her isolation in her apartment and things like that. Very, very cool. Totally critically acclaimed film. I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about this film. Everyone sucks his film's cock. Um, and it's also known for having a fil- female killer, which I will point out because it's it's just it's like one of the staples in the feminist communities and stuff. It's yeah. it's very much in there. And, you know, it just it has its place. Women and, in uh, horror class. This was definitely on the top of the list. Women in horror syllabus. class. Exactly. It has its place right there. And, yeah, and it's a def- movie we watched for sure when exactly. I took that class. Yeah. Yep, and it's another film that's definitely talked about to death in schools. Yep. Yep. Repulsion. Had many discussions about this film. It falls into so many different categories. It's just an all-around amazing film. If you've never seen Repulsion, do yourself a favor and watch it. It's amazing. Actually, in fact, watch all three films back-to-back. <laughs> not be disappointed that's an amazing trilogy number 62 the haunting from 1963 ghost films are in my opinion kind of uh far in between <laughs> being good and stuff i think the haunting is just one of the best films one of the best ghostlies ever made it, it's actually genuinely creepy it's atmospheric as hell uh very very highly critically acclaimed it's you know it's a great film man um I can't say much for about the remake that came out in what 1999. Not really the greatest thing in the world, but uh, you know, even someone as credible as Martin Scorsese claims that this film is one of the scariest films of all time. So, is that not enough to be on the list right there? I don't know what it is. I, I mean, I admit that it's highly influential in the haunted house genre, mm-hmm. but that's about as much as I personally have to say about it. Uh, it didn't love it when i seen it so what were your reasons behind not really loving the film did was it just the pacing of it because it is relatively a slower burn type film yeah it's just i mean if i seen it in 1963 i'd probably love it but just seeing it Mm -hmm. done it you know it's it's hard to really put yourself in a situation in which this is all new and fresh i think there's so many films that follow this one that you know that directly takes it from this film I mean, so many films take have taken shit right from this film, and it's that's why it's here. It's one of those staple films that just influenced a shitload of. I mean, it influenced Waxwork Two: Lost in Time. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing film that is! 
I mean, if you want to take a whole entire film, but I mean, a lot of filmmakers, you know, have taken bits and pieces and, and uh, styles from this film and stuff. But The Haunting, I mean, it's classic. It, it's, it's a classic. It has its place on here. So Next up, we have probably one of the weirdest and bizarre films on the list. And that is the classic 1977 film Eraserhead, directed by the greatest living American filmmaker right now, David Lynch. Eraserhead, fellas, what do you think? Midnight movies, baby. Yep. You know, beside the Rocky Horror Pictures, I mean, Eraserhead was it was that staple, staple midnight film. Um, it played forever. You know, I mean, nothing could ever be at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, no, I mean, that film is just still gets played today. But Eraserhead, man, I think is one of those films that uh, every filmmaker has seen and has probably taken something from it. This one is one of the most unique films ever made uh, in the sense that in the sense that David Lynch, as we know, is a very abstract type director. Mm -hmm. Um it's an interesting film because he actually made this film over about five or seven years or something like that while he was in film school. And he used to build these sets and things like that and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of thing. I think he, he put so much time and energy to these ideas that he have that he had. Uh, and he, he did, wasn't really thinking much about a story. And that, that's what I love about this film is that it doesn't really directly have a bonafide a narrative to it. It doesn't really have a full-blown narrative, but that's what's kind of appealing about this film. It's a whole pile of weird and strained imagery that really seems to work. And the sound design in this film is second to none. It's I amazing. Think the, um, the fucking industrial sound to this film is is something that has been explored and exploited by so many other filmmakers. They've taken that idea of using sound as a nauseating, uh, something mm-hmm. to focus on in a film. They've, they've taken this directly from Racerhead. So influential to so many people after that have you, you used these type of things and stuff. I mean, you look at um, even uh, Irreversible, you know, with the backward sound and stuff. I mean... You know, just using that type of sound, it's it's a it's directly taken from you know Eraserhead's type of sound design and things like that. It's a uh, disturbing movie too when you really think about it and you watch it. Yep. Like his kid is fucking. It's a weird fucking thing that's going on. Oh. It's just a strange avant-garde mess of weirdness. It, it, it's one of those films that I can watch over and over again because. As much as you want to be that critic that finds the deeper meaning within the film, uh, David Lynch has said no many, many times, he said many, many times, you critics are fucking morons. Yeah. It doesn't have a deeper meaning. I, I put tried. a bunch of imagery together and it came up with this and it's weird and it's fun to watch. And I still think one of the, the craziest things is the scene with the little uh, the little chicken hand thing. Yeah, <laughs> one of my first papers that I wrote. me up every time. One of the first papers I wrote when I was in film school doing my when I was really into film criticism, so when I was doing a lot of classes, was on Eraserhead on the sound design. And it was oh, probably yeah. probably the worst paper I wrote because I tried to dissect the film and get into hidden meaning, and it just failed miserably. And then after that point, I realized that you should never write critically about Eraserhead because there's fucking nothing to it. All right, coming in at number 60, from the glorious year of 1977, The Hills Have Eyes. That's a weird one. Wes Craven. The Wes Craven, West Craven second film. Yeah, I think Hills Have Eyes mainly is one of the films that people cite as like driving that exploitation grindhouse. 
uh, cinema of the '70s in the, in a more popular standpoint. There's always been, you know, grindhouse cinemas dating all the way back to like Blood Feast and stuff like that. But this one kind of um, transcended that original burst and became very well known among um, people. Just people in general know Hills Have Eyes, and it's also, you know, has has a really cool setup you know that's been used many many times like of course there's always been like backwoods hick films and stuff like deliverance but this one was kind of done in a a little bit different of a way where it's much more gritty and less movie looking it doesn't really look like a movie but more of like texas chainsaw and stuff like that where where it kind of has a more realism look to it and i think that's very influential with the types of you know, backwoods cannibal type movies that we got years later. Like so many times I look at these indie ones. And I'm like, this is just the Hills have eyes rip off. Um, filmmakers like Rob zombie have been inspired by the Hills have eyes. Uh, it's definitely inspired filmmakers for sure. Um, it's a movie that, you know, if in terms of ratings, I go up and down on this one, you know, I, sometimes I love it. And other times I'm just like, yeah, it's good, but, not and we covered it. We covered it on the West Coast yeah, yeah. show, and and we kind of. I think this would, to me, would probably be one of the lowest rated films on this entire top hundred list for myself. I love mm-hmm. The Hills Have Eyes, but I do have problems with it. I mean, let's face. I mean, two words: booby traps. <laughs> <laughs> it's a booby trap. What a booby trap! A booby trap. Yeah, man, Wes Craven is fucking booby traps, man. Yeah, he's a big fan of those. <laughs> he really is, man. It's it's a common theme throughout a lot of his Wes stuff. Wes Craven actually movie. played Data in The Goonies, little known fact. <laughs> it's a very, very recognizable film. You know, one of the things about The Hills Have Eyes for me that it's kind of ingrained in pop culture is Michael Berryman is yeah, literally is the artwork for this film, man. I remember face. as a kid, I remember seeing that artwork and just being like, I'm not sure if I want to rent that, man. <laughs> Only to find out, you know, when I was young that that was actually not makeup. <laughs> That's how Michael Berryman actually looked. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, this partnered I with... I think he's, like, one of the most, like, unique-looking actors ever. Oh, uh, well, he, he has, he has like, 29 birth defects. Yeah, yeah. He has a cone head. And probably the nicest guy yeah, ever, yeah, too, right? Yeah, yeah, beautiful person. Um, but this film coupled with The Last House on the Left were really the two films to to launch Wes Craven's career that went on forever and one of the most important directors in horror history. Number 59, The Return of the Living Dead, 1985, smack dab in the middle of the 80s. See, I don't love this movie as much as everybody else. Not in that sense. I don't think I grew up with it, so I don't have that big of a connection to it like everybody else does. I didn't see it till I was about 13 or 14. Yeah. I didn't grow up with it, and I actually didn't even overly love it the first time i seen it though the first time i seen it i caught it like midway through but over the years man return of the living dead is literally one of those movies that i can watch over and over and over again and i don't do that i'm not a person that does that but this film and another film are the two that i can do that with and it's funny because me and moods both have those two films uh that are the, the same thing so that it's I think a lot of people have Return of the Living Dead as a film that they can just throw in and watch. It's just so fun. And it's actually, <clears throat> the comedy 
and the black comedy and the horror is mixed so well that I did not even realize it was comedy until I was an adult. It, it's it's smart shit because it's not silly comedy. You know when they're referencing Night, Night of the Living Dead and things see, like that. I and, thought that was scary when I seen that. It terrified yeah. me. He's like he's like see that's the beauty. That movie? night of the living dead and i was like oh, that's shit. the beauty of this film because it had you thinking it was supposed to be scary but you know you know when you actually really think about it it's just kind of meant to be kind of ha 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 you know it's a little jab here and there so i love about this film man i mean this movie is beyond etched in pop culture tar man i mean return of living dead you see return of living dead shit everywhere it's so everywhere iconic, man right Same. from the characters in the film liana quigley's character to Fucking Tar Man, everything, man. It's got this amazing soundtrack that everyone associates the music to this film. Um, you know, it's just, it's, in my opinion, it's one of the best zombie films out there. And it's another one of those films from 1985 that I was talking about earlier with Reanimator and Fright Night that helped kind of coin the horror comedy. This is the third film from 1985. 85 was a very interesting year in that, in that kind of sense. And uh, in, in my opinion, man, Return of the Living Dead is just – it's so popular among the horror crowd and it also, it, it just in general. I mean you can't go anywhere without Return of the Living Dead. It's such an amazingly popular film and it's good. Yeah, Fuck it, you, Zach. It's damn good. It, it also did something that a lot of people don't <laughs> realize but like it made the running zombie kind of. You know what I mean? Like like I don't really remember seeing it before Return of the Living Dead. They They – they talk and also it's the first film that i know of that made zombies eat brains that classic they want your brains, brains. yeah the brain yeah, i think it came yeah, from brains. this film and it actually makes sense in the film why that happens why yep like yep. you know that it yeah it stops the Wants pain. brains <laughs> i know a lot of people don't necessarily find it as funny as me but i think the ending is beyond hilarious you say this every time we talk about this movie you love the ending it, there's something about the ending <laughs> the way it goes down it fucking kills me even thinking about it i'm laughing right now because it's just like it's so extreme and it's but Jamie, you don't think about that though no right? i think it i don't think that it's funny like to me i was just like jesus christ <laughs> it's, like, that's it's the way i inter- it's the way i interpret it because they work so damn hard to try and solve this shit and they're just like all right next up 58 from the year 1955 we're going back to the greatest country in the world france and a film titled die up a leak I mean, Diabolique mm-hmm. is just one of those. It's one of those staple, classic stories. It's got. It, it's really, really known for um, its uh, its great twist. I mean, that's what it's known for. It's it's honestly, in my opinion, one of the greatest French films ever made, mm-hmm. and I think it's widely respected as one of the greatest French films ever made too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just awesome. I mean, what they did with the story and how they twisted it and shit <laughs> has been done to death. This spawned a really shitty remake in the nineties. About the midnight, it's really bad. Ninety six. I think this is a type of movie that if you're going to remake the same as the original, it doesn't hold any merit or hold any ground as being good because you know what the fuck is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ridiculous, but Diabolique is one of those films that kind of brought a new twist and a way of you know the storytelling. And it's so influential. This one has been done to death afterwards. It's it's just a staple film. It's a staple film, and. Uh, that's why it's on here. It's it's an amazing film with an amazing twist. Number 57 from the year of 1960 comes five years after Diabolique with Eyes Without a Face. 
Yeah. Now, this is probably my favorite French horror film. Which is a big statement for me because I love French horror. It's, I've talked about it a lot on the show. I've watched a lot, a lot, a lot of horror films from the wonderful country of France. And this is probably my favorite one out of the bunch. Now, I just want to take you back to the time of 1960. Now, this movie has some pretty hardcore effects from the year 1960. If you guys have seen the film, you know about uh, the main character likes to transfer faces from dead people onto living people. And there's this scene where he is cutting off a victim's face and he peels off the skin from the person's face. And it's not just some low-budget, shitty angle type of shit. You really get in there and you really see... He learned that terminology in film school right there. Yeah, yeah. You really see the shit, like knife go into flesh, cutting into flesh. Yeah. You really see the knife going to flesh, cut into flesh, and pull it apart and stuff like that. And for 1960, this must have blew people's motherfucking minds. Oh, dude. It's it's still amazing when you watch it. I mean, we're talking like... 57 or what is it 57 years it's fucking crazy man and you have to think about you know france is a pretty well adapted country when it comes to accepting the arts uh of course we'll see this later with the french new wave and and stuff like that but even going back in the day when during the silent era they were very open arms when it came to nudity and things like that it would not be out of the ordinary to see nudity back in a french film back in the day so I could see how this wouldn't be as big of a deal in that country as it, if it would have happened here in the States. But mm-hmm. still, it's still a pretty insane scene for the time. And just the story as well. It's just an amazing, amazing film. It's shot is absolutely beautifully. And it's just a film that everybody should see if you're into art house cinema and even just regular genre films in general. You should definitely check out Eyes Without a Face from the year 1960. It's fucking awesome. Pick up the Criterion. It's awesome. Number 56, Zombie, 1979. Hi, Don and Ellie. I just wanted to say that my all-time favorite horror film is Zombie 2. I cannot think of anything wrong with it. It's perfect in every way. The atmosphere, the scares, the gore, the zombies. Everything about it is awesome in every way, and I can't find any flaws with it. Bye. So iconic. Oh, yeah, that cover, Zombie looks, man. The only problem is is it's got bad worm placement, though. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think this is the only film in my memory that I could think that a shark and a zombie fight. So I have it's to give you credit only, on that. It's the only one. that It's one of the most iconic scenes ever. Uh, but this yeah. is more classic Fulci stuff, man. It's like, um, it's just, it's amazing. This movie right here has probably the best looking zombies of all time. Mm-hmm. The, cl- the the look of the zombies is just uncanny. It's unbelievably well done. It's amazing. Amazing soundtrack. Oh, but this movie is so etched in pop culture now. I mean, I literally have a zombie patch on my on my hoodie that I'm wearing right now. Um, we're, I mean, the comics that are coming out from Zombie. This thing is highly critically acclaimed. I mean, who doesn't like Zombie? <laughs> you know, it's in my opinion, it's literally one of the best zombie films of all time. Um, you know, this one right here was an unofficial sequel to Dawn of the Dead. You know, of course, being you got no me, I- Zombie Two. Yeah, it's one of my favorite zombie films as well, and you know me, it's 
zombie films are my least favorite subgenre of horror. I've said that before, but I, mm-hmm. I enjoy zombie. It's a good, it's a good, good film. Oh man, just I mean the cinematography in this film, the soundtrack. I mean the reveal the, when the zombies are rising from those graves, man. Iconic, iconic. I mean that those scenes right there have been duplicated to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's used that shit right there. Zombie is amazing, and of course, you know it's another popular nasty and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. now jp i know you've seen this one yeah absolutely um i love zombies it's (laughs) it's it's definitely one of uh it's one of my favorite zombie films for sure it's definitely in my top 10 if not top five i can't remember the last time i did a zombie list but uh, it was definitely in there somewhere um we reviewed the hell out of it yes man zombie deserves a place in this list yeah number 56 Next up, number 55 on the list, we have I Spit on Your Grave from the year 1978. One of the most controversial films on the list, of course, because of one wonderful man, my lover. That sounded weird. My, (laughs) I don't want to be, I really, really don't want to be his lover. I swear to God, but I love this man. Especially now. Too late. (laughs) Too late. Too late. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love this man, Mr. Roger Ebert. Probably the most notorious film review ever written, ever was on this film. He bends this film over and fucks it in the bum bum like no other, and it's just awesome. But he's wrong. But what do you guys think about Ice Spit on Your Grave? I love it's, Ice it's, Spit on Your Grave. It, uh, it's my it's classic favorite. exploitation. It's probably one of my favorite rape revenge films. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't like it growing up i don't think you know i seen it i seen it once in my teens but um i've come around on it i just i, I don't know it's it's just so nasty you know i, I remember I seeing the cover on the vhs like like oh, i shouldn't watch that you know <laughs> like like even as a kid just being like Oop, i know not even gonna try to rent this one <laughs> women in horror two years ago half the class got up and walked out i said Fuck that and i remember Fuck talking about freaks, that on man. the show but half the class got up and walked out it, so that should so say weird. something in film school. Yeah, that's, that's taking... amazing. Yep. That's yep, so that should, but, I, but I still think that should say something about the film. Even now, fucking people are still fucking offended Appalled. by this movie. It's it's an important film, man. It, yeah. it, it's crazy to, to think that film students are walking out of there yep. knowing, you know, that, you know, the history of this film being so important and stuff. Yep. Um, it's classic rape revenge. So it's not the first of its kind, but it's one that really, really set it into a different stratosphere. Um, mm-hmm. This was a very, very notorious film, of course, on the video nasties list, probably only behind Cannibal Holocaust, really. Um, man, you know, every time I look at that cover, I just can't help but think that it's unbelievable whose ass is on the cover of that film. Yeah. It's Demi Moore's ass. Yeah. It's crazy. This one essentially, I mean, I guess I Spin in the Grave is now a big time franchise, but there's three remakes to it. So yeah, and those and remakes are coming. brutal, too. And a upcoming sequel to the original, starring Kyle Keaton. Yeah. yeah, which is crazy. Well, she was actually in an unofficial one called uh, Savage it Act, of Ven- Act of Vengeance, I think in 89 or something. And it, honestly, that film has Savage, yeah, Savage Vengeance has one of the most funniest scenes I've ever seen in my life. Um, th- she gets dry humped <laughs> by this dude. <laughs> it's like, sorry, dude. And that's the rape scene. The whole movie is terrible. It's yeah. terrible. But I spit on your grave, man. And if I have to say, if you get the chance, I literally watched this movie about a month ago. If you guys get a chance, 
listen to the Joe Bob commentary on the Blu-ray. It's fucking awesome. You can't go wrong with Joe Bob. It's great. But yeah, that's my that's my recent activity. What I spit on your grave. Yeah. In at number fifty-four, Last House on the Left from nineteen seventy-two. Very Leslie fitting Kirk. to be next on the list. Uh, two classic rape revenge films. The Last House on the Left, whether it's a great movie or not, which is arguably debatable, but some it's people, up for debate, yeah. some people like my homie Jerry Herrig. 22 shots. This is Jerry from Kill the Cast. Greatest horror movie ever comes down to two for me. Jaws, because it's one of the greatest movies of all time. But The Last House on the Left original is one of the greatest horror movies of all time because it does something that very few horror movies does and it makes me feel uncomfortable. The scene where Krug uh, gets done playing with the assassins and is wiping the blood off and has that look on his face of not, of like just pure disgust in what he's done makes me realize that even the worst humans like are still human, if you get what I mean. Anyway, congratulations on 100 episodes. That's all I got for you. Y'all take it easy. Later. It's his favorite horror film. So it, mm-hmm. it definitely has that that influence in the horror genre and he and he tells a story of how he first seen it and it just blowing his mind as a young child seeing something this violent and we talked about it at length on on our west craven show there are so many amazing moments in this film that are kind of just ruined by some poor choices of the time yeah. and mm-hmm. you know but that does not take away the influence of this exploitation film the, last the impact the is left. always there. Yeah, The Last you know? House on the Left is cited as the cornerstone of rape revenge. It really mm-hmm. is. You know, a, a remake, perhaps, of The Virgin Spring uh, by yep. Art Bergman. Yep. I mean, that's, yeah, that's Wes Craven's uh, direct mm-hmm. influence for the film, yeah. Yes. Yep. It's uh, a great film. But it definitely created a subgenre in rape revenge. Absolutely. And oh, for sure. Speaking of other things that it did, um, the house on the edges and the house by the woods and the house on the hilltops. <laughs> All the know. houses. <laughs> uh, it did plenty of ripoff titles, um, including um, House on the Edge of the Park, which is a very similar film, but arguably better. But yeah, no, you can't you can't deny this this film in, in horror history, man. It's it definitely popularized and set the stage for the last film that we just talked about. I spit in your grave rape revenge and tons and tons more rape revenge films after that. It's probably it's, the uh, most popular well-known rape revenge film. Yeah. Mm. And that's what, I mean, I spit on your grave. But... I mean, they're both pretty both popular. Ones. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is debatable because I spit in your grave was so highly bootlegged and yeah, and shit on in the UK and other countries and stuff. I mean, it's the it's the well, title of an, too, right? Another thing that is interesting about Last House on the Left is it got a positive review from Roger Ebert with a 3.5 out of 4. Which is insane when you think about yeah. how much he hated Last House on the Left. Or, uh, I spit in your grave. So, it's interesting, though. You know, this this film comes out six years prior, and then, you know, I spit in your grave was like a total fail to him. I mean, it's yeah. dealing with the same situation, the dam- the same themes. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I find that quite intriguing. But Last House on the Left is you can't deny it's in it's uh, its place in horror history, man. It belongs on the list. It really does. Yep. Number fifty three, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, nineteen seventy eight. Mm, the best remake ever made, hands down, no question about it. Hmm. 
It's debatable. It's it's definitely up there, man. Invasion critically, at least, it is the best remake ever made. Like the critics, fucking, they, I think it has like a ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something crazy high like that. But I love this movie. I think it's great, and I love the original a lot. But this one is is really really good as well. Yeah, this one it just kind of steps up, you know, from the original film. It mm-hmm. just does. It takes all those ideas and kind of elevates it into. A little bit more of a modern type story, but uh, it's just all around amazing. It, it's just it, it's solely on this list because it is not only one of the best remakes, but it is one of the best films of yeah. all time. It's absolutely outstanding. Um, I don't know if it has any direct influence on things after and stuff. I mean, it, it has spawned two more remakes. I mean, there's four of these body snatcher films now, which is insane to me. Abel yeah. Ferrer did one in '93, and then there was that the shitty one, Bayesian one. <laughs> Um, which is fucking crazy. They just keep remaking this. I, it's funny that this never spawns sequels, you know, instead mm-hmm. of just remakes. It's kind of interesting, but, but uh, no doubt invasion of body snatchers has its place, man. It's, you know, highly critically acclaimed. It's very, um, it, it's all, it's honestly considered to be one of the best films of the seventies too. 52. We have from the year 1981, an American werewolf in London. <laughs> So it makes it his parents about 30 after The Howling. So why is it this much farther down the list compared to The Howling? I think it's a, just a little bit more iconic. It's cited it's more high- often as people's favorite werewolf film of all time. And I don't like The Howling or American Werewolf in London. And in fact, neither of those are my top favorite horror f- werewolf films. But... I will say that that iconic transformation is one of the best special effects in history of horror. Yeah. And also it, it is a fan favorite. Like we might not love it, but that's how you can tell that we're completely unbiased as possible mm-hmm. when making this list, because I don't think any of us really care for the film that much, but it has its place. And there are filmmakers who take direct influence Adam Green actually cites American Werewolf in London as one of his biggest inspirations for Hatchet, which is mm-hmm. odd, but it's yeah, it's yeah that is a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd. Yeah, he said um, there's literal scenes that he like kind of like you know recreated and or like shots rather. Very importantly, absolute box office smash. This thing killed yeah. it. So yeah, can't deny, man. It's it's and it won Oscars, Oscars, man. One Oscars. and it won Oscars too, man. I mean, it's just it's holding a lot of merit. I yeah. mean, it also, like JP said, man, not our favorite films in the world, but it's it's holding a lot of those places in the criteria, so you can't it deny it. also turned John Lennis into a master of horror, apparently. Which is still super damn debatable, isn't it? I still can't believe that. <laughs> but yeah, an American werewolf in London. Coming in at number 51, The Evil Dead Part 2, seven. Once again, I am leaving another message for the uh, 22 Shots of Moves and Horror podcast uh, regarding the greatest horror film of all time, and I have to say it's Evil Dead 2. For me, as I enjoy that one quite a bit, it's always fun to watch. This is another one that I think not that much of us three really like, but I personally... I've said over and over again a million times that I prefer the Evil Dead because it was trying to be an actual horror film. Yeah. I understand the success of the Evil Dead 2. 
you know, it's essentially kind of a remake of the original Evil Dead, but a lot more comical. Mm-hmm. This is the film that really set Bruce Campbell into stratosphere, into cult status. Mm-hmm. And plus, it was a huge box office success. It just really, really did well for itself. Um, and, you know, this is one of the most iconic films ever, you know, from artwork to to sightings. and Quotable as hell. Everybody knows I mean, Ash. Yep. It's a fan favorite. Everybody like really not a lot of people have anything bad to say about this film. I don't. I don't hate this film. I just prefer to watch the yeah, original. I, I original like Evil Dead too. too. I just you know it's not my favorite. And yep. but I I think the Evil Dead Two is one of the most popular films among casual to slightly hardcore horror fa- film film fans. Like it is insane how many people I see like say Evil Dead Two is their favorite horror film. How many editions of Evil Dead exist? Like it is mm-hmm. Halloween and Evil Dead Two have the most editions of any horror film that I've seen, and maybe it's crazy. It, if you're a media collector out there, and you know, obviously we are. I don't even go out of my way to collect Evil Dead films, but I have way too many editions. <laughs> That's how often this film gets released. It's ridiculous. It's definitely it's just etched in popcorn or popcorn in pop culture in popcorn too. I guess uh, it's everywhere. Evil Dead, Evil Dead. I mean, you see Evil Dead shit all the time. Evil Dead Two. St- I, I honestly see more Evil Dead Two stuff than I see one. Oh, oddly enough, definitely it's, because you got Bruce Campbell with the chainsaw hand and the and the boomstick like. Like, he wasn't yep. looking like that in Evil Dead 1. All right, all right. Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast. Congratulations on 100. I'll just say that right off the bat. Right? boom, Boosh! That's balloons flying up into the sky. <laughs> I can't believe they made it this far. I gave them 70 tops. Have they even <laughs> recorded it yet? <laughs> <laughs> Are yeah. we going to hear this? Is this show coming out? That's the question. How long has it been with these guys? It's, they said they're recording April 3rd, so hopefully it's happening. Oh, they did? Yeah. Oh, wow, you're in the know. Okay, so, um, yeah, I think we should all take a turn. I'll just say what I'm going to say. This is just, this is not rehearsed. This is just us doing it because we're lazy and because we're so cool that we can do something like this because we're a podcast. So, uh, we're not really cool as people. We're just, <laughs> we're just cool that, um, we had this opportunity. I don't want to come off cocky. Even even though we are the number one show on the network, but that's we're the yeah, number we're, one show, but we're not the best show. How's that? No, we're the number one show. We're the best show, and we're doing this favor for <laughs> for the yeah. number two show. <laughs> I, I, listen, you got your just, start on this show, didn't you, Brandon? Didn't you like yes, call I in did. like I you're did. trying to order no. a pizza? You got through to them or something like that? <laughs> if not, well, I was trying show. to order burritos. <laughs> oh, from JP. JP, of course. The ones you smoke. <laughs> but let me say, I did say that they were the best show on the network. And let me say, I've said this before. The two most influential podcasts to me and, and, and the two shows that really made me want to create this show here, Exploding Heads, not not 22 Shots, are uh, are the, the Skeleton Crew because they broke me into it. Alex and, and I had been friends for years and I listened to them and loved it. And then I, we started banana laser and it was kind of similar to that. It was, you know, us having fun and bullshit and whatever. And then 22 shots came around. Now I wasn't on from the beginning, so I can't even say I was, but I came around in the forties or something or whatever the hell it was. But I listened to 22 shots and I'm, I got to say that when I listened to that show, that you guys showed me what a horror podcast can be 
in a different way. Like when I listen to you guys, I, I remember I called in the one time and I said, Hey, uh, it was the very first time. I, I think it was Italian horror month. And I called in and I said, listen, I love you guys. I love the dedication. You guys, you're knowledgeable, everything else, yada, yada. I can't say it enough. You guys did things that no other podcast I listen to have done. <laughs> and they're they're making fun of me saying I'm blowing you. I don't care. I'll blow you. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, you know, figuratively. Of course. I was cupping the but, balls, too, when I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I'm a shockwave listener? Come on, get out of here. <laughs> 22 shots deserve it. I'm not saying shot waves. Do not. Don't get me wrong. I'm or just saying shot 22 shot waves. What? <laughs> or 22 shocks waves. <laughs> 22 shots deserves just as much blowing from uh, the listeners as a show as a as a first year shock wave show does. So I am going to say it. You guys, you know, you put something out there, and like I said, you put so much into the show. You do those long ass retrospectives. Brilliant. You guys are all. Smart as shit. You know what you're doing, and you keep it entertaining. And you guys showed me personally what a horror podcast could do that I didn't think. It didn't occur to me that a podcast could be that. Exploding Heads is a combination of my two favorite shows, Skeleton Crew and 22 Shots. And I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you guys for everything. You're great hosts. You're great friends. Fucking, I can't say it enough. And I'm going to leave it at that. Happy 100 and... Many more, and don't you guys ever stop podcasting. So there you go. I'm out. I'm done. You guys go. I think Brandon deserves to go last here. I think that that it's only fitting. I'm the newbie. I've said it before on the show too. I've I said listen. I never listened to these shows before, and I, I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I didn't listen to many podcasts before, like maybe what what TWF, the Mark Marin show, and like uh, how did this get made? I, I only started getting a, into more podcasts, even when I did TJF. I just I, I just jumped into it. I don't know what the hell I was doing. And then you reached out, Dave. I'm like, Horophilia. And I started checking out some of the shows there. 22 Shots was one of them because you guys recommended them. You said, you got to check these guys out. So I, I listened. Uh, so I'm the newest one on the block here, I think. And, yeah, I've always thought long form would never work. You would never be able to find an audience. They proved it wrong. They found an audience. Uh, and then Dave said, no, that's what we're going to do. And I was like, oh, really? And it's worked. And yeah, I, I was wrong from the get go. Their show is great. I've listened to, uh, quite a few episodes now. I haven't re- definitely haven't listened to the whole back catalog. I, I can't, I would never lie and say that, but, uh, definitely I loved some of the changes that they've done with their, with their hosts as well. That's been interesting. It'll be interesting to see where they go from there. So congrats on reaching show 100 from one of your newer fans, Christian. I'm out. Congrats, boys. Okay, now let a former fan talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, st- I actually didn't start from the beginning as well. I started, I believe, in the 20s. The Mr. Jones show was the – I think it was the Mr. Jones show – was the first one I listened to. And I was listening to these guys – Long before I even got involved with the Facebook group and all that, I didn't think I was going to do that. I actually used to just put the podcast on through – I found it through Moods' YouTube channel and was just going to just gonna listen and not get involved. But then I thought, wow, these guys are really knowledgeable. They're opening me up to so many new horror films and just so much that I didn't know about. And so I decided to join the face group, and obviously then I got so involved in the face group, met so many great people – 
JP and Moods are great friends. I met so many other people, obviously Derek, Jeremy, um, just so many other people. And JP really encouraged me to, to get into the podcasting when Dave uh, reached out. I'm not 100% sure how it went about, but uh, but he was real supportive. So was Moods, so was everyone, because I never thought in a million years I'd be doing this. But you guys have done a phenomenal job. I think they're the most knowledgeable podcasters that that I've ever seen personally. I just can't think of any group of individuals that know more than they do. And they've done a phenomenal job. And here's to another hundred. Yeah, man. And you nailed it. Uh, informative is, is definitely key. They've got it, but without being, without the cool factor, informative doesn't get you too far because you got to be able to, to, well, uh, you know, hold someone's interest. And they, they yeah. have that. They have the gift of that as well. That's enough cup in the balls. Blowing the twenty-two shot. I don't want twenty-two shots of semen in my face right now. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> nice. And let me just say one more thing. Again, there would be no exploding ads without that show. Not just because of it being an influence, but because of Brandon here. That, Absolutely, one hundred percent. Absolutely. If that show never existed, I never listened. I never heard of Brandon. I never saw him on the group page. This never would have happened. And there could not be an exploding heads. Okay. Are we ready to be out? We got to get out. We got a show to do. Holy shit. Yeah. And you guys got a show to do. And I think people are sick and tired of listening to us. And if you're not, you can find us on Horror Fidia Network. The name of our show is Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast. So. <laughs> Thanks, 22 Shots, and hello to the third member. Keep on there rocking. There is a third member. What? You know something I don't? I know something you both don't. Son of a bi- It's not you, is it? It's not me. I asked if it was you, which was funny. <laughs> It's when, wow. Oh, I'm now I'm really intrigued. Yeah, wait, wait, when JP told me who it was, he asked me not to tell anyone. I'm sure he wouldn't have mind if I told you guys, but just let it be known that I did not tell these guys. And welcome to the third member. Welcome. I can't believe they went with a third. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay. Well, thanks again, guys. We'll see you later. Happy 100. We love you. Peace out. Peace. Peace. Number 50, Dracula 1931. Carla does not deserve to smell my shit. Sorry, Edward Ed reference. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. I mean, what what can you say about Dracula, right? I mean, it might not be the first vampire film, but it is definitely one it is definitely the key influence to vampires as we know them. Um mm-hmm. the more humanoid version of the vampire, uh the more, you know, sophisticated vampire. And yeah. Dracula, Bela Lugosi playing Dracula. It's it's very iconic. It's it, it's you know it's really, the most really, iconic. Yeah, him and Frankenstein. Are, oh oh oh, you mean of vampires? Yes, he's absolutely yeah, that, the most that iconic like, vampire. The most iconic when associated with a character, in my opinion, is Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Like, I don't think any other character ever had that same kind of recognition. Maybe that Bela Robert Lugosi. England with Freddy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I can see that. It, it all depends, man. Like, uh, you know, I I grew up watching Universal monster films all the time. And, you know, when I think of Dracula, I think of Bela Gossi and stuff. But for me personally, I prefer Christopher Lee as Dracula. So I. I, I prefer all the Hammer films. And to this day, when I think of Dracula films, I instantly think of Christopher Lee. So it's it's been a big change for me. Over the years, I, I don't know. I just prefer them, but yeah, I mean, you can't and, deny the status of Dracula from 31 from what it did, man. I mean, 
it kicked off the whole universal phenomenon all the all these potential franchise well not potential but all the franchises oh, yeah. you know frankenstein the mummy invisible man creature uh fucking wolfman lugosi famous man made bella lugosi famous i mean dracula was a big deal man it yeah. saved universal from going under they were they were basically done you know and they sold so many fucking tickets and shit like this and actually saved the company and you can credit dracula for doing that so yeah made 100%. it possible to and create universal as what we know it today so it's a big film undervalue the iconic status of dracula as well um the only thing the only argument some people are probably like why is this number 50 <laughs> you know it should be way lower um i think that it's very of note that most people cite the spanish version of dracula to be the superior film so i think that that overall hurts the product of mm-hmm. the original dracula a little bit and that's why we couldn't put it much lower. I like the Spanish version more, to be honest. Yeah, me too. I actually do too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. All right, Moods. This one's on you. Here we go. Number 49 from the year 1980. Moods' his favorite film, Maniac. Yeah, man. My favorite. Uh, slasher. Well, my favorite slasher film, and it's right up there with one of my favorite films of all time. Um, this is one of those iconic films. I mean, right from the poster art. I mean, this thing is even etched in in pop culture now. I mean, that that poster art you see everywhere. It's even etched it's, in the remake. Exactly, <laughs> man. There's a there's a whole shout out scene to that. It's amazingly done in the remake too. But uh, William Lustig's Maniac, man. It's um, it's one of those films that it's just it's so gritty and grimy and super influential. I mean. I mean, just from the storytelling, the psychological aspect of this, I mean, it, it took it's 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 like a slasher film, but it's a different type of slasher film. It's a psychologic it's a psychological slasher film that just works on all levels. Um, and it became a major hit on 42nd Street, too. You know, and that's a big thing, because, you know, back in those days, it, you, you never knew what was going to be a hit or not on those streets and stuff. And I think that was it's a major part of its popularity too. films that became huge on 42nd Street became, you know, kind of etched in people's minds and uh, into pop culture and stuff like that, too. So um, but I think, in my opinion, this film what it holds the most is it's it's like the biggest catalyst for those psychological slashers and stuff i don't think there was a whole lot besides psycho but this is the one that you know from the modern times that really kind of set the stage for those type of films and things like that um it's interesting though this is the type of film that wasn't critically acclaimed at the time Mm -hmm. but it's it certainly does stand the test of time uh film wise and you know nowadays fans critics everything i think most people would say pretty damn good positive things about this film. It doesn't have a lot of negativity towards it and stuff. So, um, you know, spawned an amazing remake, of course. And uh, yeah, I mean, what else can I say about this fact? This movie, man. Tom Savini, probably one of the most iconic scenes, yeah, <laughs> kill ever. scenes of all time. The head explosion scene, which is in this film, which everybody knows. Even if you haven't seen the film, you probably the exploding heads know it. <laughs> exactly exactly it's just it's just a straight up iconic film it's a very very important film on all levels for exploitation slasher uh low budget filmmaking and joe spinell's performance is academy award winning worthy in my opinion it's too bad this film you know basically was overlooked by you know everybody that mattered to get it somewhere where in the time of 1980 but um yeah you know, at least it became a hit where it needed to be a hit on 42nd street which is good so Maniac yeah. is definitely when you talk about slashes with depth, 
it, it's one of the top dogs, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there's a few. If you're talking proto, you got stuff like Psycho, obviously that psychological aspect. Yeah. But when you break it down to post Halloween slashers, this is it, man. This is this is the film. This one has something a little bit more than than your typical slasher. And uh, it, it's it's a brilliant movie. Like I love Maniac. I think that it's it's just ha- has a little bit more when it comes to slashers, and it, it mm-hmm. stands out among among hundreds of slashers. As, as oh yeah, man. Number forty eight from the year nineteen sixty one, The Innocence. Yeah, awesome ghost film. Again, man. Best. Another highly influential film um, in that genre, yeah. in, in, in the ghost genre. I mean, this one right here is just—it's such a polarizing film. I, I, it's just an amazing watch, man. It's very atmospheric. It's slow, but it's it's psychological mm-hmm. too. It has all these type of elements to it. It's just you can see the influence from filmmakers after taking bits and pieces from this film and these are the films that set the stage for all these type of modern ghostlies and stuff mm-hmm. if you've never seen these films you wouldn't pretty you wouldn't know that but the innocence man it does it's everything awesome. how it's supposed to do it it's very very it's just good it's an amazing amazing film yeah. uh so and and you know it doesn't help that i mean i think when this one came out it was really highly highly critically acclaimed too i mean oh yeah I don't know how it couldn't be. <laughs> I mean, it just does everything right. So, uh, in my opinion, it's one of the best horror films of the 1960s. Uh, the early 60s had a lot of really great films come out, and this is definitely yeah. one of them. Um, it definitely sticks out for that whole decade. It's Probably. Like the eyes went out of face. It's really e- good. Easily. Easily. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I mean, even uh, even The Ring, even The Ring remake even took audio from this film, too. It's crazy. They sampled this film inside the film. So, I mean, it etched itself reading the pop culture right there. I mean, people wouldn't generally know that unless you're kind of a, you know, a movie buff and stuff like that. But, you know, a film like this being sampled by something as mainstream and popular as The Ring, that's pretty damn cool. So, um, and not only, you know, is it big in American, North American stuff, it's considered to be one of the best British horror films of all time. And we'll get into that conversation <laughs> later on also. But it is literally considered to be one of the best films to ever come out of the UK. Number 47, Hellraiser, 1987. Clive Barker, Hellraiser. I recently watched this because I got the Scarlet Box, and I've never loved Hellraiser more than the last time that I watched it. Uh, It Mm -hmm. is incredibly unique. And a lot of people see Hellraiser, and they see Pinhead, and they, they think of all the bad sequels. But that first film, man, not even about Pinhead, it is just a awesome story between two awful people and their <laughs> twisted love affair. Uh, it, it's, it's great dude. And, and mm-hmm. it has a little less ridiculousness this time watching it. You know, I used to have issues with like, like plot hole stuff, but, but it kind of makes a lot more sense now when I'm looking at the world that Clive Barker creates, which is one of the most important points on Hellraiser is Clive Barker dreamed this stuff up. It's hell, but it's not the Christian hell. This is a different type of hell. And mm-hmm. to create this theory and this type of world out of your mind brain is incredible to me. Like, how do you come up with that? It's like, it, it just seems like something that you need inspiration, but where's the inspiration? It's like he, it, you can't think of it without inspiration, but I see no inspiration in which it could have came from. It's, it's a like, mm-hmm. paradox. 
yeah, without a doubt, Hellraiser is one of the most original horror films ever made. And that's really solidified its place into, into this list. Um, Clyde Barker is a genius. He really is a genius. Um, did you watch the documentary? I have not watched the documentary yet. It's really interesting, actually. It's really good stuff. But interesting thing about Hellraiser that a lot of people seem to overlook. Uh, when they think of Hellraiser, they think of Pinhead. And mm-hmm. Pinhead only has about seven to eight yeah. minutes screen time in this film. But the damn, film is, is not it good about screen time, right? Like every it, word that it, comes it's out effective. of his mouth is so effective yeah. and chilling. It is super effective. And mm-hmm. actually, even in the sequel, he doesn't have that much more screen time, only a couple minutes more. Well, shit, and, in uh, many of the sequels, he doesn't have that much <laughs> screen time. Well, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, really, if you take all nine films, well, well, yeah, the nine films, the Pinhead character is not in eight. probably more than 45 minutes yeah. of the whole franchise. Crazy. Combined. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, Hellraiser, what can we say? I mean, it, it introduced the effects are fucking to, awesome. Yes. Well, it's known for its groundbreaking effects and stuff. And it created and showed us, um, you know, Pinhead. It gave us Pinhead, even though he wasn't in the film a whole lot, but it gave us that villain. You know, it's it's iconic status up there with Freddy and Jason and Mike Myers and, and Leatherface and, and things like that. It's up there, you know, it's mm-hmm. etched in pop culture. It's It's one of those iconic films that even though a lot of people don't fully understand, <laughs> you know, they, they know they like it. It's a, it's an interesting watch for sure. So next up, number 46 from the year 1986, we have the fly remake. Oh yes. The fly remake. Uh, this film is definitely very critically acclaimed. It has a lot of the, the tally marks that we like to say, um, mm-hmm. you know, influential, uh, I've seen this film parodied in everything from Animaniacs to, um, you know, full-blown other movies, you know, or mm-hmm. I've heard references, um, you know, it, it is considered one of the best, you know, Jeremy alluded to the uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but The Fly is is definitely up there with one of the best remakes of all time, um, mm-hmm. especially when you take the base film and you compare it to the re the, the remake mm-hmm. and you look at the difference in, in quality um i like the original fly but the uh, the remake of the fly is just head and shoulders above in term in all aspects when you when you break mm-hmm. it down it's got a it's got academy award-winning effects i mean yeah. that's i think that's one thing that that's you know this film is really known for Mm-hmm. is it's amazing effects the transformations and like it's just it's so compelling how much work was put into the effects in this film you know the him transform you know into that fly and stuff it's just it's unbelievable it really is man great performances in this film i'm not really a big jeff goldblum fan but to be honest he he does a good job in this film um but yeah it's it's also noted as being one of the best remakes of all time it, it, it's probably like my third favorite remake of all time if i had to actually put it into a list all right coming in at number 45 child's play from 1988 yeah. jeremy want to do the honors since it's your favorite horror film of all time yeah child's play 1988 very iconic movie in my life film that i fucking watched you know, one of the first horror movies in my memory that I watch, remember watching growing up. So I think I have a soft spot in my heart for good old Chucky. And let's just be honest, Chucky is one of those Mount Rushmore horror icons. So it's kind of hard not to have him on the list because he's just so important 
to the horror culture, especially at that time period. Horror, I mean, Chucky was going fucking crazy, especially doing Bride of Chucky around that period. He was starting to pop up everywhere. But it, He definitely stands out in 1988 because that's where it was becoming very comedic and horror was kind of on a decline. Mm-hmm. You know, in, mm-hmm. the, in the late 80s, uh, going into the 90s, and believe it or not, like Child's Play, the original, scary, not funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I never really thought of that before, but it's interesting you bring up that point. Child Play comes out at a time where horror was getting really goofy and was definitely on the, on the downslide. And the Child's Play franchise turned into exactly what it came into. Yeah. <laughs> It turned into like a like a comedic franchise. It's, that's actually really interesting. Well, I think you started to see that right away in the second film, you know? Yeah, you yeah. You start to see them start to take that comedic the uh, stance as the, the time. Well, even in this movie, even the first one, there's some funny one-liners. Of course, it has the most memorable line in the film, in the elevator, calling it the ugliest doll that I've ever seen. That's probably my favorite part of the movie. It's probably... Yeah. Starts the Chucky one-liners. My favorite part of the movie ever is when the mother is trying to find out if he yeah. is alive, and yeah. she's like, "Flip!" And then he just starts freaking, yeah. freaking yeah. out. It terrified me, man. Mm-hmm. That's scary. That's scary as hell. Mm-hmm. When the batteries drop out of the box, like that's that's a scary scene, and and that's what a lot of people forget about the original Child's Play. It was attempting to scare you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it made people afraid of dolls again. That's for sure. Because I think mm-hmm. at this time, you really didn't have that many killer doll films. And I think after this one, people are like, "Oh shit, I'm scared of dolls now." I still yeah. think people are still afraid of the character even today. You know? Oh, for sure, for sure. I think I think the most overlooked thing uh, from Child's Play is uh, it probably has the best animatronics ever. Yeah. I mean, when you see Chucky walking around, it looks so fucking good. Mm-hmm. so good the, the effects are just second to none i'm surprised it doesn't get more praise well, for how sometimes good sometimes it's actually a person yeah well there is scenes where like it's literally like walking and shit it, yeah, it's yeah. crazy it, it's, it's crazy how good it looks too man for 1988 and just for them to to develop that you know it, they did such a great job but no denying it man child's play super iconic film it's, man. it's easily to forget how good the original child's play is it's yeah. a well-made film with with very little detractions. You know, it, it is it is easy to forget how good the film is because the franchise has been spread out for you know almost twenty years now, and the films have been kind of spread out, uh, you know, between sequels and things like that. And at one one period, it became really bad. Yeah, like the franchise became really really bad, Let's and people kind of they kind of wrote it off and stuff, and then it kind of got reborn a little bit with the last sequel and stuff. So I, I think it's it, it's so far removed from the really good Chucky films that people tend to forget. But see, in my opinion, there's only on one him. there's only one bad Chucky film in my opinion, like really bad. Chucky yeah, I, film. I agree with that. Number forty four, Friday the Thirteenth. 1980. Well, I mean, not only is the name Friday the 13th one of the most iconic titles for a film, I mean, that is like one of the most brilliant names ever. You cannot deny that fact. Box office smash. Shit did real good, man. 12 films, man. 12 films is a lot of films for a franchise. I mean, it's surprising that there aren't more now that we know how many more there could have been. But mm-hmm. at the it, more so than twelve total films, look at nineteen eighty 1980 to nineteen eighty nine. You have they made eight, eight, eight films, 
Friday yeah. the 13th films in 10 years. It's an incredible Saw's run. like that. Saw's the it's same a... way, though, dude. Yeah. I think Saw's the only other well, franchise seven. that had a run like that. Seven. Yeah. I mean, it's comparable still... to Friday the 13th. That type yeah. of run of films is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I think these I think these uh, Friday the Thirteenth filmmakers or today have, they need to look at what they were doing in the eighties and just take that uh, take that game plan. <laughs> I mean, we can't get a Friday film. They can't write one. Everybody's fucking... saying that. If you listen to any podcast, everybody's saying that Friday Friday the Thirteenth is not the first slasher, but Friday the Thirteenth kicked off the wave of slasher films. There's no denying it. Friday the Thirteenth came out, and then look. Go through IMDb and look at the the years, right? The dates and the years. How many slasher films came out after Friday the 13th? It mm-hmm. is insane. And many of them tried to amp up the gore and, and raise the body count, body count and be yeah. more interesting and, and twi- twist endings. And, and you know, you have films like Sleepaway Camp that are, that are direct, you know, inspirations like camp settings like it's it's insane how many films were like oh that was successful we can do that it looks very simple all you do is have a bunch of kids and they get killed off in creative ways who's a special mm-hmm. oh that tom savini guy here's pretty good you know it was the prototype man it was the prototype for introducing all these you know these type of characters that are you know in every single film you know all the cliche characters and things like that, but it's that camp setting. It's 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 that staple film. It's yeah, that staple it, film. I mean, this it, film brought slasher films straight into the mainstream, man. But the thing about Friday the Thirteenth that still compels me is like, is how actual gory and violent the film really is. Like, there's a pretty mm-hmm. decent, there's a decent body count, but it's pretty violent and shit, man. Like what they got away with for having a theatrical release is pretty crazy. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Kevin Bacon said, "Yeah, I know, man." But it's it's pretty interesting, you know. So Paramount got away with. So yeah, I still think Friday the Thirteenth is one of the best titles of all time. If that shit, it, as a horror fan, if you saw that sit on the show, would you not just rent it because it was called Friday the Thirteenth, knowing absolutely nothing about it? Mm-hmm. Of course, of course you would. Um, it's interesting we sit here and talk about this because you know it's it's iconic for different reasons, not having Jason in and stuff. But it is what it is. It's iconic. It's Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, moving on to number 43 from the year 1982. It is, really, Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. (laughs) Yeah. Poor Toby Hooper, man. I've always said, you know, as much as I love some of Toby Hooper's films, he is probably the most overrated director of all time in the sense that even one of his more iconic films, he didn't really direct, did he? (laughs) (laughs) Poor Toby Hooper, man. But Poltergeist, you cannot deny its its status in in uh, in the mainstream, man. This movie has been they're here, man. Carried to death. I mean, this movie is everywhere. It's it's icon status is it's huge. The thing that compels me, man, is this movie made PG. a shit ton of music of uh, money, and like, it's PG, which is even more fucked up. Yeah, man, this movie was a box office smash. Yeah. crazy and critically acclaimed too it got really good reviews um it's just it's one of those kind of interesting stories really you know pg poltergeist it just seems kind of cheesy and shit like that but it's actually a really well done film yeah really no it's it's scary i mean the the scene where he looks in the, the mirror and his face fucking... is bloody and stuff like that that's, well, that's not crazy. even the most scariest to me the clown 
Yeah, that shit's fucking <laughs> horrifying. I, yeah, I actually I, agree with that clown scene, man. That shit is really creepy, dude. They I did that well. I watched shit when I was like eight and scared the living shit out of me. And, and the swimming pool. That shit just fucked me up. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a movie that I don't love, man. Like, I can't... I don't gravitate to it that often, but I fully admit that it's a great movie and all you of know, its stats. I used to th- I used to be the same way with Poltergeist, and I watched it again, I think, last year, and I absolutely adored it. Man, did yeah, I ever I love the film. That. I was really, really digging it, dude, and I was noticing shit, and I was like, this movie has a lot of high-class production values. And speaking oh, yeah. of that, you know, it was nominated for three Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's got some of the most iconic lines, iconic yeah. scenes in it. God bless the little girl that passed away, but... And it has um, the, and even the afterward math of the fucking movie with the weird stuff that's happened to the cast and the crew. Oh, I know. All, all the deaths and stuff from the cast. Yeah. I know. It's it's really, it's really strange. It's a weird film. Yeah, but Poltergeist is one of those films that's definitely etched in pop culture, and everybody knows it, and probably more or less likes the film. So they're here, like that shit. It's such an oh. icon. I, it's that whole scene of just her sitting in front of the yep. TV with the static, and oh man, it's so good. Coming in at number forty-two, The Birds from nineteen sixty-three. Um, Mr. Hitchcock. Mr. Hitchcock, man. I mean, this movie to me is one of the most uncomfortable films to watch. There is something unstable about this film when I watch it. It makes me. I don't know what it is, man. It's something about birds and picking mm-hmm. out eyes. And it, it's just, it's an interesting film. It's, you know, in my opinion, it's not like Hitchcock's absolute masterpiece or best film no. out there. But this is a very influential film, man. I mean, <laughs> this one's kind of set the bar for effects and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, just, oh, man, dude. Like, it, it's it's definitely a dumbed down type of uh you know, it's like a Twilight back. Zone episode type of it, story. It really is. It really is. It's yeah. not your typical type Hitchcock. You know, he was really known for telling these crazy, crazy stories and yeah. these really interesting twists and shit like that. This one's kind of, it seems like it's out of his realm, but he does it so well. And he still makes it to be one of the most uncomfortable watchings. I don't know, man, how you guys feel about it, but <laughs> birds picking up eyes and shit just gets me every time. I just love the real birds and the fake birds. And it's like, you don't know which birds are real and which birds are fake. And it's like... Yeah, yeah. I bet you the, that production was probably a fucking headache. Oh, probably <laughs> probably worse than working with animals and kids. Yeah, no. <laughs> but no, it's it's very iconic, man. It's yeah. one of Hitchcock's most iconic films. I oh, mean, yeah. it's it's etched everywhere. I mean, everyone knows about the birds and stuff. If you've never seen the birds, you, you got to check it out, man. This yeah. was the inspiration for so many of these type of films. I mean, everybody. Birdemic. Including <laughs> Birdemic. Everybody that made these type of films credits the birds. With the direct influence, I mean, Hitchcock can do it. He can do it too, man. Let's do it. So, I mean, it, it's a great, it's a great film. It's a fun film too. It just, mm-hmm. I don't like to watch it a whole lot because of those eye scenes, which is ironic, you know, because I love my Italian cinema and they always have those eye scenes and shit. I got to stop thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Number forty-one, Godzilla, nineteen fifty-four. You can't get any more iconic than Godzilla. Godzilla Godzilla is Godzilla is is actually legitimately an amazing film too. Mm-hmm. The original Godzilla is a really good film. It's a dark film. You know, Godzilla was a bad character. And I love that about Godzilla, but the interesting thing about Godzilla is that it has what 30 plus films. 
it spawned over 30 sequels at least in the franchise uh it's iconic man godzilla is one of the most famous monsters out there you can't go anywhere without seeing godzilla i mean i see my homeboy godzilla all the time and he's got tattoos of godzilla on him (laughs) we all know what derek would give this film (laughs) what he gives most films a 10 out of 10 i legitimately think godzilla is a great film though i mean i i know that you're probably not you know too gung-ho for it and stuff but uh yeah, it's not really I mean, my even, even JP digs Godzilla. Yeah, the original Godzilla, like Mood said, it's a dark movie. It's not like the sequels, which no. by the time you get to that fucking moth, I mean, it just <laughs> kind of loses all its luster to me. But the original I Godzilla, mean, I was very impressed with. And I, I mean, grab the Criterion and and watch it for yourself if you've never really giving them a shot because i don't like kaiju i don't like giant monster movies like barely at all like i'm not even close to a fan but godzilla great movie yeah i mean it literally is one of the best monster movies of all time it holds its place it fits a lot of the criteria all right next up from the year 1925 we have the classic phantom of the opera yeah wow phantom of the opera. yeah uh nineteen twenty five. Yeah, it's it's beyond classic status, man. Highly regarded as one of the best silent films ever made. Yeah, I mean, it's fan of the opera, man. I mean, this is probably one of the most iconic titles, iconic uh, characters, you know, mm-hmm. in the Phantom. I mean, this yeah. movie has been. I mean, pop culture status is is phenomenal with this. I mean, so many Broadway plays of it. So many adaptations, so many. Broadway plays. I mean, there's everything to do with Phantom of the Opera, man. It's just, it's highly influential. I mean, you've taken a lot of the, the scenes. I mean, there, there's a version of the Phantom in so many different mediums, you know, like yep. Goosebump books and, and TV shows and cartoon episodes have episodes mm-hmm. featuring. You, you know, always see like bits and pieces of this movie in everything. You know, it's yeah. like so many people are just highly influenced by this and yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like if you take, this film and there is some moments in this film that are genuinely frightening, uh, crazy. Uh, the end of the film is is like when you look at it realistically, what happens? You're like, holy crap! You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> just the mob and stuff. Yeah, uh, Lon Chaney kills it. Obviously, oh, kills it and um, fucking everything. The, the makeup effects are are groundbreaking for 1925. Yep. I mean, oh, so good, painful. Yep. Uh, you know, a method actor. <laughs> He's the man. Yeah, absolutely. He is the man. Phantom He's the, the he was that generation's Daniel Day Lewis, that's for sure. Coming in at number thirty nine, whatever happened to Baby Jane from nineteen sixty two? My opinion, the greatest performance of all time right here. Betty Davis. Female performance of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Even mal even of all time period, it's like top ten for sure. Yeah, it, it's, it's like an amazing performance, man. Yeah. It's you know for female performances, uh, Betty Davis and Kathy Bates are you know yeah. probably going hand in hand there. Pretty damn yeah. good stuff, but and just the hatred between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford is just insane in this movie. Oh. Like they hated each other so much, like they it's were br- actually beating the shit out of each other. It's brilliant, man. Yeah method acting really <laughs> you know they don't really like each other but yeah take it out um highly highly critically acclaimed film nominated oh, yeah. for five academy awards 
Mm-hmm. Crazy, man. Really, really crazy stuff. Uh, again, you know, con- highly considered to be one, not only one of the best films of all time, definitely one of the best films from the 60s, from that era of like really good film. The early 60s had a lot of great films. Notice there's like quite a few on this list, actually, from these years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what to, what to say. I mean, this film right here is mostly on here because it's just an amazing film. It's amazing. I love I just watched this a few like six to eight weeks ago, and it's just it still holds up. Betty Davis is just such a fucking bitch, like throughout, oh, yeah. throughout. But she plays it so good. Number thirty-eight, Suspiria, nineteen seventy-seven. This is Austin from Tennessee, aka W Doubles. The greatest horror film for me personally is Suspiria. It is just uh, the ultimate movie experience. Uh, you can just immerse yourself in the whole uh, feel of the movie, just crank up the surround sound, and just enjoy the ride. Uh, it's a visual masterpiece and simple story, but just executed beautifully. What's up, guys? This is Sam from the 22 Shots page calling in from Ohio. You asked what we thought one of the greatest horror films of all time is, and I'm going to say Suspiria. I mean, it's such a beautiful film. Everything from the color scheme to the cinematography to, I mean, it's just pure eye candy, in my opinion. Um, plus, you get that amazing score from Goblin and some of the best films, in my opinion. I mean... You got a strong cast. You got Jessica Harper in the lead. I mean, I mean, can't go wrong there. And that's why it's one of my favorite films of all time, and I think it's one of the greatest horror films of all time. Well, Suspiria, perfect thirty rating in our Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, I feel like you can talk about this movie so much in terms of aesthetic. You can, you can, you can analyze the the color scheme and the color palette and, and the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day and somebody was like, yeah, take out the music and you have a girl walking through an airport. <laughs> you know, like it just, it just would be, yeah, like yeah. It, but you add that That's... music and it becomes tense. It becomes scary for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. the music isn't just, you know, something you hear in the film. It's actually part of the story. It's, yeah. it's, it's the it fright. It's, it's, it's everything that, it's the build up to everything, you know. It's such a big part of the film, man. It, you know, along with uh, the beautiful, beautiful cinematography and the color scheme in this yeah. film, the music, the aesthetic of this film is probably one of the. I, I've always considered Suspiria to be the most beautiful film ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that aspect, I mean, artsy, yeah, it's one of the most artsy things. Yeah. Super, super influential. I mean, this film right here was definitely highly influenced from Mario Bava's color schemes and things like that too. But mm-hmm. um, this film, man. Oh, it's, you know, over the years has become kind of uh it's just, it's like a, it's just a cult classic beyond cult classic, man. You know, uh, highly critically acclaimed from pretty much everybody except for the, uh, the odd person that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does the film is, is the film a little more style over substance? Sure. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a very, very simple witch story. It really is. But you know, it it's, 
that's just a little portion of it. I mean, it's, I don't know why people get so confused over this film. It, it's really, really simple. You it, just have it's, to. It's a little confusing. <clears throat> like it, it, it mm-hmm. is for a first time watcher for sure. Well, um, but the, I mean, but that's the thing what we always say, you know, Italian films for the most part always are better within, you know, having a second watch. And and it worked for me. I had it at a 7.5. My rating came up to a nine on second watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, Suspiria, I mean, just one it's, of the one of the be- it's one of the best, man. It's got some of the best shots or best kill scenes in cinema. I mean, that opening kill scene yeah. is just, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. The, the effort put into this. And that's one thing I love about Argento is that, you know, he would literally spend a whole day just setting up for one shot based on lighting and things like that. It was, mm-hmm. it, it's incredible yeah. the amount of effort you put into this shit. And it shows on screen. And if you can't appreciate that when you watch a film like this, I don't know what to recommend, man. <laughs> it's well, crazy. When I found out about Italian films and how they have like a huge, you know, portion in the horror history, the first film I ever had heard of and heard it connected to Italian cinema was Suspiria. Uh, these mm. were not films that were available to me in the video store. Like, I, I don't think I remember seeing any Italian horror films as a kid. And once I discovered YouTube and started noticing people talk about Italian horror, it was always Suspiria that I, that I noticed. That one jumped out to me. That's one that people talked about the most. I think that it is um, considered the greatest Italian horror film. I really do. All right. Moving on to number 37, the best film ever shot in the wonderful city of Chicago, 1986 classic Henry, the portrait of a serial killer. Oh, yeah. I fucking love this movie. Widely known as probably the best serial killer film ever made. I watched this film. I watched this film again. Um, couple weeks back checked out the Mm blu-ray and it's as good as ever yeah this movie is so effective it's so damn good it's so realistic in the portrayal of you know henry Henry. lee lucas's character and stuff and Mm -hmm. just the things that happen in this film and the way they happen it's fucking scary (laughs) it's just scary it's a very cold film a very very cold film in my opinion uh which works to it to its advantage like hardcore yeah i think it's like some of the coolest story of like the film has such a hard time getting <clears throat> recognized and like yeah. getting getting distributed this distri- distribution ugh, and then it finally did and it mm-hmm. exploded yeah yeah it's spending time with the killer but knowing that he's a bad guy immediately um and yeah. we've seen it time and time again <clears throat> later in films um like the devil's rejects uh but but spending this much time with him and it also almost has that sort of well you kind of almost like him at times you know but they're literally just murdering people well they show it that's the beauty of the film they show such a human side to the character too you know and it's 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 haunting because you don't want to like the guy because you know what he's like. I mean, there's a setup to the film right in the, the opening credits. It's panning around and it's showing you all these dead bodies. Mm-hmm. You get to know the killer before you even see him. Yeah. yeah. That's effective filmmaking. And that's mm-hmm. terrifying. It's terrifying. You know that this is just impending doom. I love that. It, it, everything about this film is executed brilliantly. I still think one of the most haunting scenes that I've ever seen of film is when... <laughs> 
him, uh, Henry, Henry and, um, Otis. Oh, what's his, and Otis, Otis. They, they, when they kill the dude underneath the overpass, mm-hmm. that shit is just so fucking cold hearted. Like, it's just unbelievably realistic, too, because, you know, that, I mean, that shit happens. Yeah. Yep. Just watching all it, the forensic files. It's haunting to me that, you know, hey, man, you guys need some help. Boom, boom, you're fucking dead. And then yep. he's going to have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, like, and it's, it's just to take uh, somebody real life, Henry Lee mm-hmm. Lucas, and to make the film around him. And I don't know. It's probably been done before that, but not like this. It hadn't been done like this. No, mm-hmm. I agree. Absolutely amazing stuff. Coming in at number 36, Phantasm, 1979. I love me some Phantasm. One of my favorite think, horror films of all time. Me too, man. I think Phantasm yep. is one of the most original and creative horror films of all time. Nothing's ever been done like this, you know, up until that point. And even after, it's one of those films you can't really duplicate because. I mean, the world that this film lives in is so bizarre. It's a nightmare. It's, it's a, it, exactly. It's a nightmare without being overly evident of a nightmare. You know, you're always questioning things. It's Which is it's exactly a what film. a nightmare is. You're not aware that it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah, and Coscarelli does this film amazing. He introduces us to one of the scariest villains of all time. The yeah. tall man. Rest in peace, Angus. Scrim. He's not a, He's not as popular as you know, Freddy, Jason, Mike Myers, Leatherface. You know, it, character in Chucky. You know, characters like that. Pinhead. Um, but in my opinion, he's one of the scariest because he comes off as like a real person. Dude, he scared mm-hmm. the living piss out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> my I still God, think the more- I remember laying on the floor to this day watching Monster Vision and seeing this movie for the first time, and just being. When, when he stops and at the ice cream truck and he, oh. Like, oh my God, you know, just, slow just terrifying. Shot. You know me with slow motion shots. I'm not overly the biggest fan of that's the best one done in history. That's the best <laughs> slow motion shot of all time. And, I still think the scariest shit I've ever seen in my life man, is, is when the tall man picks the, the casket, casket up. <laughs> it's fucking terrifying, man. It's so subtle though. Yeah. It's so fucking subtle and terrifying. You're like, holy, what the fuck world are we living in here? This dude just picked this shit up, man. It's crazy. But it's very creative. It's a creative film. It's a creative franchise. Oh, man. I I think it's just... It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, this... Phantasm Phantasm has even become etched in pop culture. I mean... I mean, look at Star Wars, The Force Awakens, you know, the new film. Captain Phasma was named after the film Phantasm. I mean, it's... Abrams, that's why. I did, I, yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't notice that. That's awesome. Abram, yeah, man, he's a big, big fucking fan of Phantasms. Yeah, he, he helped with the, the remaster. Cap- yeah. And he named the captain after the film because he's such a big fan of Phantasm. That's so he really cool. deliberately put it into the film, which is a very interesting fact. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's and, uh, and and it, and it created one of the you know the best franchise in terms of quality. Um, oh, for sure. You know, and I, I mean. The the weirdness of this movie, like the the balls, like what the hell is that? I remember thinking, like, what the hell is this? 
Like, why, yep. what the heck? That thing's going to kill me. You know, what the hell is it? <laughs> it's a ball that flies through the air and has drills in it. Like, what, where the hell did that come from? Who created this damn thing? You don't know. We don't know. What the hell? You know, the little jaw was like, okay, they're like shrunken Pete. Why? You know, there's, and, and there is answers to these questions if you dig deep enough or, and you can create them yourself. There's so much cool stuff in Phantasm. I, I mean, the car becomes a character. The, the, Mm-hmm. The Friends. It was filmed over the weekend. Talk about guerrilla filmmaking and influence for people that later heard Coscarelli talk about how he made Phantasm and like, oh, I can do that too. I can film a f- movie with my friends on the weekends. And, uh, it, you know, for indie filmmaking, huge in 1979. 100%. 100%. Number 35, Carnival of Souls, 1962. What could be said about Carnival of Souls? Well, for one low budget but super influential at the time for a low budget film cinematography in this movie is fucking insane for the amount of money that they had and the resources that they had um especially during the middle part of the film it's just it's really really great i know moods has a lot to say about this one. Oh man you know the storytelling in this film is probably the most influential thing that comes out of this one. It, it, it created this twist that has been used so many times over the years and stuff. And I think that's what this film is known for. I mean, I really don't want to ruin it, but the first time I watched Carnival of Souls, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it has that effect on you. You're like, what? That's crazy yeah. shit. That's crazy shit. So it's so effective, but it's really, re- it's a haunting film. Because it feels like a nightmare the whole time you're watching it. It has this really kind of dreary um, aesthetic to it. The atmosphere is like second to none. It's just it's a really beautiful low budget type film, mm-hmm. and um, it's got these the you know the the dude that's in the film. Let's call him that. But he's so haunting looking and shit, and very very memorable. It's awesome, man. Um, you know this one spawned a remake too. The really, yeah. What? What? In the '90s, I used to own it on VHS and watch it a few times, but I I've never heard of this. It. I've never yeah. heard of this. I haven't seen the remake of this film for years and years, but I actually don't even own it. Yeah, I've uh, never even heard of it. But it's another one of those films I just can't believe that got remade. It's kind of like remaking Diabolique. Mm-hmm. It's like, what are you going to do with that? You know, I mean, they're known for their their twist endings and their their really unique storytelling and shit like that. It's hard to do, but Carnival of Souls, man, is just one of the most influential films ever. It really is, man. I mean, people talk about the insight this film all the time, and it's it's a direct influence on so many film, modern films and stuff like that. You know, it's mm-hmm. great. It's really, really great stuff, man. If you haven't seen Carnival of Souls, it's amazing. Get the Criterion, the fucking transfers, mind boggling. <laughs> I will say I don't have the Blu-ray of Carnival of Souls. I have the DVD version of it, yeah, and um, the Criterion one, which has the extended director's cut on it, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. So I don't know why they didn't put it on the Blu-ray, but Carnival of Souls needs to be seen by everybody. It's amazing. That's awesome. Coming in at number thirty-four, we have another Universal film from the year nineteen forty-one, and it is titled The Wolfman. Yes, yes, y'all's going down right now. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Matt the Horridonis here. What's going on, guys? Matt the Horridonis. Just wanted to call in and uh, leave a voicemail for the episode 100 show. I think I heard something about JP said he wanted to have us say what, what he thinks is the best, uh, what we think is the best horror movie of all time. Uh, I'm biased. I think it's my favorite. 
Uh, I think it's the Wolfman from 1941, Universal Black and White Classic. Um, I grew up watching that movie ever since I was a real little kid. It exposed me to black and white film, and got the universal monsters, like Dracula, Frank Spencer, Dope Duke. But I gotta go with the Wolfman, I think it's the best world movie made. Uh, people would debate that because there's no tropical moon, and you know, things like that. But I think it's the best. I think as far as the sympathetic werewolf, I think Uncanny just fills that role. The card range is bad and fantastic. I think the makeup like that tears is terrific. I think it's just a perfect movie and we think it's all the real thing too as just so I think it's the best it's my favorite universal horror movie. I think it's the best universal horror movie. I know movies if I disagree with Frankenstein, but uh, I gotta go with the Wolfman forty one as such a dope movie. I've seen it so many times, um never gets old for me. It is my favorite horror movie of all time and I think it's the best movie of all time and the best werewolf movie of all time. Um second would probably be American World in London. But uh, yeah, guys, that's my entry for my thoughts and best horror movie of all time. Congrats once again on getting to 100. And I uh, hope that you guys get to a super high number, that's a thousand. <laughs> Make it happen. Alright, so congrats uh, once again, guys. We will kind of build this shit. I know most of you guys have already seen it, but yeah, I can talk about the movie for hours. Um, but I only got three minutes. So the way things go. But yeah, take care, guys, and I'll talk to you later. Yeah, you know, The Wolfman, to me, um, really kind of elevated the Universal Monster films once again after Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. uh, it added this, like, more human level that we didn't get in Frankenstein to this uh, tortured soul. Um, and it created werewolves, damn it! <laughs> like, that's mm -hmm. something for sure. Staple film, man staple film and 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 the thing is it's a good film too even though like the effects and stuff like that are a little bit outdated you know using that time lapsing stuff it's still good though i mean great performance in the film yeah. is an iconic character it's an iconic character it's you know again you know it's embedded in pop culture it's it's a fucking wolf man it spawned a whole franchise uh, multiple remakes in in my opinion it's the second best universal monster movie um the storytelling mm -hmm. in the wolfman is much stronger than most of the universal films that came before it um mm -hmm. it's more detailed um yeah yeah and, i agree and i i just love how much they focus on you know the 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 tortured soul of Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, man, it's such a, it's such a great element too, man. Because you know he just doesn't want to be that way, man. He knows, he knows. I like that though. I think I, I think that's such a great angle for it. It's perfect for Universal. It's perfect. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's going down right here at the Twenty Two Shots of Moods and Horror. I'm Mr. Watson from Horror Corridor, and with me as always are the three podcasters who can boast that they're the hosts with the most from coast to coast. To my left, we got the man who puts the beer in beard, the YouTube sensation from another nation, it's Moods 616. I don't know what 616 means, but it's either something to do with comic books, the mark of the beast, the amount of hose he gets per night, or a Michigan area code. To my right, we have the man who's bringing sexy back with a mexi pack. It's the man all the ladies want to Netflix and chill with before getting married with children. He's 50% Mexican and 100% stud. It's the homie, Double Shot J, or JP. Hey, what's up, guys? I just wanted to record a little something to 
<laughs> to congratulate you on making it to episode 100. That's a fantastic milestone, my friends. Like, I honestly can't even believe it. Like, some of us are still trying to get to episode 10. <laughs> like, I, I'd feel like I'd be meeting, like, massive goals to even do that. But 100. So congratulations, guys. So, anyway, I'd just like you guys to know that I really... And I'm being sincere here. I really look up to you and consider you all to be older brothers in the scene. Now, fun fact, 22 Shots was actually the very first horophilia show that I ever heard. And for those of you who don't know, JP was the very first person to hear my podcast. And it's because of his seal of approval that Jason gave me a chance. So I kind of like kind of oh horror corridor in part to jp and kind of you know 22 shots being so awesome so i don't know that's pretty badass just kind of something for the audience to to kind of hear and digest so look i, I don't want to take up too much time here <laughs> but i just want to say that listening to this show has basically shown me how podcasting ought to be done the way you guys tackle the films so smoothly and debate the finer points it's just all so amazing so Listen, keep on inspiring the hell out of the rest of us, and my, my guys, here's to another 100 episodes. Oh, and one more thing. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Much love, homies. Coming in at number 33, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. 1984. I know people are swinging rights and lefts right now. Me and Moods wanted nothing with Jason this low on the list. Yeah, and, and, and it's true. And, and I understand their I, argument, but I thought it was me. very important to document the important nature of Jason in horror. To me, he's the most recognizable horror villain of all time. More than Michael Myers, more than Freddy Krueger. Uh, everybody knows Jason. And when... Do they know Jason? Surely not in 1980 with Friday the 13th. Barely in 1981 with Friday the 13th Part 2. It wasn't until he got the hockey mask, but then in Friday the 13th Part 4, if you look at the numbers, if you look at what happened, this was supposed to be the final film, and this is the one that really catapulted Jason into this mega star, this mega horror icon. And we got tons of sequels afterwards, uh, and Fans do consider this one to be the best of the Friday the 13th, myself included. I believe Moods also thinks that this is the best one. Uh, Tommy Jarvis is us living the movie, right? Like, Tommy Jarvis is a horror fan who's caught in this serial killer Jason's warpath. And I thought that that was really cool as a kid, you know? Like, that's me. Like, I'm. Uh, if, that's representing us, you know? And uh, Friday the 13th Part 4 has everything that people love about the Friday the 13th films. All the way up into the fantastic climax, the great gore effects from Tom Savini, nudity, it's all there. Friday the 13th Part 4 is the perfect Jason film. And Jason, you have to admit that he is just one of the most important figures in horror. He 100% is. He... He is the 80s of horror, you know? Like, you, you time capsule that, and Friday the 13th was running shit. And, mm. it, and it was Jason. And plus it has Crispin Glover in it, so yeah. it wins. I agree, man. It's, in my opinion, it's the best Friday the 13th film. I agree with JP says. 
What about you, Jeremy? Are you sold? Eh. I really <laughs> love the films like JP, so what? I haven't even seen Part Pass Four, so you know that 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 still blows my fucking mind that you have not seen Pass Four of pretty much the most popular franchise in the history of our films. Yeah. And you have all of them hanging on your wall. Which oh, is yeah. blasphemous, by the way. Hipster. You Hipster. have all this shit in a frame. Hipster You're willing status. to put them in a frame before you watch the goddamn things. Hipster stat. I have them all on board. Do you right have autographs of people what? from other sequels that you haven't seen? <laughs> watch the fucking movies, man. Actually, no. I just have Kane Hodder. <laughs> all the other you haven't ones even I have. seen a Kane Hodder Jason. I know. What the hell? Number 32, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is actually, my mistake, this is the earliest film so yeah, far. Fuck you. That's what I thought, man. One of the greatest silent films, if not the greatest silent film. The thing about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, man, this is the quintessential film, German Expressionism. Yep. It really is, man. I mean, this the is what it's known for. It's th- this is what it's known for, man. Highly influential for you know even American filmmakers and stuff. Yep. Um, and it's funny too because when you watch this film, and Jeremy could probably vouch for this too, it still stands the test of time. Oh, I yeah. think this film is great when you still watch it, man. Even awesome. the ending, even, people still don't get the ending, and the film's almost fucking a hundred years old, and it's kind of crazy. The first time that people watch this movie, they go, "What the hell's going on at the end?" But. It's it's awesome. It has That's some of the true. coolest fucking sets. I love German expressionism sets. They're fucking amazing. Yeah, I yeah, they're highly awesome. agree. Man. Highly agree. Yeah. Super critically acclaimed. I mean, this one it's so high on the list because it fits so much of the criteria. I mean, it really does. It, it fits all the criteria. Up at thirty-one, we have a film from nineteen thirty-one, and it is Frankenstein. That actually was not fronting. planned. That was not planned. Another Edward reference, but yeah, Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, Frankenstein is clearly one of the most recognizable horror figures of all time. Uh, Even more so than Jason Voorhees. Everybody knows Frankenstein. So much so that nobody knows him as Frankenstein's monster. It's Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, because because pop culture has changed the name of the character. Um, Yeah. It might have been originally frankenstein's monster or the monster but as time went on when you insert it into stuff like scooby-doo and other things it becomes frankenstein yeah it's no longer frankenstein's monster Uh, it's one of the most critically acclaimed horror films ever made uh it's you know one of the people cite it as the best universal horror film uh, Mm. of the 30s 40s and 50s I like the sequels more. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Um, but, you know, on a mainstream stage and in a poll, some people would probably, mm-hmm. most people would probably cite Frankenstein. You know, it's interesting because I, I feel the same way, actually. Uh, when it comes, I've, Frankenstein franchises is so good. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a good franchise. And uh, I think some of the sequels are actually better. When you talk about, you know, the, the classic monster that doesn't ask to exist right like that this is something that has been ingrained in 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 all films for so long after frankenstein um -hmm. and even before frankenstein with the novel obviously um but it really got catapulted when that film came out it's a classic tale and it's classic 
you know now but at the time that that was the first person doing this you know the first the first team doing this was was the people who created frankenstein and mary shelley uh it's it's really kind of an amazing story you know it it has so much influence throughout the history of film there's been a million frankenstein movies adaptations parodies Ugh. Uh, oh, the yeah. list goes on and freaking on. Uh, Hammer had their own versions of Frankenstein. Uh, it's it's clearly one of the greatest horror films of all time. You can't go anywhere without seeing Frankenstein. It was oh, yeah. a complete box office success. You know, even in the times of uh, the Depression, too. Yeah, it's you when know, they but... can fit all the money into an actual box. <laughs> <laughs> Coming into number 30, King Kong, 1933. Yeah. King Kong, you know, uh, it's without a doubt one of the most important films in terms of effects. Hundred percent. Oh yeah, yeah. The the effects that were created in King Kong to groundbreaking. I mean, yeah. they they influenced everybody. Like, like Harryhausen. I mean, Jesus Christ. You know, the list goes on and on. And yep. the the effects that they used and developed for King Kong are still being utilized today. Like there's still mm-hmm. things that people do today that were created mm-hmm. for that film. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's a damn good movie too. You know, it, it, it has, you know, that, that, you know, social commentary, you know, that special spectacle too. Yeah. It was a big movie, you know, huge, yeah. you know, blockbuster, yeah. like giant, uh, uh, film with, with grand set pieces and things yeah. like that. Um, and that social commentary where uh, people are the real evil, you know, they invade this place where this person, this monkey, isn't doing anything but living naturally, and then they pull him out of his own mm-hmm. nature and, and insert him into a place that he doesn't belong, and he doesn't know what to do but wreak havoc because he's confused, and that's not where he's supposed to be. Uh, that's something that exists in films today, and and in typical still... human nature, we have to destroy what we don't understand, right? Yeah, yeah so. and, and that's a talking point in films that that always will exist. Number twenty nine, The Evil Dead, nineteen eighty one. Hey, this is Matt Tangent, the Angry Ginger. Just calling in the way in on my pick for the top top horror movie of all time. It's a tough one for me. I I want to say. Uh, Dawn of the Dead because I love that film, but I guess my all-time favorite is definitely uh, the original Evil Dead. You know, it's it's campy, it's creepy, it's Bruce Campbell. I mean, need to say more. All right, keep up the good shows, guys. Take it easy. I think the Evil Dead is the quintessential staple indie film. Yeah, it really is, man. Um, Sam Raimi set the bar so high for indie filmmakers doesn't he he almost kind of like embarrasses you know a lot of indie filmmakers in a sense with his he created these amazing techniques of filming and stuff and you know it's just used yeah and and he did it on a budget like gorilla style where it's like oh you see that two by four over there we're gonna mount the camera on it and run through the woods (coughs) and then the only film that i really know that had you know just condiments as effects that actually worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty great. Well, Maniac. Yeah, yeah. Psycho had uh, Hershey's syrup. Yeah. That's I true. didn't hear that. But the Evil Dead is just like, it's a staple possession demon film. It's just uh-huh. iconic in every angle, man. Filmmaking, I think the techniques used in this film are some of the most 
you know, some of the most stolen techniques of all time. People use that shit all the time, you know, running through the woods and, you know, and, that whole... And the sound. The sound in the sound. Evil Dead is crazy good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people forget, much like Child's Play, the original Evil Dead is 100% a horror film. That's why I prefer it over the sequel, man. Cabin in the Woods Horror. Yeah. Which is a subgenre that, you know, has been made and remade and, and did again afterwards. But but Evil Dead, man, really set the tone for that. And even Stephen King, whose film The Shining was was out, told everybody, check out Evil Dead because that there's something special there. But no, you can't you can't deny the Evil Dead. I mean, it's it's one of the most iconic films and so many different levels. Bruce Campbell, poster art to I mean, pop culture, man, it's the fucking Evil Dead. Yeah. And plus it's plus it's actually a legitimately good film. It really is. And it was scary for its time too, which was interesting. So Yeah, it's it's yeah. absolutely scary. All right. Next up we have a film from the year nineteen. 19- 22 and this is the last film on this list from the 1920s and it is a film titled Nosferatu I'm surprised you actually pronounced that correctly pretty close <laughs> film school student I should know how to say Nosferatu <laughs> I should hope so Christ yeah I mean it's it's a vampire you know Nosferatu and probably the most iconic looking one too yeah. You know, it, I mean, next to Dracula, obviously. I think Nosferatu, man, that look right there. Oh, man! But you're probably right, though. Dracula is probably a little more iconic looking, but Nosferatu is unique. Is the, it, it's very, very unique. Yeah, it's very unique. Scary as f, man. Really, really scary shit. And this is like one of like the first lawsuits, copyright lawsuits that you saw in cinema history. Between Bram Stoker's widow and Stoker. Eve, <sighs> Stoker. God damn you, you fucking Mexican hipster burrito eating asshole! <laughs> Jesus Christ! We all know I'm mentally retarded when it comes to pronouncing names. We already know this. James can. We have to move on now. Anyway. <laughs> This is the first time that we saw a lawsuit between the widow of Bram. I'm just going to say Bram and not get fucking harassed and <laughs> filmmakers. And this is, like I said, the really the first time that we saw this. And this was a big deal. Uh, Stoker's widow won and they ordered to burn all the negatives to the film, which they did. But, of course, some copies got left behind and which they got sent they over. Didn't. <sighs> yeah, it, it's it's truly amazing. This film wasn't lost forever. Yeah, you know? it, it, it would be so sad if it was because um, it is it is amazing. It really is an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Nineteen twenty two. Um, this is like the perfect clip that you can insert anywhere, right? Like you can put this in any film where the characters are watching a movie, and it and it sets atmosphere and tone, <clears throat> and it's been done too. It's been done. Oh, this movie right here to me is is legitimately freaky, man. I don't know, the, 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 just the way it's shot and it's you know it's overly iconic. It really is, man. Set the stage for every vampire film that we've really ever seen. I think it's timeless. I really do. I think this movie is timeless. It just it fits. Coming in at number twenty seven, The Omen, nineteen seventy six. 
Hey everyone, the Boston Brando, a.k.a. Derek here. I'm here to leave my pick for what I think is one of the greatest horror films of all time. And for me, personally, it's definitely going to be The Omen. Of course, with its great direction by Richard Donner and its amazing score by Jerry Goldsmith. You're just glued to the screen once the beginning shot starts in the credits. And with its great, like, acting and uh, atmosphere, with the mystery that's going on within it, it really dwells into the story, and I just love how this one goes. This is probably one of the first horror films I ever seen growing up, and it stayed with me, and it still affects me in a way, and, like, with its, of course, like I said before, its great musical soundtrack, and its great performances by, like, Gregory Peck and Lee Rickman that this is one of the greatest horror films, especially you're just mystified of what's going to happen at the very end and when it finally happens. It, your mouth drops because it's just an epic film for any horror fan to see. So that is my pick, as always, and it's always going to be because it still captivates me to this day. So that's my pick, guys. Derek out. This is the film that... Uh that actually kind of always makes me laugh a little bit um, <laughs> because it made the name Damien <laughs> completely associated with the devil. So everybody that was actually named Damien <laughs> was the devil. <laughs> it's got it, but it's true though. It's yeah. true. This is I, the film I didn't that, know that a kid people. named Damien who was not a bad kid. I can tell you it's that right weird. Now. Isn't it? Isn't it weird? <laughs> right. But yeah, the omen is just, it's one of those complete, hits for the criteria man box office you know smash it's it's uh it's very popular it's a very popular film critically acclaimed it's got it's it's like it's an amazing film it's got probably the best decapitation scene of all time in the film too Mm -hmm. um you know won an academy award i mean this one is just it's fitting the whole thing man stands the test of time um and it created a really good franchise i mean the first well i would say trilogy you know, the first three films, the fourth one's unrelated to the, the franchise a little bit because it actually is a girl, which is very odd that they even did that TV film with a girl. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, as a trilogy, the Omen trilogy is fantastic. Very, very underrated. But this movie, man, been ripped off to death. Everyone's ripped this movie off. Number 26, The Amityville Horror, 1979. The Amityville Horror, man... It, it, when you talk about iconic status, I can't think of a, a building that is more recognizable than the goddamn Amityville house. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, and and you know it spawned a crazy franchise and and apparently a bunch of unofficial related films and and as well as official sequels, um, huge remake that they made um, during the remake craze. Uh, it's it's considered one of the best haunted house films. Uh, it's based in reality, whether you know how much reality uh, is debatable. But there's there's no question that that there are strong believers in what happened in that Amityville house, and you know it, it, it's actually pretty scary. You know, but if you've seen it back in 1979, people were terrified of the movie, uh, and it's. You know, it's a film that I go back and forth with. Sometimes I love it, sometimes I don't. Um, but it's definitely very ingrained in pop culture, uh, horror cinema, and 
you know, just in general, horror fans seem to know Amityville horror. But the campaign for this film, though, was just like, it was unreal. They they sold it so well. Amityville horror. I mean, this is what everyone wants to watch when they watch horror films based on, you know, real real life events and, and, and stories and stuff. Not and, just And they really pushed that. And unlike films like Chainsaw and mm-hmm. Psycho that were also sort of marketed that way. Yeah. There was a lot of available Im- information about the case out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, there was like documentaries and th- th- there was just, yeah, you're right. There was a lot of information, really, really crazy stuff. And I mean, this, the, the phenomenon of the Amityville horror is still going on today. Yep. I mean, like you said, there, it spawns so many sequels and unofficial sequels and it's still going in 2017. We're talking like 38 years later. Um, infinite Pop websites dedicated to information on the Amityville horror case and people still go to the Amityville lane in New York uh, to check out the house you know oftentimes not allowed and, and things like that but um, it's, ju- it's just one of those films that that even like my parents and my grandparents and, and people who are not into horror know Amityville horror and at number 25, we have the UK classic from 1973, The Wicker Man. Again, one of those staple films that seems to be overly imitated. <laughs> it's highly influential, man. I mean, in the cult uh, subgenre. Um, and, you know, it seems to be the front runner of the folklore film, too. I mean, The Wicker Man seems to always have that kind of kind of has that status and stuff um it's also considered to be one of the best films ever to come out of the uk and i i concur with that man i think the wicker man is a fantastic film it's it's scary um it stands the test of time it really does and i critically claimed i mean this movie has never really had anything bad said about it i mean it's phenomenal stuff man gotta see it all right coming into number 24 black christmas from 1974 the first slasher film you know personally i always consider this one to be more or less the first slasher film uh by most people prototype slasher mm-hmm. which which is totally understandable that makes sense yeah. too uh but the cool thing about black christmas is that it's it's really the straight up influence for for halloween yeah and um, technically you know in a roundabout way it's almost <laughs> a sequel Yep. Uh, Halloween's almost a sequel to Black Christmas because John Carpenter talked to Bob Clark, who he asked, hey, would you do a sequel to Black Christmas? And he said no. And he's like, but if I did, I would have it set years later on Halloween instead of Christmas where the killer had broken out of a mental hospital. <laughs> Sound familiar? In steps, Carpenter makes Halloween. it's amazing Uh, christmas horror at its finest you know it's it's one of those you know films that definitely influenced holiday horror for sure Mm -hmm. you know like there might have been holiday horror films before black christmas but not like black christmas and black christmas definitely uh kick-started that ball along with uh other films that came you know for that ball to roll and and create all these awesome uh, Halloween and Christmas and, and Friday Thirteenth uh, holiday films. Yeah, man, and plus Black Christmas, highly critically acclaimed. I mean, mm-hmm. 
every time I watch that film, it, it never seems to fail me too. I mean, it's one of the most interesting and, you know, kind of atmospheric films. And, you know, th- this is a film right here. If you watch closely, you know, uh, it's been ripped off millions of times. I mean, we all know it spawned a sequel, but it's been ripped off to death. So many scenes with, you know, the phone calls and, and um, just a lot of scenes that were taking place in the house. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure if it's one of the first um, kind of sorority type, you know, slasher type films. I mean, it's gotta be up there, right? I mean, 1974, mm-hmm. it's gotta be up there. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the the thing about this film that really separates it from a lot of films is the ending. I think this movie has one of the best endings of all time. Uh, I know people have debated this to the death, and I can probably think of one person in in particular <laughs> doesn't really care for this film as much as that I do. But personally, I think it's almost a perfect film. I think there's so many elements to this one that has influenced so many things that we watch today. Black Christmas is that film. It's that film covered way back on episode three in our first annual christmas show <laughs> episode back in the day damn jeremy was even on that one <laughs> was he was he <laughs> <laughs> oh bam that's all right you'll get your dues you fucking bitch ah <laughs> oh, shit man coming in Bla- oh are you what sorry? a fucking cocksucker <laughs> who me Fucking both of you. <laughs> you could suck my left nut and you could suck my right nut. Coming in at number 23, we have Freaks 1932. Yeah, what could be said about Freaks? Gooble gobble, gooble gobble, one of us. Pretty much it. No, I love Freaks. It's in pop culture, man. It's my yeah. favorite Tad Browning film for sure, and he's done a lot of really fucking good movies. But mm-hmm. Freaks this is so unique for its time. Like people were legit like fucking freaking out when they saw this movie back in the day. Like I can't think of anything like it. Yeah. This is a prime example of a film that cannot be made today. Yeah, you can't make a movie Not called like Freaks this. with actual freaks. Mm-hmm. Like that's what like, this movie really kind of ruined Browning's career, though, in a sense because it was just. It kind of blacklisted him, mm-hmm. didn't it? So, I mean, that's how effective this one was in, you know, into the for the people. I mean, it just it's crazy. I mean, this is the type of film that everybody wants to make, but just doesn't have the balls to make. Mm-hmm. It's so influential, man. This is one of those realistic, just like, damn, dude, like we don't need special effects artists, man. We have real freaks. Yeah, it's I don't crazy. even know where you would get freaks to do this, like anomalies. Um like, because all the circuses, I don't think they really do that anymore, really, you know? Um, the freak, the whole freak show thing? Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I mean, really I've don't seen know. people, like, swallow knives and stuff, but it's, like, not, like, actual, like, disfigured or, um, you know, mutated people. Uh, I mean, Freaks is just a good movie when it comes down to it, too. Uh, I think that it does tick off a lot of the, you know criteria but but it's just damn good mm-hmm. and also much like uh one of our main like seventh criteria that we didn't list has it been spoofed by south park yes it has <laughs> it's the episode where the parents when they're kidnapped the parents you know you've made it when you've been spoofed by south park yep has been spoofed by south park yeah and if you look closely in 1932's freaks uh 
in the 352nd frame of the movie, you can actually oh, see s- Ball Chin Boy in the background. Yep. Nice. Ball Chin Boy's the best. <laughs> I fucking uh, love, love me but, some but Ball this, Chin Boy. <clears throat> this one right here, man, has one of the best endings, too. It's just awesome. Uh-huh. Totally sweet shit. I mean, for its time, in fucking incredibly risky. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole film in itself was risky, but, I mean, even that ending was insane. There was nothing being done like that. This movie is so far ahead of its time, like, it's ridiculous. All right, next up, we have Dawn of the Dead from the year 1978. Yes, my favorite movie of all time, coming in at number 22. What's up, 22 Shots crew? This is the Hortophilia Jason. And I'm here to give you my thoughts, my opinion on what my favorite top number one horror film of all time is. Uh, man, this is so friggin' hard. I personally do a top 25 horror films of the year, probably for the past seven or eight years. But I've never done a top uh, all-time list of any type of sort. Maybe it's time I finally do. Uh, so this is extremely difficult for me. All my favorite films at the top of my list absolutely love. And my tastes change from year to year, but for the purpose of this podcast, I uh, did narrow it down to two films. So when I think of number one here, these two films always come up to the forefront. The first film is Dawn of the Dead original, and then also Friday the 13th Part 3. Now the slasher subgenre is easily my favorite subgenre of horror films, and Friday the 13th Part 3 is my favorite. I absolutely love the Friday franchise. Uh, you know, most entries, of course, um, I admit, are subpar, but I love that franchise here, and I wrote an article that you can read uh, why I think Friday 13th Part 3 is, is the best of the series, even though 2 comes in right below it. <laughs> 2 is probably a top 5 horror film for me. Uh, but these two films, Dawn of the Dead and Friday 13th, are the cream of the crop. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go ahead and discuss both here before I pick a, a winner here. Now, as far as Friday 13th Part 3... This is easily one of the best theatrical experiences I've ever had. I saw it in 3D with my mom at a small little theater by my hometown. And I remember that experience because in the audience there was this black dude hollering funny shit during the kills of the film. Now normally, you know, nowadays I would hate that shit. But at that time in the theater, man, he had everyone in the theater in stitches. It was just a fantastic experience. Not only was it 3D kick-ass, the film was kick-ass. Now, since then, over the years, I've probably seen Part 3 maybe over 100 times. I think that and Revenge of the Ninja are the two films I've seen the most ever. So that was one of my choices. Now, the other choice, like I mentioned, is Dawn of the Dead original. And as far as Dawn of the Dead, I do remember renting that at our local video store. Uh, we came home and we popped it in the VCR and it was me, my mom, and sister, which was pretty rare in itself. My sister is uh, seven years older than me. She rarely watched films with me and my mom and uh, she didn't even really like horror films all that much. She got scared at night. <laughs> but anyway, we popped in the film, pushed play. Man, when that goblin score kicked in, we were just mesmerized. And then the second the credits rolled, my sister turned around and looked at us and said, again, we both, me and my mom, nodded her head, and she hit rewind. So uh, 10 minutes later, <laughs> at least 15 maybe, we started watching the film again. Now, over the years, the glee and wonderment of Dawn of the Dead original has grown over time. 
Now, at the time, of course, I was way too young to get any of the social commentary stuff. Uh, but I dug, you know, right away all the relationships, the awesome zombie attack scenes, the setting music. It's just damn near perfection. Uh, I don't even give a shit that, that some of the makeup job on the zombies is not the greatest. Especially by today's standards, or hell, even by Day of the Dead standards, it's uh, so far. But there are so many iconic scenes and standout zombie characters. So, between these two films, the bottom line, I'm going to pick Dawn of the Dead. I think it is the greatest horror film of all time. Uh, I just love it. It's damn near perfection. The film just has intangibles that are really hard to express in the words. So there you go. That's my long-winded pick. You know, it's another Romero classic, man. I mean, it's good stuff. Critically acclaimed, man. What can I say? It's one of the best sequels of all time. I mean, really. Effects, I mean, we man. talk about... We talk about, you know, awesome sequels and stuff, but I mean, this one sits dead in the middle of the best trilogy of all time. Um, the social commentary in this film is second to none. I, I personally love everything about this film. Amazing. It's amazing that these that he was able to do what he did with the budget and stuff and make a film like this. But, uh, I mean, this one was so influential that even Lucio Fulci had to go and make his unofficial sequel zombie 2 which dawn of the dead was known as zombie in in italy and uh you know i mean that's what it is dawn of the dead is one of those staple films that um has influenced a lot of shit i mean yeah dawn of the dead i mean it's really iconic with the mall i mean you have video games like dead rising who take that concept and run with it there's even a lawsuit between george romero and uh, the people who made dead rising Uh, i don't know who actually won that capcom Capcom, uh, it's it, it's such a cool nifty idea, and the, the, you know Ken Foray, uh, iconic lines like when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Um, mm-hmm. it, it has so many good things going for it. Um, filmed in Pittsburgh at a mall that you know is not far from me at all. Um, it has that going for it. You know it. it Romero just just killed it and knocked it out of the park. I mean, we need to do a Romero show for sure. I mean, it's still, I mean, it's still relevant today. You know, the consumerism of it is like, it's more prevalent than any, than, than ever, really. I mean, it's just so bad today, but, uh, you know, I mean, this fits it right in perfectly with today's society. It's amazing. It's timeless. All right. Coming into number 21, Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. Definitely considered to be one of the first sequels uh i can't really think of another one offhand there's like a direct sequel you know what man this might even be one of the might even be the first sequel yeah yeah (laughs) i honestly can't even think of one before this but um often argued it's much better than the original um i think that i think that i can definitely see people's point of view on that i mean it just it's classic sequel territory when you just do what you did the first time but just make it bigger and better yeah this one man again super influential i mean you see clip i mean you always see clips and and uh you know scenes that are taken right out of this film in so many films you know in the future and stuff like that but bride of frankenstein it's um yeah man i mean that's it's pretty much known for kind of being better than the original film number 20 Cannibal Holocaust, 1980. Yes, the real 
first found footage film, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. No, I'm I mean, not gonna is, say it, is it fact? I mean, it might be fact. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is fact. Actually, this is uh, you know the very first type found footage film. Um, this is a it, you know, Cannibal Holocaust is one of the most notorious films of all time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the film that pretty much started the video nasty craze of cannibal holocaust man that cover art's probably not the best thing for the film ever you know (laughs) or maybe it was the best thing for the film who knows but this this film changed the uk drastically you know um it was the one that basically started getting films pulled off the shelves and banned and things like that um and which led to being the most bootleg film of all time and mm-hmm. also ended up putting Ruggiero Diodato on trial to prove that the kills in the film weren't actually real. This movie is so notorious in so many levels, it's ridiculous. First found footage film, I mean, started the video nasties. This one is just unbelievable, man. And not only for all that stuff, it's, it's, it's a really incredible film. It's got a beautiful score. It's shot really, really well. Um you know, it's notorious for even having these nasty animal killings in it, too, and shit like that, which was very prevalent in Italian uh, cannibal films, especially. I mean, we've seen them in so many other films, but uh, Cannibal Holocaust, man, it's it's the quintessential go-to cannibal film. Yeah, I mean, it it created that cannibal boom, man, that yep. we saw. And I, I think that being the first found footage film... Often people say that it's Blair Witch, but it's definitely not Blair Witch. Cannibal Holocaust uh, is is just one of those films that you just know about it. Even if you've never seen it like me, you know about it. You know yep. how people feel about it. You know how hotly debated it is. Um, I've heard literally everybody from, you know, people say it's garbage to their favorite horror film. Okay, moving on to number 19. I think this one's going to surprise people. From the year 1960, and it is a film titled Peeping Tom. Yeah, Peeping Motherfucking Tom. <laughs> uh, it's classic, man. It's it classic. is a classic. It really is, man. I mean, it, it, it kind of, it's been dubbed as like, is it the first slasher film? Yeah. Or not? It's um, definitely a proto slasher film for sure. People often give credit to Peeping Tom for a lot of the POV stuff and, and things like yep. that. Fireistic tendencies in this movie's off the fucking chart. Yeah, like, that's right. It's really, really hardcore for fireistic throughout, and I just, I just love this movie. It's it's different, and I've it's a shame too many people haven't seen it because I think it's one that I feel like. If people had the opportunity to see it, would be talked about more. It's unfortunate. Well, it's unfortunate for the time it came out because it kind of got overshadowed by by Psycho. Yeah. I think Psycho was the big film that year. Peeping Tom got left in the in the dust, and and it got kind of forgotten about. And to even be honest. since then, it's hard to come by in terms of collectors. It's not readily available to stream on like Netflix or. Or any of those type of streaming <clears throat> services, there's not an easy DVD version. The only way you can really see it is via bootleg or illegally. So that definitely cuts That's, down the audience that that is able that, to see the film. Yeah, man, Peeping Tom is just a bonafide classic. Very, very influential in so many subgenres of film. Um, 
slashers, voyeuristic films. Christ, man, Peeping Tom is one of those films that, I mean, how many discussions did you have in school about this film? A lot. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a prototype for, for, for lessons. Yep. You learn things from watching films like this. And that's why it's in, you know, in the top 20 because and it it's, ruined the director. It did ruin the director. Ruin him. Coming in at number 18, The Silence of the Lambs, 1991. The only horror film to ever win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And right there solidifies itself in the top 20. I mean, it's an amazing film. I mean, it doesn't introduce us to Hannibal Lecter. I mean, we've... Yeah. We've, we've seen Hannibal Lecter before this film, but this is what popularized Hannibal Lecter. Made him a household name. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, it's also, you know, the performance um, difference, too, in terms of Hannibal mm-hmm. Lecter. Like, <clears throat> this is some of the most well-performed horror that exists. Oh, um, Anthony on, Hopkins. On, mass, on all, all fronts, you know, Jodie Foster as well. Uh-huh. Oh, Anthony Hopkins! It's like a it's like a role of a lifetime, man. It's yeah. like amazing. It's it, it psychological. Really uh, oh. It's it's one of those movies that you watch and you say, "How could anybody not like this?" It's so well made. The story is great. Um, I can buy the house, <laughs> the Buffalo Bill house. It's not far from <laughs> yeah. here at all. <clears throat> Put the lotion in it, the it, basket. Yeah, uh, recently it was sold. <laughs> what actually. do I get? All right, Auto Trader. Ooh-wee, look at this, a 69 Hemi, eight grand. Sorry, I had to get my Joe Dirt reference. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, that's actually good that you brought that up because that's parody and influence. Yep, um, that's right. Um, I mean, hell, even the the, the song in, in the film has been used uh, many times afterwards. Um, Goodbye, Horses. Coming in at number 17, we have Alien, 1979. Merry Christmas, 22 Shots. This is James calling from Finland, and I'm phoning in with my all-time number one favorite horror movie. And this has to be the 1979 classic from Ridley Scott, Alien. I remember years ago going with my dad to the video shop. Must have been seven or eight, something like that and just seeing this on the shelf and I had to have it and then he was fantastic got it for me came back home popped it in the VCR and ever since that point I've been absolutely hooked on the horror Scott's direction Jerry Goldsmith's score Guy oh, Guy's alien design fantastic awesome uh, cinematography every aspect of this film is just absolute 10 out of 10 for me I, it can't be any other film than Alien it has to be my favourite. And anyone that says this isn't horror, I call bullshit. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Good work. Bye-bye. Um, yeah. Oh, man. I- I'll tell you what. Alien is probably one of my favourite horror films. Uh, it It is such an interesting movie. Set in space. It's like the best movie. Set in space, you know? Like, it looks legit. Um, it's mm-hmm. not. It's not cheesy at all. Um, it's scary. The xenomorphs are one of the most creative creatures uh, that that had ever existed. It was a box office smash. It, it murdered the box office. Uh, it's considered to be one of the best horror films of all time, best sci-fi. Uh, critically acclaimed. Uh, totally stands the test of time. To this day, the chestburster 
jump scare is one of the scariest um, jump scares of all time. Uh, Jesus, dude. I mean, uh, it won an Academy Award for effects. It's parody in Spaceballs. He gave us Ripley, man. That strong female leading character. Which is a huge strong point in this film. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people cite this as like the first real strong female character that that took the lead of what you oh, typically a... see a man do exactly man she she was the man you know she was the strong character she was she was the fucking man <laughs> you know, without words man ripley was badass so number 16 from the year 2004 we have james wan's saw dun 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 well, I mean, Saw is pretty self-explanatory. Probably yep. the most iconic uh, modern-day franchise. I mean, it's really one of the... Well, it's the front-runner in modern-day franchises. Yeah. yeah. And it's amazing it, stuff. I mean, what it did, I mean, it put out seven films in, what, eight years? Nine years or something like that? Yeah. yeah. I think it's eight years. Eight years. It's really, really impressive yep. that they, you know, that the Saw franchise is able to kind of you know duplicate what friday the 13th did in the 80s because it's been so long since we've seen like a franchise go that go that batshit crazy and start putting uh-huh. out films but man it, it created you know a lot it was there was good storytelling you know there was really really good kills in this thing it created uh an iconic character um and the ending man blew the shit out of the box offices man they, they, this whole franchise is just phenomenal it's phenomenal and and something so cool about Saw is that whenever it was released and came out and people saw it and loved it because it was such a well-made movie and is is one of my favorite movies of all time. It, it, it's so well-made. But it, 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 it caught the attention of the regular day person. And mm-hmm. I remember for a brief period of time, three or four years... Like, everybody was talking about something that was horror, and they were really into it, and people were all about seeing the new Saw on opening night uh, in October, that, and, and I loved that. I loved that. Like, a lot of people don't like that, and they want horror to be this exclusive club. Like, I don't mm-hmm. like that. I want horror to be as successful and as reach as wide as possible because I love it so much that I want other people to experience that because I know how cool it is. And I remember just, like, at that time being, like, amazed at how many people were interested in horror. I mean, I remember seeing the horror section of FYE, like, stocked with people because Saw was so popular and everybody was kind of into it and wanted to see other films like that. And along with Hostel, it it really kind of, like, created that torture porn uh, movement that happened a little bit. Um, it was kind of like being in the eighties again, you know, the soft yeah, franchise. It was, you know, you know what we created there, that. It was kind of like back in those days, you know, which we hadn't seen in which so was long. My first time experiencing something like that. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I hold the saw films very special in my heart. I saw every single one on opening day. That's cool. That's really from the cool. first one to the last one. Every single one. I didn't see a single one of them in the theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every <laughs> October. I don't think I got any of them here. <laughs> and, and I truly Until, think when you talk about best endings, um, yeah, it has awesome. a strong, strong, strong um, debate on on mm-hmm. Saw being one of those talked about endings. I love Coming it. in at number 15, 
A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. Well, it's definitely the film that um, that introduced the world to the icon Freddy. Yeah, and, and once again, much like I mentioned with Clive Barker, uh, Freddy and A Nightmare on Elm Street coming out of Wes Craven's head with all these different little things that happened to him throughout his life that sort of culminated into this character of Freddy is truly amazing. It's it's lightning in a bottle. It's perfect storm of elements coming together to create something that is super, super unique. The very concept of a dream killer is fascinating alone. On top of that, the way that he looks is another just ah. huge, amazing accomplishment. Um, the glove, that is something crazy like like Mm -hmm. that is a cool weapon like and nothing has been created like that since the glove alone is one of the most interesting things about a nightmare on elm street uh the red and green sweater how wes craven read somewhere that that if you put red and and green together it it feels wrong with your eyes and stuff because they're opposite colors and and Mm -hmm. he's like let's make a sweater red and green the burnt face like the list goes on and on and that's just from the creative standpoint of A Nightmare on Elm Street, not to mention what actually happened after it came out. You talk about influence, you talk about box office, you talk about uh, critical acclaim, and, and you talk about icon status. Like This is one of those films that checks off every single one of those ticks, and it truly is an amazing it was, movie. It just has a minor flaw to stopping it from being like a you know 10 out of 10 or something. And it might be. Yeah, it might be. It's it, it's amazing. It it really is, man. It's it's perfect timing. You know, the film is perfect timing, man. You know, 1984 is when the slasher genre was really starting to decline. Uh, it's pretty much the end of the golden age of the slasher film. But this one just it put a new twist on it. Supernatural slasher in a dream. Uh, it was very very fresh and original. I mean, this thing was just destined to do great things. It's debatably one of the most original concepts ever. It really is. And I think it's really cool that Wes Craven actually, you know, he created this film based on something that he read, too, you know, about that, you know, this little boy with these dreams and stuff. And I was like, holy fuck. You know, it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah, it was like Cambodian um, immigrants who uh, there was a a couple articles of of these people dying in their sleep or being afraid to sleep. Um, that, that sparked, you know, the inspiration for Freddy Krueger. And that's why I just can't, I can't accept somebody saying that Wes Craven is overrated. Um, the, the man literally brought one of the coolest ideas ever to, to the world. And I, I think he deserves like as much respect and honor as you possibly can give somebody that, that created something that cool, way cooler than anything you or I will ever do. Or anybody Mm -hmm. who says that, that you know he's overrated it, it makes me laugh all the time it happens all the time <laughs> no it's it's legitimately legitimately a great film i mean there's some re- i mean the body count's not huge in the film what is there like four or five kills in the whole thing but i mean they make do when they have one yeah there's some good shit there there's some good shit man it's effective though it's it, he didn't Johnny he didn't Depp. try to go overboard with, yeah exactly he didn't try to go overboard with this thing man he created a you know i mean head of langenkamp's role in the film it's casted perfect too yeah, you know she's, she's the like girl next girl door, next door. She is the girl next door, man. She totally is. Everything about the film is really, really good, apart from the ending. I agree. I agree. I think the ending is could have been worked on a little bit and thought through a little more. But, uh, 
you know, otherwise, man, you can't deny its status in in horror history. It's one of the front runners for everything in the criteria. This is this is a pop culture iconic film character, and it's just good. Number fourteen, John Carpenter's The Thing, nineteen eighty two. Hey guys, Rob from Georgia, from the voice that broke wide open episode number 50, the most influential now lost to be the voice that will bring to a close the 100 greatest horror films of all time. For my own little part, I must submit to you the God's support that the greatest horror film of all time from 1982 must be John Carpenter's flawless masterpiece of terror, The Thing, tossed all freaking debates aside. While it ranked at a lowly number 50 of the most influential, it should now rise to crest pantheon of horror to take its place in the 22 shots hall of fame regardless regardless of its fate for me mr john carpenter's the thing will always be the greatest horror flick ever peace out hey guys i figure i would call and uh leave my all-time favorite horror movie uh now this was a tough one it took me probably about four or five days and it's changed constantly but I would have to say John Carpenter's remake of The Thing. The movie is just fantastic. Great casting, uh, isolation, uh, makeup effects are just phenomenal even to this day. They still look amazing and just the downer ending. Everything about this was just an absolute perfect film. Probably watch it three times a year, maybe more. And I just notice something new every single time. It is just freaking fantastic. Um, oh, and by the way, this is Scott Crawford. I forgot to say that in the beginning. But yeah, I just uh, realized I hadn't sent this message in for you. So there you go. Yep, the thing from 1982. Right, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> Man, this is the film that we did not know where to place in this list. Yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> and it was massively out of the area that it is. And then we came down to realize that it's just one of the best movies ever made. One of the best movies ever made. And yeah. how can you not include it in the greatest horror films of all time? It may not have influenced a ton. It may not have uh, been a smash hit at the box office. In fact, it didn't do well at all. Uh, no, but it didn't. It is one of the greatest horror films ever made and greatest movies ever made. It's so creative. Uh, it has just this look to it, this perfect filmmaking. There's not a single thing wrong with the thing. No, there really isn't. Um, it's it's the, uh, the prototype for the X Factor film on our list. Yeah. It's just solely an amazing film. Effects-wise, you know, acting, story setting like every, filmmaking there's nothing wrong with this film whatsoever it's a perfect 10 out of 10 it just doesn't have anything else except for being such, a great film it has such an interesting history though because when we think about it when the film got released very much like the shining it was panhandled and the critics really didn't you know like it very much but as time went on and you know more people started to watch it and respect it the film finally got the recognition that it deserved from the mainstream you know critics and audiences so yeah it really is incredible when you think about that people didn't like this movie you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. it's such a weird concept uh and it, it 
it I, it didn't do well at the, at the box office. It it really didn't. Um, no, I really it, didn't. It only made like nineteen million dollars, um, which you know I I don't know the budget, but uh, it had to be kind of a higher budgeted film for the year. I mean, they they said the the setting of the film alone would probably cost a bunch of money. It's like an oddity in this list. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It doesn't fit the criteria, but it's one of the best films of all time. Number 13, we have Aliens from the year 1986. And here comes that film again. You know, I just stressed that I prefer Alien, but I think Aliens is a bigger film. It's probably a little more critically recept- uh, ex- conceived. It's considered um, the better film. It's considered the more successful film. It did everything yeah. that Alien did, but better. And that is the general consensus. It might not be yep. what you or I feel or Jeremy, but it's without a doubt. Um, when you talk about greatest horror films of all time, if you took a poll, this film would probably get mentioned a lot. A yeah, lot. it's literally up there in, you know, in every single list. It's always James high, Cameron high one pick, man. This movie fits the whole criteria straight up, man. Box office, it just smashed. Smashed yeah. the box office. Did amazingly well. Considered one of the best sequels of all time, if not the best sequel of all time. Uh, won Academy Awards. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's really crazy, man. This movie still is truly amazing when you watch it. I mean, it is done by James Cameron. So you, you know the production value in the film yeah. is going to be pretty good and stuff. But it, it stands the test of time 100%. You watch the film, it really is truly visually amazing. It's it's really well done. Uh, there's really no problems with it. I just, it's the fact that it's, you know, not 100% for myself. It, it's I just don't care for action in my horror that much. And that's a personal preference, but... The rest of the world mm-hmm. seems to love it. All right. Coming into number 12, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, from 1987. Now, this is on the list for the same reasons that A Nightmare on Elm Street original is on the list. But one thing that we said about Elm Street is that it has a bad ending, and Mood said they could have tightened that up. And they did tighten it up with Elm Street 3. Elm Street 3, to me, is the same exact movie, only amplified. (laughs) And this film, another reason that it's ahead, you know, lower than Elm Street 1, is because this is the film that launched Freddy Krueger into the mainstream pop culture icon Freddy of the MTV age. And... Whether you like that about it or not does not matter. The fact is that that happened when Freddy is on the fucking MTV. Like, fuck you. And it, it, it's really where the development of Funny Freddy that we got with Elm Street 4, you can see hints of it in Elm Street 3. And I think it was still at the balance of where it was okay because he was still scary in Elm Street 3. Elm Street 3 scared me more than Elm Street 1 as a kid. Um, I found it much more creepy. The mannequin scene, the uh, marionette scene, rather, mm-hmm. terrified me as a kid. Uh, it's got it's got amazing kills in this film, yeah. man. It really does, man. Awesome characters, and you know, I've I've heard over the years that people that's the problem that they have with this film is that they hated the characters, they hated the superpowers and all this type of shit. I'm like, what I the fuck? I mean, stuff. it's set yeah. in the fucking dream world, man. You can be anything you want. That's the beauty of this film, and the mm-hmm. idea. I think people are missing that whole point, man. Man, Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors is 
It's awesome. Great soundtrack. Uh, and it and it fits the criteria so good. Yeah, you know? and, and you take a sequel and you want to extend what you did in the original. It They nail it in Elm Street 3. Like, it is an extension of that original film and mm-hmm. doesn't do anything to destroy what was created in the original film, but more add to it and sort of expand on the concept itself as well as be more creative with kills and uh, a more sound story when you talk about the ending. The ending's actually good. Like, it actually makes yep. sense. It's like, oh, this mm-hmm. is a good ending. Uh, the mythology is great. The characters are so cool. Like, Kincaid's one of my favorite characters ever in a horror film. Yep. Uh, I can watch Elm Street 3. I mentioned it earlier that there's two films that I can watch over and over again and never get bored with. And one was Return of the Living Dead, and the other one is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and it's my personal second favorite horror film of all time. And according to us, it is the best horror sequel of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically, part three is still a sequel, but... Yeah. But yeah, man, this one, it, it just it just floats the boat, man. I mean, it killed the box office, um, you know, won a bunch of awards and shit like that. It's just everything about this film is inviting to me. I love this film so much. And, <clears throat> you know, it's not just about my taste right now. I think it truly is one of the best films. Number 11, Scream, 1996, Wesley Craven, classic. Hey guys, Anthony Crisanti here from Chicago, and uh, first off, I just want to say congratulations on episode 100. Um, as you guys probably know, me and Matt from Union Horror Movies are starting our own podcast. You guys are the ones who inspired me to do so, and I love podcasts, and I discover them through you, so thanks for showing me all these awesome movies and just being great dudes and always willing to help me out with anything I have. Um, but for my voicemail, uh, as to my opinion for the greatest horror movie of all time, in my opinion, that is Scream. Uh, it's the first horror movie I've ever seen, and not only does it just fill me with joy every time I watch it, but in my opinion, it's the perfect slasher film, and slasher films are my favorite, and it's, it's just perfect all around. Great cast, excellent writing, excellent direction by Wes Craven, of course, rest in peace. And I just think it's an all-around amazing film, and I've probably seen it over easily over 60 times. <laughs> I, I, I can watch it at any time of the day, multiple times a day. It's the single greatest horror movie I've ever seen. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, and like I said, congratulations on that. Thanks, guys. Uh, this is this is a film that some people always say reinvigorated the slasher genre, and it did to an extent. But that's not what happened. It didn't it come out, and then all of a sudden there were good slasher films. There were just slasher yeah. films after it. What it mm-hmm. did do was get horror out of a slump in terms yeah. of yeah. excitement for horror, and it you know made money and it made horror viable again at the box office it made studios realize that they can make horror films and make money again it didn't influence good slasher films i hate when no, people it, say that <clears throat> i i've all i'm 100 with you on that one man i feel 
that scream totally just regenerated the horror genre, you know, especially in the mainstream and stuff. But not only that, just in everywhere, it, it inspired indie filmmakers. It inspired a lot of, you know, different level type filmmakers. But all scream did for the for the slasher genre was create a whole pile of shitty clones, like I know you did last summer, and a whole pile of fucking floating head posters. <laughs> yeah, but it <laughs> did influence that. It did, you know, whether it's good or bad. It influenced yeah. 100% a ton agree of floating head posters, which I hate. But you know, ghost it, face mask. Like, it, I mean, there was an explosion of slasher films, no doubt about it. A million urban legend. I know what he did last summer. Yeah. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, you can credit Scream for this. Are those films good? Eh. No. <laughs> I mean, it's up for debate. But uh, but Scream was the quintessential film at that time where it brought it brought the uh, the energy. It sparked you know, a whole wave of films to come after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and scream is a film that is extremely smart. It's one of the smartest horror films ever made. <laughs> there is so many perfectly lightning in a bottle moments in scream. I always reference it. <laughs> Jamie Kennedy sitting on a couch, watching Halloween after he explained the rules. <laughs> to Halloween, yeah, yeah. Saying yeah. Jamie behind you, Jamie Lee Curtis is the actress's name, not, Jamie Not Kennedy, her real name in the film. Her name is Laurie Strode, but he's calling her by her real name, which is Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie behind you. Yet there's somebody behind him, and his name is Jamie. How did you create this? <laughs> oh, it's fucking Astermind. brilliant. <laughs> it's really brilliant. The the ghost face mask, yep. iconic as fuck. People, I grew up in the '90s. Jeremy grew up in the '90s. For mm-hmm. ten years after that, you saw dozens and dozens of kids wearing ghost face masks every halloween because it was a cheap affordable mask and it was instantly (laughs) recognizable it's so funny man because when i was growing up man it was everybody wearing freddy masks (laughs) (laughs) it totally was man it influenced caller id for christ's sake you know in in the real world people were like "Uh uh-uh ain't nobody killing me tonight i'm getting some caller id they ain't calling my house you know (laughs) Uh, it's it's insane. Like Scream to me is one of those movies that I don't know how you look at it and not see the brilliance in Scream. It was uh, it's one of the first horror films that I ever seen that was new um, because at this point I was watching things from the eighties uh, and then Scream came out and it was like new. And before that there was what was new? You know, Leprechaun was new, I guess. <laughs> um, but. Uh, also, you know, it, it did something, it shifted the playing field of the back, you know, the production of, of horror, the back side of horror, where, you know, in if you look at the 80s and the 70s, everybody cast in horror movies is, is no names for the most part, except for the big budgeted, like, you know, aliens and stuff. But even at the time, like, they, they were sort of no names, but... Then you have Scream that changed the game where it's like, let's invest in stars that people know so that we can capitalize on this um, CW crowd. And then you saw it happen over and over again afterwards. And now every film after was the same. Well, not the same cast, but it was the same type of level actors and stuff. All these TV actors and these slasher films and shit. And it did, man. It influenced the shit out of that. We need we need her. We need Jennifer Huge Tits in our film. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll get her. And <laughs> it's such an important horror film. It really is. Moving on to the top ten, fellas. Top ten, baby, baby. It's the final <clears throat> countdown. Okay, here we go. Number ten from the year 1976. 
we have yet again another Stephen King adaptation. This time it comes from our awesome friend, Mr. De Palma. It is Carrie. Landmark film. Yep. Landmark film. Uh, Introduced one of us my to like favorite films high ever. school. Oh yeah, man! High school horror. Oh yeah. man! <clears throat> and nobody's really came and said, told us, you know, well, 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 that wasn't the first one like this. This film existed before it, and we we talked about that in our influential show. And nobody still came and said anything that that had that high school setting like Carrie mm-hmm. did before Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is crazy because it's such an ingrained part of horror now. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was all adults and shit before that, you know. It was just like adults, um, and Carrie comes along and and makes it interesting for teenagers to watch, uh, because teenagers tend to like to watch teenagers, not grown adults, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, That's right. It's highly critically acclaimed. It influenced oh, yeah. the jump scare uh, at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, the final boo scare, you know. Uh, it. It's so iconic and the beginning, man. The beginning sequence. Yeah. It's fucking so iconic. Absolutely. Really didn't see that kind of nudity before at yeah. the time. You know, the crazy thing about Carrie is that it uh it had Academy Award nominations. Yeah. I mean De Palma, I mean, if you know the history of De Palma, I mean that's yeah. crazy too. Like, you know, he's coming off some some decent films and stuff, but like he's nothing he's, amazing. I mean, well, I mean, sisters, yeah, sisters, but, but I mean, like not like critically acclaimed, yeah, yeah. you know, high class films and stuff. Like but it's crazy, this little kind of minor. I mean, this film was relatively lower budget too, but mm-hmm. to have these type of performances and stuff and what he got out of these characters, and it's a really, really amazing film. I mean, <laughs> I recently watched the De Palma documentary, and he's he was talking about this film, and he was talking about the remakes and stuff, and he's like, "Is that yeah. shit awesome?" Oh, that was fucking. I awesome. love that documentary. It's amazing. It's one of my really, favorites. Really, really funny stuff when he's talking about Carrie and the remakes yeah. and stuff. And he's like, well, he's like, uh, they pretty much took all the ideas that I could have done wrong in my film and they incorporated <laughs> into the remakes. It's a great doc. I wish more filmmakers did stuff like that. Yeah, it's really, really good stuff. Yeah, this is. But the... yeah, no, Carrie is. It's landmark, man. It's it's like an amazing film. It did really well too, didn't it? It was. Yeah. I think at the point for De Palma, it was one of his best films, um, you know, box office wise. Obviously, it probably was because this shit didn't do good at all before that. But uh, I don't know, man. Carrie is just. It's the first it, Stephen it's... King adaptation as well. It is, and then it, it created a shitload of clones after, like right away, man. Jennifer came right out after this one. You know, is. Pretty much a Carrie ripoff, and uh, Carrie's been ripped off to death. But not yeah. to mention, Carrie is just a, a amazingly done movie. It's it's a great movie. Um, it's got some of the best scenes ever. Like yeah. you know the whole the scene where Carrie gets her period and the way it's shot and stuff, yeah. and it's just it's so like realistic, like to the point where close you ups, know, man. It's uncomfortable. Just, yeah, man, if she was, like, you know, that sheltered in her life, she would have no idea what's going on and stuff. I mean, the I, reaction by the by the, the asshole fucking girls and stuff is a little over the top. Yeah, I've but, never uh, seen a film tackle bullying before, Carrie. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, especially on that level. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it, that's something that's hugely relevant in today's culture, you know? Um, yeah, and, standing the test of time, man. Yeah, Carrie... Carrie the pig blood scene is one of the most memorable horror scenes in history. Um, 
You know what's actually interesting about that scene is not only the fact that she gets dumped with fucking pig blood. It's the way they shot that shit, too. Mm-hmm. Like, De Palma talks about in the documentary how he was getting in shit because it took, like, all day to set up the shit. Yeah. And he still got the shot and stuff. And he's like, you want to fucking shoot it? <laughs> he's like, I'm getting this damn shot. And it took forever to set up, like, an entire day. It's crazy. But that's what I love about it. Just to get that one shot. That's what separates the film, man. It's good stuff. Yep. All right, Moods. Number nine. In at number nine from 1999, The Blair Witch Project. Ooh, this one's going to stir up some stuff. Oh, I can see I can see the pot just spilt. Yeah. Stirred it up too much, man. Um, I mean, what can we say about The Blair Witch Project, man? I mean, it's, it, you know, it's kind of misunderstood a little bit. A lot of people consider this film to be the first found footage film. It is not even close. No. I mean, we've cannibal holocaust we have man bites dog before this we have it's um, the first found footage film to be put in front of a mainstream audience 100 percent, it is 100 yeah. percent, it is but people thought the idea of this type of filmmaking was original uh it's not it's what makes this film original marketing is this marketing campaign they this is probably the best marketed film of all time yeah 100 down they marketed this thing to the point where people legitimately thought what happened in the Blair Witch Project <laughs> film was real. A- yeah. Adam Green until tells they the story. Up at the fucking, until they started showing up at the goddamn award ceremony. So like, wait a minute. Gonna- <laughs> <laughs> like, it's that fucking insane. You, This would never happen again. No. This is a flash in the pan. 100%. It would never, ever be able to happen again. No internet, and- man. My, my uh, family friend who was dating a girl told me that when this film was coming out that the kids that went missing were missing posters were, were hung up around her schools her, her college, <laughs> in, West, in West Virginia, in West Virginia, before the film ever came out, they launched a website before the film came out documenting the case of the Blair witch and the missing students. That's right. Uh, that's Adam right. Green tells a story where after the, while this film was at the festival circuit, it got bootlegged or something and he ended up with a copy just on a VH a blank VHS tape, and like he was like panicked when he started watching. It. He thought he was watching some kind of snuff film. Like the, the the level of creativity in this marketing is is second to none. And you know the way they made a fake documentary for the film mm-hmm. yeah, to yeah. air on the Sci Fi Channel before the film came out. <laughs> They made a fake documentary talking That's about right. these missing students. Yeah. It's, it's called the in, uh, the Search for the Blair Witcher, yeah, something like that. I, yeah, I, I watched it and reviewed it on our Blair Witch show. But yeah, it's incredible. It, it is incredible <laughs> that this film had a documentary, a faux documentary that was pushed as a real documentary. News sites were covering this as if it was a real event. It wasn't until you know much later. Like I didn't even know it wasn't real for so long because I was young. I was I was only eight when this came out. And I seen it and I 100% thought it was real because nobody told me otherwise. My mm-hmm. parents didn't watch, know about film. They didn't know to look at the actors or anything. You know, the internet was barely existent. Like I couldn't yep. look this shit up. It, it terrified me. The, the scariest film I ever seen was the Blair Witch Project. And it holds up, dude. It holds Funny up. Funny story, man, with this one. So I, I, a couple of my buddies wanted to go see this film. I think it was on, it was a Friday night and I don't know, man. We were kind of all like tripping out about it and stuff. And like, we're just all being pussies about it and shit. We ended up not going because I think we just kind of chickened out. Kind of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't like so much that, but 
I mean, in a sense it was, but we're like, well, let's just go tomorrow, you know, Saturday during the day. <laughs> you know, kind of thing, right? So I remember going to see the Blair Witch Project during the day. And it was like, it was incredible. It was incredible. I wish I had to see it at nighttime because it was like so engaging and frightening. And like, because when we went to see it, it was like right after it opened up and we weren't sure what the story was with this film. We, it still hadn't really come to us, you know, <laughs> it was like, it was one of the most compelling cinematic experiences I've ever had in my life. It was, it was crazy. And I remember right at the end of the film, you know, with the end scene, my buddy stands up and he's like, he just starts screaming at the top of his lungs, like blood curdling screen. It was the fucking best thing I've ever. And people were like freaked out in the same theater. Man, it was awesome. It was fucking awesome. But he did it out of sheer terror, man. He was like, he hated horror films, man. He used to get freaked out by him. And he like freaked out. But he like overdid it. You know, he's just like, I'm going to just project this to everybody. It was fucking the funniest shit I've ever seen in the theater the film, in my life. The film plays tricks on your mind. Like, you it don't does. know if you see anything. Like, for years, I thought I seen something when she's running through the woods at night. And she's like, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? I'm like, I'm like, I saw something too. What the hell is that? <laughs> well, when we did the Blair Witch show, man, like I hadn't watched in a long time and it was one of the most engaging experiences I'd had in a long time watching the film. I hadn't seen it for a while. Remember I always used to complain. I was like, Oh, Blair Witch, whatever. And, um, yeah, man, dude, that, that shit was amazing watching it again. It is, it is a frightening, it's a frightening film. It really is. When you sit there and never take your eyes off the screen and you invest your whole thoughts into the film, that is some scary ass shit, dude. That is some shit I never want to go through. The situation if you have an imagination, you will understand why this film is terrifying. It, essentially, all we're doing is walking, watching people walk through the woods. But yep. psychologically, putting yourself in that position and realizing if that happened to you, how yeah. unbelievably scary and, and just terrified and petrified you would be in that situation, that's what makes it terrifying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Roger I'm a big Eli sound guy. Also, the sound design freaks me out too. Just hearing those voices off in the distance and shit yeah. gives me goosebumps. I hate that. It, it drives me fucking nuts. If, you can't, if I can't see what I what I can hear, it drives me nuts. And that film does it so effectively. And Roger uh, Ebert gave it four stars, which I guess yeah. is pretty rare. Oh yeah, really. And, and, you know, this movie is insanely successful. What was the budget? 60, 60, mil, 60, 60, 000. 60 million, yeah, 60,000 made 249 million. <laughs> that is insanity. Yeah, like, it's pretty insane. One of the most successful horror films of all time. Coming in at number eight, we have Rosemary's baby, 1968 directed by Roman Polanski, part of the apartment trilogy. Yes. The second part, man, it's like an absolute amazing cult devil worship film, man. Yeah. It set the bar to the level where Rosemary's Baby is the best. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, no, it's no, like the, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. It's the best of its kind, and it's never been able to be duplicated, man. Polanski, you know, it's funny, man. We we talk about like these, you know, these. Uh, top directors of all time, you know, horror directors and things like that. Polanski's name never gets dropped. I know he didn't do an abundance of horror films, but he did enough to be considered more than guys that have done one. (laughs) John Landis. (laughs) John Landis, we're looking at you. (laughs) You know, I mean, Polanski's, you know, he's dipped in a few times, like four or five times at least. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and all his films are really, really successful. It's crazy that Polanski's name never gets brought up, but this is kind of like the quintessential cult, you know, kind of devil worshipping film out there. This one, it's a freaky film. It's mm-hmm. a terrifying film when you really get down to the core of it. It's a ter- it, it's a terrifying film. It's um, long, but it's never boring. The way that the story rolls out is is just great. It, it really is oh. like it's captivating. You're interested. You're like, what the hell is going on? Like I, the first time I seen it, I didn't know much about it other than it had something to do with the devil. Um, and to see the way that the story plays out and, and the reveals and the the end scene. It's almost like you're looking at it like this can't this ain't real life, is it? Like this is has to be a dream sequence or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know. And it's like what everything is just the way people are acting. You're just freaked out. You're like, what? The Very surreal. Hell is going? It's super surreal. That's a good word for it. Yeah. And then you you hear the, what have you done to its eyes? Like you maniacs! <laughs> yeah. Like that's one of my favorite lines in horror history. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so good. And and by the time you get to that point, all the stress and dur- duration that you've been under, dur- or that stress that you've been under the duration of the film, to 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 get to that end, you're just like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's it's a terrifying film. It has one of the scariest moments. You know that has been mentioned by so many people over the years man you know uh, mm-hmm. the satan rape scene of yeah. course i mean it, it's just it's crazy shit man rosemary's baby is i mean it's a top-notch 60s film it's top-notch horror film all right moving on here we go number seven from the year 1980 we have stanley kubrick's masterpiece the shining well it is simply one of the best horror films of all time, man. Gonna bash your fucking brains in. You know, it's interesting, man, because, you know, if the adaptation to the source material is totally, it's abstract. It's mm-hmm. different. It's not there. Um, we all know the story of Stephen King. He didn't really care for this film, I think, because he was, he really loved the Shining story, you know, and I think that he thought that Kubrick kind of butchered it and stuff like that. Yeah, and he's come uh, around on the film a little bit. Like, he's... I think he's gained the respect for what Kubrick did with it. I mean, it's, I mean, by the standards of filmmaking, it's an amazing film. It really Mm -hmm. is. It's acted well. It's shot brilliantly. There's so many amazing sequences and memorable sequences for a long film. What is it? Two and a half hours. I'm never bored. I find the film to be so atmospherically scary because it's, it's the isolation in the film that gets me going, man. I mean, just think about the premise of this film. You're stuck at the Overlook Hotel on a mountain, and you can't get off there. And shit starts going down, and you can't fucking leave this huge, huge hotel. It's scary as fuck. That premise is scary. It's executed amazing. It's psychological. Oh, man. This movie is just... It's on a different level of filmmaking, really. I wish Kubrick had done more horror films, to be honest. I know he wasn't overly interested in doing horror films, but... I'm so glad that he decided to, you know, to kind of adapt Stephen King's story and, you know, kind of make it his own and stuff. But doesn't it make you wonder what he could have done with horror films? Because that's some different shit, man. Mm-hmm. That's different level of filmmaking. So much to talk about because everybody has a theory about every single damn scene in that film that it's like it's one of the most talked about and overanalyzed horror films of all time. Yeah, I mean, The Shining goes down is one of the best shot films 
Kubrick uh, is, you know, on the level of Hitchcock when you talk about pure filmmaking at its core. And there's so many scenes in The Shining that have been ripped off and mocked and, and even in direct influence, Rob Zombie, uh, again, South Park. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I feel like once you've hit South Park fame, you've hit you've it all. Made it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Right. You know? yeah. And it, it, it truly is, you know, I have my own personal feelings towards the movie, but I've always said that it's one of the best horror films ever made. Coming in at number six, the exorcist, 1973. Hey guys, Matt again. This one is for my uh, number one horror film. Uh, this one is going... I am picking the original Exorcist from uh, the 1970... I think it is, or whatever, whatever the date is. Uh, that movie is just fantastic. The eeriness of it... It's like the only one main horror movie that still scares the shit out of me watching this movie. Uh, as horror watchers, horror collectors, we're kind of immune mostly to a lot of the, the jump scares, the shots and everything. But when you have a, a specific movie that still scares you today, even how old it is, um, that's what it does its job. <laughs> that's what really gets you going and really freaks you out. The acting is superb. You got a demon infecting a poor little 12 year old girl. And of course, uh, Linda Blair did a fantastic job playing possessed, you know, all the weird shit, and the one lady that voice acted the demon, I forgot her name, but what she did, like, you know, chain smoked, drank, because she was trying to give up drinking, uh, she changed herself to chairs, trying to get that voice perfect, really freaked her out too, and pretty much, you know, all the curses that were supposedly done on the actresses, people dying, people getting hurt, just making this film. This makes it very eerie. Maybe I wish they would do a uh, complete, you know, documentary of it. I think that'll be awesome to watch a whole documentary on the Exorcist. There is one out there. But anyway, that is my number one horror film. Is of course The Exorcist. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Good night. Hey guys, this is Tyler from Los Angeles, and my probably my favorite horror movie of all time probably have to be The Exorcist. I know that may sound so generic because. That's like one of the most, you know, um, iconic horror movies of like of all time. But that movie just really got me into horror. Like I watched it at a young age. I've been hooked to it ever since. Still my favorite movie of all time. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what can we say about The Exorcist, man? I mean, first film nominated to be Best Picture horror wise. That's right, man. 1973 was the very first time a horror film was nominated to be Best Picture. That's amazing. Yeah. It did win two Academy Awards, though. Yep. For screenplay and sound mixing. And that is one thing that I love about The Exorcist, is the sound design in the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That analog mix, man. Oh, dude, it sounds so damn good. Everything, oh, shit, dude. It, it It's amazing. It really does so much wonders for every scene in that film and they did such a good job with that film um but yeah the exorcist man i mean it's the quintessential possession film thousands and thousands of uh it's the quintessential <laughs> exorcism film too nobody has come close <laughs> to doing it like the exorcist has. everybody has tried to rip off this film and nobody can successfully succeed in making another good 
exorcism film. I mean, as good as this one. Yeah. I mean, there's been good the, films over the years. There's been okay but. ones, but nothing compared to The Exorcist. And no. and it's a film that, like, word of mouth. Oh yeah, it's was like it's such hyped. a huge factor in, in this film. Like. It's one like, of the most hyped films ever, next to Blair this Witch. This one has like an amazing story behind it too. It's kind of like what we were talking about before with the Poltergeist. Yeah, you know, like you know how people started dying after Poltergeist and stuff. Well, The Exorcist, man, they fucking the sets burnt down. Fucking people died during the making of this film. It, it's got a crazy fucking story. It's nuts. I mean, I know this doesn't really help for the best film of all time, but I mean, the yeah. story behind The Exorcist is pretty, pretty unique in itself too. But. Uh, and you know it's spawned, it spawned a franchise, but I think when you really boil it down, the ex- Exorcist. When you're talking about horror films and what the core meaning of a horror film is, um, to scare, uh, I, I think that it's hard to argue that the Exorcist isn't the scariest horror film ever made. Um, and I say that <sighs> because of how many testimonials I've seen from people saying that. Um, my own grandmother told me that she's watched The Exorcist one time and never again. She will never watch the movie. I've heard multiple people say that in my yeah. family. My uncle said that to me. Because um, it's so kid, raw. Um, and, and religious people especially. Anybody mm-hmm. who's a, a devout Catholic, um, you know, fear this movie. They they they're, It's not looked at as, like, smut either. You know, it's it's a genuine, like... Uh, telling of what could happen if you mess around with the devil or you let him in and and people are afraid of that big time and mm-hmm. i think that that is, helps it being the scariest movie ever is that uh catholicism is so prevalent in the united states and the world yeah, um, yeah. that it, it definitely makes more people afraid of it because of their religious beliefs um mm-hmm. because it's it it's parallels <laughs> like actual religion you know um it's just it's just one of those films that you can't deny it. You just can't. I don't even love The Exorcist, you know. Like it's been a while since I've watched it. Me neither. Rewatch it. It's an effective. It's it, it. You know, for what it is, it's such an effective film that mm-hmm. you know people that are religious and stuff. Even if you're not religious, it just does something to you. Not me. I'm a Jew. I don't believe <clears throat> in the devil. Fuck that shit. <laughs> he could suck my nuts. But it, it, it's just it's just the whole idea of it, right? I mean, the the way this this film is presented, it's actually it's head turning. <laughs> but better. <laughs> I had to get cheesy there for a minute, man. <laughs> um, Coming in at number five, we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre at nineteen. 19- 74 my God, personal timing. favorite horror film of all time for <laughs> me this is the definition of a horror film there is I'm not no more lie. pure definition than the texas chainsaw massacre it is 100 percent a horror film and it is the horror film um it is scary i remember to this day renting it and and it was grainy as fuck. The VHS is was old as hell. It's definitely been played like a million times. And it was like the tracking was all jacked up and stuff. And I pop it in and, and it starts playing. And the hitchhiker gets in the car. And, and I'm just so unsettled. And then he starts cutting his hand and stuff. And I immediately press stop, eject. And I was like, uh-uh. I ain't watching this shit tonight. But then my curiosity as a horror fan, or what I would become as a horror fan, 
um, sucked me back in. I kept looking at it and I was like, okay, maybe a couple more minutes. And I'd put it in and then I'd stop it. And I watched the entire movie in about three hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I kept stopping it because I was so scared. <laughs> Um, but that's just me, you know. This film is also super popular. It's um, considered, you know, one of the prototype slashers. Uh, it brought that. It gave us Leatherface, man. It yeah, gave man. us fucking Leatherface, and uh, it, it spawned a slew of sequels and remakes. And you know, it's still it's still being made today in terms of uh, films. You know, there's there's one in post production right now, awaiting uh, release. Uh, it's a film that. Uh, I think people often talk about its level of grittiness and also its documentary-like style, which is interesting because there's not many films that that is said about. Um, Mm -hmm. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre just has this unique blend. When they open the door and the hammer comes down and and hits dude on the head, it's just pure, pure horror. I mean, even even Toby Hooper even says, though, you know, like, when he filmed this, when he shot this film, he didn't really know what he was doing, yeah. you know, and everything was kind of like the exposures all wrong and stuff yeah. like exactly. <laughs> this movie turned out to be the most fantastic fluke ever. You know, he had this idea and stuff and he rolled with it, but he, the way he shot it, out, shot it turned out to be amazing. Yeah. Even though he had really had no idea what he was doing, but uh, there's a lot of things with this film and it has, a lot of iconic things, man. Not only Leatherface, but in the whole idea with the family and stuff. But it's the fucking sound design in this film, too, which is another kind of fluky thing. You know, they incorporated these sounds into the film, and it's just like, it's like on a different level. It's crazy. You know the shots, you know, when they're taking the pictures? The, the mm-hmm. kind of like the yeah. Uh, <laughs> privacy. Yeah, that whole <laughs> shit, man. That's fucking, it's amazing. It, yeah. It's like absolutely amazing. It's just kind of a fluke. But it doesn't matter. It is what it is. It turned out how it is, and it's it's amazing. Chainsaw is a frightening film. Texas Chainsaw it, Massacre. It's a perfect example of a film that doesn't have to rely on the ridiculous gore and and you know just overabundance of stupid characters and fucking all that other bullshit that we loathe in these films. Man, this one is just raw. It's there straight to the point. No... It's hard. It's it's just it doesn't it doesn't fuck around and it's just like it comes at you so hard, it's relentless and it has a great ass ending. There's so many iconic shots in this film. Um, Chainsaw is like the epitome of horror. Yeah, every weapon that you could possibly imagine, whether it's Freddy's glove or a machete or a gun, nothing quite sends the poop into your underwear like hearing a <laughs> chainsaw start up. The poop into your well, underwear. Well, there is one thing that does it. It's your voice. So, If you're standing in a room in the dark and you hear the sound of a chainsaw, dude. Coming in at number four, we have the number one most influential horror film of all time on the top 50. We have Night of the Living Dead from the year 1968. If, I like how you brought that up. That's yeah, good. That is very good because if that's not saying something, then I don't know what is. It is the most influential horror film ever. Uh, public domain definitely helped that, but no, of the last fifty years, one word. And what is that word? Zombies. Zombies. It literally created an entire concept. Subgenre. Like, like, zombies are a great idea, right? Like. 
Like it's pretty crazy a that they didn't sub-genre. exist. You know, they existed in a voodoo form, but nothing like like this. Ex- like you look at The Walking Dead alone. Thank you, George Romero. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, you can thank everything after that. There's so many good zombie films. He's made the best. Yeah, Day of the Dead. But this, but this yeah. subgenre, man. I mean, zombies in today's society is because of Romero. It's crazy pop culture. I mean, The Walking Dead is pretty much the biggest TV series on TV. You can thank Romero. Yep. You can thank Romero for everything. Yeah. That's happened in the last fifty years. Zombie. This Dr. Pepper I'm drinking probably had something to do with Romero. Probably <laughs> really did. You know what's interesting, man? Romero not only created zombies as we know them today. But the film itself is like more than just a zombie film. The social commentary Oh yeah. Again in this film is like second to none. I mean Especially Ben. It has one of the most iconic endings ever. And I love it. I love the ending. It's sad. But mm-hmm. it's so damn good. Yeah. I you know, love it. Romero is such a genius. He's such a genius, man. I mean, this film has so many different, you know, elements to that we love in, in horror films, you know, like zombies and fucking social commentary and oh I my god. I love siege narratives and it's one of the best it's siege just, narratives. Yep. Exactly. Low budget film, which is very influential to a lot of filmmakers. I mean, I've read I've read interviews before where, you know, Night of the Living Dead was is a prime example of a film. It's like, well, you know, if Romero can do it, you know, coming in at number three, Jaws. 1975. This film created the summer blockbuster. Uh, 1970 damn five. Steven Spielberg. I mean, the list goes on and on of the amazing things that it did. And it influenced so much, so much. And nobody's come close to making a killer shark film or or any type of killer aquatic animal. Is it necessary to to say killer shark? Just, isn't that what sharks do? They just kill? Mm, they swim <laughs> a lot. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just fucking with you. But this was but the no, number J- one on the Bravo list, wasn't it? Jaws, man. This is one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. I mean, it created the blockbuster. It's a uh, fucking box office smash, man. Yep. It's created. Like Sorry, ridiculous, go ahead. ridiculous, man. Mm-hmm. And not only did it like you know kill the box office, create that blockbuster but uh the critics love this film yeah actually love this film which is you know in my opinion is a little bit surprising considering it's a fucking shark film (laughs) Mm -hmm. it it doesn't seem like something that would you know kind of blow critics minds and shit like that but it's done well yeah it's it's one of those films that people cite you know up there with the exorcist as being just the film that terrified them as a kid I, i heard people say that they literally their parents had trouble giving them a bath for the next like year because there was they, they were it was water. Because that seems I mean? logical. Sharks yeah. are going to come and eat you in a yeah, fucking bathtub. Yeah, but you're bath a child. Bath. You know what I'm That's saying? Stupid. You're like five yeah, or something. Tr- you're not going to understand. Kids that. are fucking stupid. <laughs> There's no way a shark could ever fit in your bathtub. It's so stupid. A shark totally could fit in your bathtub. <laughs> what is this? A fucking swimming pool? <laughs> 
I'm sorry, maybe in Mexico everybody uses the same bass, so it's like 20 feet long. But it just depends on the size of the shark. <laughs> Guys, it's not a Chevy truck. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in at number two, the second greatest horror film of all time, we have Psycho, 1960, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Man. I mean, what can you say bad about Psycho? Surely not the music, because it was done by Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, man, Psycho, dude. Norman Bates, the whole psychological aspect of this film is like... You can't even begin to, fu- to scratch the surface on the influence of Psycho. No, it, every everything about the film is in, influential. Yep. It's absolutely amazing, man. Um, Talk about a awesome marketing campaign, too. Hitchcock was doing it way before... Yep. Uh, a lot Nobody of in the theaters before it started. After that is it started. Cr- can you imagine if some studio would say that? It so would good. blow people's so mind. It's like, wait, so you good. don't want us to give you money? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that would never yep. happen today. It, for those of you who don't know, Hitchcock made it a rule that all of the theaters would not allow people after the first 15 minutes to enter, paid or not. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would not sell any tickets. That is getting crazy to think about now um mm-hmm. but that's yeah it would never happen today so much about his people. art he cared about people understanding the psychological angle of the film and the setup to the film and he didn't care about the money he wanted it to be art and that's incredible i mean that's just you don't see that anymore and that i think that's what separates people like him and kubrick from the people of today's era where it's it's you know you have to make a living you have to make a life and and back then you did too, but some some people just were obsessed with their art, um, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. The I've always thought of this film. I've always thought of this film as being very very unique in a lot of different aspects, but uh, mostly for killing off the main character, like in the first what half, half of hour. the film, yeah. half hour of the film. It's very very unique um, filmmaking. In itself, you know, I mean, uh-huh. you're following this character and all of a sudden she gets knocked off and it's like, what the fuck just happened here? This shit doesn't happen, you know, yeah. so I think that I think that's one of the most unique things. And I mean, Psycho has been referenced for, you know, doing that for, you know, yeah, 50 the, years. The lines crazy. are so quotable. You know, we all go a little mad sometimes. I mean, that it, it, Norman Bates, like. The first time that I've seen it and you're just in the parlor with him mm-hmm. talking, it, it's just so unsettling. And you don't really know why at the time. Mm-hmm. It's just you feel for this character of uh, Marion Crane and you're kind of like, okay, like what, what what's like? It feels like she's getting in, in way over her head and she's digging deep into this situation that, that mm-hmm. you know, something bad. You get the sense that something bad's going to happen to her. And something bad does happen to her. Oh, yeah. One of the most memorable scenes ever. Yeah, man. She gets dead. This is the (laughs) other film that I reference where um, it's really the first film where you identify so much with the killer um, that you don't know necessarily at the time. But you know that he's doing bad things because he's covering up murders for his mother. And and when the car gets stuck and it doesn't stink in the swamp, you legitimately feel scared for him. Like you're afraid that he's going to get caught 
And that's just bizarre for the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't nod. You can't question the uh, the inf- the influence this film has. This film is probably one of the most influential films of all time. I mean, like we talked about before. Psycho is classic. All right, here we go. Numero uno of the top 100 greatest horror films of all time. Number one from the year 1978. It is Johnny Carpenter's Halloween. What's up, boys? It's T-Bone from Columbus again with uh, what I think the greatest horror movie of all time is. I would probably have to go with Halloween because you got a badass villain. The movie's terrifying as fuck. And it just has everything. It even has to move, you know? And a badass... So Dr. Loomis, Jamie Lee Curtis is like the original screen queen. So. so in terms of being a seminal classic and with the staying power, I'd totally say that. So yeah, it's not my favorite, but I guess I would say this is the greatest one ever. Halloween, man. I mean, no, we, when we talked about this you know, we all have our favorite horror film. Child's Play, no chance in hell it was making it this far. <laughs> but Dawn of the Dead, more of an argument. Texas Chainsaw, even more of an argument. But Hey, it made 45, so fuck you. We all actually, yeah, all of our favorite films actually made the top 100. That's cool. We That's stepped cool. aside and we looked at it and we said, based on this criteria, what film stands out more than any other film? And we came to the conclusion very quickly that it was Halloween. Because Halloween is one of the most well-known horror films of all time. It's one of the most liked horror films. It's one of the most well-made horror films. It has arguably the best score, uh, recognizable killer um, concept. Uh, it, it influenced Friday the 13th and, and the slasher boom. It influenced uh, holiday horror films. It, it influenced people to make horror films. It's... It, it launched Carpenter's career, uh, who is one of the best directors of all time in the horror genre. Uh, it, it It is a perfect movie. When you look at it and you look at every aspect of the film, every scene, every shot, everything has a purpose. Everything feels mm-hmm. like it belongs. Uh, the flow of the music with the cinematography um, is something that is really, really, really amazing that it came together like that um it's it's just one of those things where so much had to go right for this film to be as amazing as it is and it all just fucking went right it's like you hit the lottery it's like all the numbers just lined up you know Mm -hmm. the stars aligned and you got this amazing movie um that people i mean when you talk every single thing that we mentioned in this list tonight uh, every single different criteria in certain films, uh, you know, this one scared people, this one, all, all of those things can be applied to Halloween as well. Yeah, I think the Michael Myers mess especially is important because I think it was like that generation's ghost face that everybody was buying the Shatner mask from that point forward. Yeah, this is the most fandom film of all time, Yeah, in my opinion. I think it's the most, you know, universally loved horror film of all time. Even if you are a Friday the 13th fan mm-hmm. or, you know, a Freddy fan, Leatherface, 
I still think that the majority of people resonate towards Halloween as a film. Even if Michael Myers isn't your favorite villain, it this is the film. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and for me, it really kind of is, too, because, man, I'm a big music person, and this has one of the best soundtracks of all time. It's simple, but it fucking works. It clicks on every element of this film. The cues are amazing. Man, it's it's horror. So that is our list, and I think that the amount of work that we put into this list and the amount of talk that we just did is quite incredible. And I'm impressed with us. And I want to just say that I know we're going to get a lot of interesting feedback for this list. But the one thing that I want to say to anybody who has beef with our list um, is I hear you. And, and I would have beef with a top 100 list most likely too. But the only thing that I ask that you do is make a list yourself of a hundred horror films that are the greatest ever and make it better than ours and then show it to us because I think a lot of people think that it might be easier than it actually is and And put hundreds and hundreds of bulletin points beside each fucking one (laughs) 24 total hours to do it the whole list probably more than that more than that and yeah I want to see your list. If you if you know how to do it better, I want to see it because it would be really interesting to see other people's lists for one. But for oh, two, you, you might have a different perspective coming out of your list, and you might not even want to show it to us. <laughs> so uh, definitely do that. You know, uh, there's tons of stats with this list that we will probably talk about on another show. Uh, and also the contest that everybody that submitted voicemails and everybody that did uh, top 10 lists for the 2016 show and all the other iTunes reviews and other ways that you entered the contest. I still have a giant stack of DVDs and Blu-rays. Mood still has a bunch of stuff to give away. And um, we will actually do the drawings at some point after this episode is released. Again, just give me some time to get everything shipped out because it's going to cost me a pretty penny, especially if I'm shipping far. Uh, so I just want to say that um, Jeremy, like, you know, I'm happy to have you back. I really am. I think I think that we're going to have amazing shows coming up here. Yeah, episode. that's something that we never did actually mention, though. Not Jeremy's not just back for this episode. He's actually back on the show. Yeah, because fuck, fuck that Derek guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I love you, Derek. I'm just joking. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, I'm back. So Jeremy's back, and I think we're gonna have some great shows coming up here. And one hundred one's gonna be a big one. Yeah, and and we're gonna be doing the Masters of Horror for one hundred one season two, which is a highly requested show, and we're gonna focus a lot on putting out great content. Uh, there will probably be a little bit of changes coming to the show. Um, all good changes, nothing that's too drastic or that you have to worry about, but just different added things, um, different segments, stuff like that. Maybe some interviews, different things that we can do along the lines. And um, I want these guys to say anything that they wanted to say um, about this milestone episode. And then, um, man, it's been a hundred episodes, man. Unlike Jeremy, I've been here for all of them. Jeremy, you suck. Yeah. But I'm glad to have you back, though, man. It's awesome. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. I, I just want to thank everybody out there for supporting the show the last 100 episodes. 
it really does mean a lot to us. And you guys are actually the driving force behind the show. And uh, yeah, man, just just keep the comments coming in. You know, just you know, positive, negative. It doesn't matter, man. As long as we hear from you guys, it means that you're listening. It doesn't matter what it is. So, um, just want to thank everybody out there for supporting, and uh, we'll see you guys in episode 101. It's going to be a fucking awesome one. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah. I just want to thank everybody over on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror Facebook page. You make me go every single day. I don't think if it was for the community that we have built up over on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror Facebook page, I do not know what I would do with my pre-time. How do you sound like a goddamn robot? I am a robot. But yeah, I just want to thank everybody over there on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror Facebook page. I just want to thank everybody for always having my back even though that i was gone for a little while i was a lot of stressful stuff going on in my life with school and finishing that up and finding my place in this wonderful film industry if you guys haven't known i've been working a lot in this wonderful industry and it's been stressful so far but i think i have grown up a lot since when we first started doing the show and hopefully as time goes on you'll start to see those changes in the quality of the content and the stuff that goes on within the show. And don't worry, I'm still going to be an immature bitch and call JP a Mexican asshole like he really deserves to be. But I feel like when we sat down and we came up with this idea to do the show, you know, a few years ago, we never thought about, you know, having everybody that listens to the show actually tune in week after week to listen to the show. Even when I was gone, you guys didn't stay away from the show. You guys kept on coming in and you turned in. And you kept on listening. And I think that the quality of the show has just improved a whole boatload since we first started, just technical-wise. You know, JP does a fucking amazing job every week, spending hours and hours and hours making sure the show is ready for you guys. And I think you guys don't realize how long it really takes JP every single week to edit the show, do the thumbnail, do all the hard work that he does behind the scenes. So I think we all owe JP a thank you for all his hard work that he does behind the scenes on the show every single week to make sure that it is the best quality possible. So thank you, JP, even though you are a Mexican asshole. Wow, man. I that, still love Thank you, dude. That that means a lot because, you know, I, I don't get to put all the bells and whistles on it that I would like to because it is a long show and it's, it's weekly typically. Um, but I do put a lot of time into the post-production in terms of the thumbnail and getting it ready and, and, you know, the show notes drive me crazy. Like I hate doing them, but I know how much people love them. So I, I want to keep doing them to make sure that people can skip around and not have to listen to our news segments or whatever segment they don't like. And, you know, just the final things that I want to say, if you're done, Jeremy, um, that's that's that should be good i just want to thank everybody again for listening and i'm happy to be back and that paranormal activity show will fucking happen <laughs> yes and oh no, christ jesus christ so um to me this has been a great part of of my life you know having this this project that people seem to dig and i love to do it with my two friends here moods and jeremy who I met on the internet, <laughs> you know, which is crazy. Um, but I, I, I truly love this and I, I look forward to doing it a lot. And there, there was a time where I was just going through some really tough things and I almost wanted to step away from it for a while to sort of calm down and, and figure out 
my personal shit. And I got a lot of people who um, reached out to me and like and said all kind of nice things and and just moods was great and and such a good friend and, and cared about how I was doing and and stuff like that and you know convinced me to to not just give up on on something that I like so much and love so much and it really meant a lot to to see that like this has kind of grown beyond what what you know, just a, a side project, like fun thing to do. Like this is a regular part of my life that I do every, every week. And, and, you know, this long layoff was killing me. I know it was killing moods too. It was just like, I miss the show, you know, and I have other side projects, but nothing is like this show. Like I love this show. I put so much energy into this show. And, um, that's why like when I say like, guys, can you like rate us on iTunes or, or, or review us? And, and we'll give we'll give away some prizes and stuff. It, it's not it's not any other reason than I want to make sure that I'm still motivated and loving this. And what excites me more than anything is growing in popularity and hearing more feedback on episodes. When we get ten comments, I get disappointed. When we get fifty comments, I love reading them. I love seeing what people are saying. I love taking people's criticisms, which there are plenty on me. You know, people are saying all kind of bad things, you know, and some of it is very warranted. Uh, and I look at it and I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, I could do that better. And I get excited about it. And then I, I hear ideas and I'm just like, man, I, I want to bring this to the show. I want to bring this to the show. I want to do this. We should do this. We should. And I just get so excited. And I just want to say, man, it's fucking fun and I love it. And it really does make me happy to, to put out this product and especially to hear you guys give feedback on it and and talk to us about it like i i truly love everybody who uh sits there and listens to the show for five six hours on this one and you know don't and then and then tells us how they feel about it it's amazing to me that people care what i think and i've always looked for that in life like i've always liked to have attention you know it's just something that i enjoy it makes me feel good about it's a mexican thing yeah it's a mexican thing and and this podcast has been great. It's a hundred episodes. It's I know I'm going on forever with this, but uh, it's something that I wanted to say about this show. And episode one hundred um, is nowhere near the end of this show. Like I'll do it till I'm fifty. Yeah, man. If you guys have any ideas for episode two hundred, start throwing <laughs> them out now so we can start preparing. Because <laughs> we don't want to take another two and a half month layoff no before the before the show uh, you know airs and stuff. So. Um, but yeah, you know, man, final thoughts. I just, yeah, I, I want to thank, um, you know, JP for, you know, being such a good friend over the years and stuff. And of course, Jeremy for coming back to the show, you know, I mean, I think this was something that we really needed to do, mm-hmm. you know, have the original three back and I think it's going to be good. And we have a lot of great shows planned guys. So stay tuned. They'll be coming regularly. Once the show airs, um, we'll be back Weekly. with lots of like weekly with lots of like so much good material so stay tuned and we're going to be in your guys's ears man we got to get the fuck out of here man is derek uh out of good old washington dc i'm just calling because uh i'm a long-time listener for sent caller and yeah i just wanted to thank you guys for the 22 shots crew for everything they do an awesome podcast it's got me through hours and hours of work over the past couple years so yeah thanks keep it up um love this stuff all right bye
Hey, this is Matt, the Angry Ginger. I just want to say congratulations, guys, on making it 100 episodes. That's that's pretty. That's a that's a big feat. And I just want to say I'm, I love the show. Fairly new listener, so I'm still catching up on your back catalog, but I'm loving it a lot. I really dig how you guys cover the uh, releases that are coming out and go into like some of the special features and you know maybe why the disc is worth it or beyond just you know the reviews of the movies. Anyways, keep up the good work, guys. Loving the show. Hey guys, this is Matt, and I'm calling for the uh, 100th episode, normal, uh, well, whatever you want to call it. Pretty much for just listening to the show, you guys are awesome. I really enjoy listening to the show when I get a chance, <laughs> even though I'm a little far behind, but hey, that's life. Uh, I loved working with you guys in a couple episodes, that was fantastic, I had a ball. Uh, I would say, change anything, I wouldn't change anything at all, just keep what you're doing, do what you know what you're doing it's great all the news all the other extra goodies that are added into the show are fantastic uh, you guys know your shit you know what you're doing Just keep up what you're doing uh, awesome show guys as usual and I hope someday you get back on again that was a lot of fun doing the Tremors episode oh my god that was a blast doing uh, Slaughterhouse too was even fantastic especially with a film that people never heard of but again, guys, keep up the great work, awesome shows. Again, wouldn't change anything. Keep up the good work, guys. Later. Peace. And I just want to, like, tell you guys, like, it's a lot, like, listening to your podcast because, like, living in L.A., you would think it will be, like, a lot of movie fans and stuff, but actually it is not a lot of horror fans. Out here, well, like there is, I just don't know any like that, and this and like the some I, excuse me, and some of them that I do know, they're not like as big as my poor friends like me. So I just really appreciate you guys and this show. It really just like like you guys know, introduced me to so many new movies, and I'm just really glad I, I found you guys. So happy 100 and keep up the good work. Hey guys. It's Edgar from Los Angeles again, and I'm here just to congratulate you guys on your 100th episode. Fuck, guys. can't believe it's been already this long. I, I, just by accident, I ran into Moot's channel maybe about a, a year and a half ago, and I've been listening, I've been going through all of your back catalog, and you guys rock, dude. I mean, it's something that I look forward to on a weekly or whenever you guys have a chance to do your podcast. Anyways, guys, thanks, dude. I really appreciate all the work you guys put in. And here's to another 100, dudes. Bye. Hey, it's Sam again. I want to congratulate you guys on 100 episodes. I mean, it's been a long ride. I wish you guys the best for the future. Cheers, guys. I hope there is at least 100 more episodes planned for the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Don and Ellie. I just wanted to say congratulations on making it to 100 episodes. I've really enjoyed listening to you guys so far, and I hope that you guys continue what you're doing, because it's been a blast for as long as I've been listening to you guys. Stay true and stay scared. Bye. Uh, well, this is uh, 
Grimmer, and I am leaving a voicemail uh, regarding the 100th episode, and I want to uh, about 22 shots of moods and horror, and I want to congratulate you guys for making it the 100th episode, and having uh, a great podcast that is enjoyable to listen to. Thanks, bye. Hey guys, the Boston Brando here, a.k.a. Derek here. Just wanted to congratulate you guys on reaching episode 100. It's a very big milestone. And I know there's been bumps and rows on anything that happens in your lives, but I'm glad you guys put up with the show. And I'm glad that I got to help you guys with a few episodes here and there. I even had my own error on the show, so it was really great to be part of the show that way and I'm glad I was able to help you guys out and one day the Boston Brando will be back on the show maybe like, not as always but I'm just glad that I got the chance to talk some films with you guys and even have some fun with like some words like dynamic and stuff really funny stuff JT moods awesome shit glad everything's going well and as always see you soon Yes, yes, y'all, it's going down right now. Episode 100 of 22 Shots of Moods and War Podcast is coming at the line. Hey, everybody, Matthew Horodonis here. What's going on, guys? Matthew Horodonis is calling in to say congratulations on reaching 100 episodes. I know you guys didn't get to 1,000. You know, eventually, this is awesome. My favorite horror podcast. Um, I've been with you guys for a while to listen. The first time I listened to it was the Candyman trilogy, I think, because I love the first film so much. Um, and I was hooked after that. I went to the back catalog, a lot of many episodes of Wolf for that, and then I just been listening ever since. Um, yeah, you guys helped, uh, helped get me through uh, my undergrad, and I was working on a bachelor's degree, so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of late nights and um, all-nighters, so you guys listening to your podcast, you know, the super long four or five hour episodes that really helped me uh, find some the album is what was the, uh, the super long papers and the assignments and shit like that. So, honestly, thank you to everybody um, related with the podcast. They really uh, helped me. Uh, you guys helped me uh, get my degree at some point. I guess you can say that. Um, and I still listen now with the things that I'm doing. So, I want to thank you to everybody. I want to thank you to uh, the three OG hosts we had. So, we had Moose, the Canadian Candyman, Jay P, the Latino Leatherface. And uh, Jeremy, the Jewish Jigsaw. So, <laughs> thanks for that, guys. And also, you can't forget uh, the Boston Body Snatcher, Derek here. So, uh, thank you, everybody. Um, thank you, guys. It's really an uh, awesome podcast. I'm really happy to hear that you got the little families that you have and been going for so long. And uh, uh, keep up the awesome work, you know. Big fan. So, I'm looking forward to what you guys do in the future. So, yeah, once again, congratulations, guys. You guys definitely deserve it. And um, I will talk to you later. Hey guys, I just, this is Scott Crawford. Uh, I actually just started listening to your show probably about two weeks ago. And I just gotta say, holy crap, I am hooked. I uh, just finished your Italian month, loved every single one of the episodes, uh, and actually found a couple movies I hadn't seen by each director, so definitely gonna be checking those out. Uh, I mainly wanted to say congratulations on reaching uh, episode 100. That's an awesome milestone. Uh, 
So yeah, keep up the good work, and uh, you definitely got a new listener in me, and I am going to be busy going through your back catalog. Congrats, congrats again, guys. See ya. What's up, 22 Shots fam? Austin from Tennessee, aka Double Doubles. I do my first voicemail as a big salute to episode 100, man. Congratulations on the milestone, guys. Um, here's to 100 more. Enjoyed the evolution. I'm still killing it. Enjoying the guest stars. Always enjoying hearing y'all chop it up each week, man. Peace out, y'all.